This is Audible. Hachette Audio presents Feed. Written by Mira Grant. Read by Paula Christensen and Jesse Bernstein. Chapter 15. It turns out that calling a United States senator from inside a quarantined biohazard zone to report that you found a live cat and a syringe containing what you suspect to be a small but terrifying amount of live Kellis Amberley is a great way to get the full and immediate attention of both the Army and the Secret Service. I've always known radio and cellular transmissions out of quarantine zones were monitored, but I'd never seen the fact so clearly illustrated. The words intact syringe were barely out of my mouth before we were surrounded by grim-faced men carrying large guns. Keep filming, I hissed to Rick and Sean. They answered with small nods but were otherwise as frozen as I was, staring at the many, many guns around us. Put the syringe and any weapons you may be carrying on the ground and raise your hands above your heads, boomed a dispassionate voice, distorted by the crackle of a loudspeaker. Sean and I exchanged a look. Uh, we're journalists, called Sean. On Class A-15 licenses with the concealed carry allowance? We've been following Senator Ryman's campaign? So we're carrying a lot of weapons and we're sort of uncomfortable with this whole syringe thing. Do you really want to wait while we take off everything? God, I hope not, I muttered. We'll be here all day. The nearest of the armed men one of the ones in Army Green rather than Secret Service Black, tapped his right ear and said something under his breath. After a long pause, he nodded and called in a much less intimidating voice than the one from the loudspeaker. Just put down the syringe and any visible weapons. Raise your hands and don't make any threatening moves. Much easier, thanks, said John, flashing a grin. At first, I couldn't figure out why he was wasting the energy to show off for the crowd which is probably pretty high-strung and might be trigger-happy. Then I followed his line of sight and had to swallow a smile. Hello, fixed-point camera number four. Hello, ratings like you wouldn't believe, especially with Sean doing his best to keep it interesting. I stepped forward and placed a syringe on the ground. It was safe inside its reinforced plastic bubble, which was safe inside a second plastic bubble. A thin layer of bleach separated them. Anything that leaked out of that syringe would die before it hit the open air. Still moving with extreme care, I put my gun a few feet away, followed by my taser, the pepper spray I keep clipped to my shoulder bag. There are dangerous things out there other than the infected, and most of them hate getting stinging mist in their eyes, and the collapsible baton Sean gave me for my last birthday. Holding up my hands to show that I didn't have anything else, I began to step back into the line. The sunglasses too, ma'am, said the soldier. Oh, for crying, she's got retinal K.A. You have our files from when we came in here. You should know that. Sean's earlier grandstanding was gone, replaced by genuine irritation. The sunglasses, repeated the soldier. It's all right, Sean. He's just doing his job, I said, gritting my teeth and squeezing my eyes closed before tugging off my sunglasses and dropping them. Again, I moved to step back into the line. Please open your eyes, ma'am said the soldier. Are you prepared to provide me with immediate medical attention? I asked, not bothering to conceal my own anger. My name is Georgia Carolyn Mason, 
license number Alpha Foxtrot Bravo 175893. And like my brother said, you have my file. I have advanced retinal Kellis Amberley. If I open my eyes without protection, I risk permanent damage. Again, we're journalists, and I will sue. There was another pause as the soldier conferred with whoever was giving him orders. This one took longer. They were presumably calling up my file and confirming that no one was attempting to use a pair of sunglasses and some big words to conceal my impending conversion. Return to your group, he said finally. I stepped backward, letting Sean's hand on my elbow guide me to a stop. It took nearly ten minutes for Sean and Rick to finish putting their weapons down and move back into place beside me, Sean's hand going to my elbow in case we needed to move. I'm basically blind in daylight without my glasses. Maybe worse, since a real blind person doesn't have to worry about migraines or damaging their retinas just because there's no cloud cover. Under whose authority have you entered these premises? asked the soldier. Senator Peter Ryman, said Rick, speaking with a calm that clearly said he'd done more than his share of dealing with the authorities. I believe it was Miss Mason's call to the senator that you intercepted? The soldier ignored his barb. Senator Ryman is aware of your current location? Senator Ryman gave full consent for this investigation, said Rick, stressing the word senator. I'm sure he'll be very interested in our findings. There was another pause as the soldier conferred. This one was interrupted by a crackle of static, and Senator Ryman's voice came over the loudspeaker saying, Give me that thing. What are your people doing? That's my press corps, and you're acting like they're trespassers on my land. You don't see something wrong with that? Another voice mumbled contrition outside the range of the speaker's microphone, and Senator Ryman boomed. Damn right, you didn't think. You folks all right? Georgia, have you gone mental, girl? Get your glasses back on. You think a blind reporter's going to be much good at uncovering all my dirty little secrets? These nice men told me to take them off, sir, I called. These nice men with all the guns, Sean added. Well, that was very neighborly of them, but now I'm asking you to put them back on. Georgia, you got a spare set? I do, but they're in my back pocket. I'm afraid I'll drop them. Never go out without a spare pair of sunglasses. Preferably three. Of course, that anticipates contamination, not army-induced flash blinding. Sean, get your sister her glasses. She looks naked without them. It's creeping me out. Yes, sir. Sean let go of my elbow and reached into my pocket. A moment later, I felt him pressing a fresh pair of glasses into my palm. I let out a relieved sigh, snapped them open, and slid them on. The glare receded. I opened my eyes. The scene hadn't changed much. Sean and Rick were still flanking me. The armed men were still surrounding us. And fixed point camera number four was still transmitting the whole thing back to the van on a band so low that it would look like white noise to most receivers. Buffy stays on top of what's happening in the field of wireless technology for just that reason. The more she knows, the harder it is to jam our signals. I didn't know whether our higher band cameras were being blocked, probably considering the army, but our low band was going to be fine. Are your eyes all right, Georgia? asked the senator. Sean was giving me a look that asked the same question in fewer words. Absolutely, sir, I called. That wasn't entirely true. My migraine was reaching epic proportions and would probably be with me for days. 
Still, it was close enough for government work. We need to talk when these nice men are done, if you have the time. Of course. There was a tension in the senator's voice that belied his earlier friendliness. I want to know everything. So do we, sir, said Rick. For one thing, we'd very much like to know what's in this syringe. Unfortunately, we lack the facilities to test its contents. The item in question is now in the custody of the United States Army, said the first voice, reclaiming the loudspeaker from Senator Ryman. What it does or does not contain is no longer your concern. I straightened. Sean and Rick did the same. Excuse me, Rick said, but are you saying that potential proof that live Kellis Amberley was used to cause an outbreak on American soil, on the property of a candidate for President of the United States of America, is not the concern of the people? Of, to be specific, three fully licensed and accredited representatives of the American media who located that proof after being invited to perform an investigation that the armed forces had neglected to carry out? The soldiers surrounding us stiffened, and their guns were suddenly at angles that implied that accidents can happen, even on friendly soil. The Secret Service men frowned but remained more relaxed. After all, the original investigation hadn't been under their control. Son, said the original voice, I don't believe you want to imply what you're implying. What, that you're saying we don't get to know what we found, even when we have a worldwide audience that really, really wants to know? Sean asked, folding his arms and sliding into a hip-shot pose that seemed casual, if you didn't know him well enough to see how pissed off he was. That doesn't scream freedom of the press to me. It won't say freedom of the press to our readers, either, I said. Miss, there are things called non-disclosure forms. And you'll find that I can have all three of you signing them before you take step one outside of this property. Well, sir, that might work if we hadn't been streaming our report live all along, I replied. If you don't believe me, hit our website and see for yourself. We have a live feed, a transcript, the works. There was a pause before the sound of muffled swearing drifted through the loudspeaker. Somebody looked online. I allowed myself to smile. If you wanted this kept secret, you shouldn't have left it for the journalists to find. And what I'd like to know, said Senator Ryman, in a voice that was suddenly colder than it had been before, is what gives you the authority to seize materials found on my property without giving full disclosure to me as the owner, especially if said materials may have been involved in the death of my daughter and her grandparents. All sealed hazard zones remain the property of the original owners, who must continue to pay taxes but will not benefit from any natural resources or profitable development of the land, said Rick. I gave him a sidelong look. Smiling serenely, he said, Secor versus the state of Massachusetts, 2024. That aside, covering up evidence is rarely smiled upon in this country, Senator Ryman said. Now I believe what you intended to tell these nice folks was that they were free to leave the zone as soon as they've passed their mandatory blood tests and that you'll be contacting me and them with an analysis of the contents of that syringe given as how they found it, and it was found on my property. Well, Senator Ryman cut him off. I hope you understand that arguing with a senator, especially one who intends to be president, 
if only so he can make you realize what an imbecilic move this was, is not the best way to further your career. There was a longer pause before the first voice spoke again, saying carefully, Well, sir, I think perhaps you've gotten the wrong idea about this situation. I hoped that was the case. I assume my people are free to go? Now, falsely jovial, the first voice said, Of course! My men are just there to escort them to their blood tests. Men, get those citizens out of the field. Sir, yes, sir, barked the soldiers. The Secret Service just looked faintly disgusted with the entire situation. The soldier who asked me to remove my sunglasses consulted with the speaker on his shoulder before saying reluctantly, If the three of you would retrieve your weapons and follow me, I'll take you to the gate for testing and release. Please don't attempt to touch the article you removed from the outbreak site. Rick looked like he was going to contest the phrase, the article, by bringing up the fact that we'd removed more than one thing from the outbreak site. Since I didn't think the cat would be happy to be dissected by army scientists, I kicked Rick in the ankle. He glared at me. I ignored him. He'd thank me later. Or the cat would. Picking our weapons back up took longer than putting them down, since all the safeties had to be checked. The area was certified as clean as was reasonable under the Nguyen Morrison, as clean as any area where you found a syringe full of potential live state Kellis Amberley could be. But shooting yourself in the foot in the vicinity of a recent outbreak still strikes me as an all-around rotten plan. Our escort waited as we armed ourselves and then walked with us in lockstep to the gates, where, I was pleased to see, Steve and two other men from Senator Ryman's security detail were waiting with the blood test units. I caught my breath as I saw the boxes. Leaning over slightly, I nudged Sean with my elbow. He followed my gaze and whistled. Pulling out the big guns there, Steve-o? Steve cracked a thin smile. The senator wants to be certain you're all right. My brother's never been all right, but Rick and I are clean, I said, holding out my right hand. Rock me. My pleasure, he said, and slid the box over my hand. Blood testing kits range from your basic field units, which can be wrong as often as 30% of the time, to the ultra-advanced models, which are so sensitive that they've been known to trigger false positives as they pick up the live Kellis infection harbored by nearly every human on Earth. The most advanced handheld kits are the Apple XH-237s. They cost more than I care to think about, and since they're field kits, they can only be used once without replacing the needle array a process that costs more than most independent journalists make in a year. Once is more than enough. Needles so thin they can barely be felt, hitting at sights on all five fingers, the palm and the wrist. Viral detection and comparison mechanisms so advanced that the Army supposedly bought the right to use several of Apple's patents after the XH-237 came out. Sean and I carry one, only one, in the van. We've had it for five years. We've never felt rich or desperate enough to use it. You only use the XH-237 when you need to be sure, right here and now, with no margin for error. It's a kit for use after actual exposure. The Army didn't wonder what was in that syringe. Somehow, they knew. The implications of that were more than a little disturbing. Steve activated the kit. The lid locked down flattening my palm until I felt the tendon stretch. There was a moment of pain. I tensed. 
but even waiting for it, I couldn't feel the needles as they began darting in and out of my hand and wrist. The lights atop the unit began to cycle, flashing red, then yellow, and finally settling one by one into a steady, unblinking green. The entire process took a matter of seconds. Steve smiled as he dropped the unit into a biohazard bag. Despite all natural justice, you're still clean. That's one more I owe to my guardian angel, I said. A glance to the side showed me that Sean's unit was still cycling, while Rick's test was just getting started. Yeah, we'll stop making that angel work so hard, said Steve, more quietly. I looked back to him, surprised. His expression was grave. You can leave the zone now. Right, I said. I walked to the gate, where two blank-faced men in army green watched me press my forefinger against the much simpler testing pad. Another needle bit deeply, and the light switched from green to red to green again before the gate clicked open. Shaking my stinging hand, I stepped out. Our van and Rick's car had been joined by a third vehicle a large black van with mirrored windows that gleamed with the characteristic patina of armor plating. The top bristled with enough antennae and satellite dishes to make our own relatively modest assortment of transmitters look positively sparse. I stood, considering it, as Sean and Rick made their own exits from the ranch and moved to stand beside me. That looked like our friendly order giver to you? Sean asked. Can't imagine who else it would be, I said. Well, then, let's go up, say hello, and thank them for the welcome. I mean, I was touched. A fruit basket might have been more fitting, but an armed ambush? Definitely a unique way to show that you care. Sean went bounding for the van. Rick and I followed at a more sedate pace. Sean banged on the van door with the heel of his hand. When there was no reply, he balled his hand into a fist and resumed banging, louder. He was just starting to get a good rhythm going when the door was wrenched open by a red-faced general who glared at us with open malice. I don't think he's a music lover, I commented to Rick. He snorted. I don't know what you kids think you're doing, began the general. Pretty sure they were looking for me, said Senator Ryman, stepping up behind him. The general cut off, shifting the force of his glare to the senator, ignoring him. Senator Ryman moved around him and out of the van and clasped Sean's hand. Sean, good to see you're all right. I was a bit concerned when I heard that transmission had been intercepted. We got lucky, Sean said with a grin. Thanks for getting us through the red tape. My pleasure. Senator Ryman looked back at the glowering general. General Bridges, thank you for your concern for the well-being of my press pool. I'll be speaking to your superiors about this operation, and I'll make sure they know your part in it. The general paled. Still grinning, Sean waggled his fingers at him. Nice to meet you, sir. Have a nice day. Turning back to Rick and me, he slung his arms around our shoulders. So, my beloved partners in doing really stupid shit for the edification of the masses, would you say I brought us another 3% today? Nah, that's too conservative, for I am a god among men and a poker into unpokable places. Make that five percent. Truly, you should all worship me in the brightness of my glory. I turned my head enough to glance at the senator. He was still forcing himself to smile, but the expression wasn't reflected in his eyes. 
That was the face of a man under considerable strain. Maybe later, I said. Senator Ryman, did you drive out here? Steve was listening to your report, the senator said. When he heard you'd found something, he called me, and we came out here immediately. Thank you for that, sir, said Rick. If you hadn't, we might have had a few issues to contend with. Permanent blindness, said Sean, looking at me. An all-expenses-paid stay at a government biohazard holding facility, I countered. Sir, did you want us to follow you back to the house and give you the details on what we found? Actually, Georgia, thank you, but no. Right now, I'd like the three of you to return to your hotel and do whatever it is you need to do. Go do your jobs. There was something broken in his expression. I'd thought he looked old at the funeral, but I was wrong. He looked old now. I'll call you in the morning after I've had time to explain to my wife that our daughter's death wasn't an accident and to get very, very drunk. I understand, I said. Looking to Rick, I said, meet us at the hotel. He nodded and turned to head for his car. I didn't want him to ride with us and leave it here. We'd just annoyed the army. A little accidental vandalism wasn't outside the realm of possibility. You'll call if you need anything, sir? You can count on it. The senator's voice was mirthless. So was his expression as he walked over to his government-issue SUV. Steve was already standing next to the passenger side door, holding it open. I couldn't see any other security guards, but I knew they were there. They wouldn't be taking any chances with a presidential candidate this close to a recent hazard zone, especially not after the things we'd just learned. I watched the senator climb into the car. Steve shut the door behind him, nodded toward us, and got into the driver's side, pulling out. Rick's little armored VW followed a few minutes later, rumbling down the road toward civilization. Sean put his hand on my shoulder. George, be okay to get going before the jerks in power come up with a reason to detain us? Other than the cat. Rick took the cat with him, so if there's going to be detention, it'll just be him. Beating erasers, getting electrodes strapped to sensitive parts of his body. Huh? I twisted around to look at him. Right, leaving, yeah, I'm ready to go. You feeling okay? He peered at me. You're pale. I was thinking about Rebecca. You drive? My head hurts too much for it to be safe. Now Sean was really starting to look concerned. I don't like to let him drive when I'm a passenger. His idea of traffic safety is going too fast for the cops to catch up. You sure? I tossed him the keys. Usually, I don't like to be in the car when he's behind the wheel, but usually, I don't have a bunch of dead people, a distraught presidential candidate, and a splitting headache to contend with. Drive. Sean gave me one last worried look and turned to head for the van. I followed and climbed into the passenger seat, closing my eyes. Showing rather uncharacteristic concern for my well-being, Sean opted to drive like a sane human being pulling out at a reasonably sedate 50 or so miles per hour and actually acknowledging that the brakes could be used in situations other than band of zombies blocking the road ahead. I settled deeper into my seat, keeping my eyes closed, and started to review. When I said that the facts on the outbreak at the ranch didn't add up, I'd been half expecting to find some sign of human neglect or possibly of an intruder who kicked off the whole mess and managed to get overlooked in the carnage leaving it to be blamed on the horses. Some small thing that was nonetheless enough to trigger my sense of 
something isn't right here. In short, a blip. A little bit of nothing that didn't change anything. Rebecca Ryman was murdered. This changed everything. We'd known for weeks that Tracy's death, and thus probably the entire Eakley outbreak, although there wasn't anything conclusive that could be used to prove it, wasn't an accident. But we'd had no real proof that it was anything more than some lunatic taking advantage of an opportunity to cause a little chaos. Now, the chances of two random acts of malicious sabotage happening to the same group of people were small to nil. They just got smaller when you stopped to consider that the man who connected both incidents was one of the current frontrunners for the office of President of the United States of America. This was big. This was very, very big. And it was also very, very bad, because whoever was behind it thought nothing of violating Raskin Watts, and that meant they'd already crossed a line most people don't even realize is there. Murder is one thing. This was terrorism. Georgia? Georgia! Sean was shaking my shoulder. I opened my eyes, squinting automatically before I realized that I was facing blessed dimness. Cocking an eyebrow, I turned toward him. He smiled, looking relieved. Hey, you fell asleep. We're here. I was thinking, I said primly, unbuckling my belt before admitting, and maybe also dozing a little bit. It's no big. How's the head? Better. Good. Rick's already here, and your crew is driving him up a wall. He's called three times to find out when we'd be on site. Any word from Buffy? I grabbed my bag and opened the door, sliding out of the car. The parking garage was cool and fairly full. Not surprising. When the senator booked our rooms, he put us in the best hotel in town. Five-star security doesn't come cheap, but it comes with perks like underground parking with motion sensors that keep constant track not only of who's where, but how long they've been there and what they're doing. Stay down here walking in circles for a while, and Sean and I could get a whole new view of hotel security. That might have been appealing if we hadn't already been working a story that was almost too hot to handle. I was starting to miss the days when toying with rich people's security systems was enough to make our front page. She still at Chuck's but she says the servers are prepped to handle whatever load we ask them to and that the fiction section won't have a response for a day or two anyway. We should go ahead and run without her. Sean slammed his door, starting toward the elevators that would let us into the main hotel. She seemed pretty shaken up. Said she'd probably sleep over there tonight. Right. Like most of the senator's men, Chuck was staying at the Embassy Suites Business Resort, a fancy name for a series of pseudo-condos that offered less transitory lodgings than our own high-scale but strictly temporary accommodations. His place came with a kitchen, living room, and a bathtub a normal human being could actually take a bath in. Ours came with a substantial array of cable channels, two queen-sized beds that we'd shoved together on the far side of the room in order to make space for the computers, and a surprisingly robust electrical system. We'd only managed to trip the circuit breakers twice— and for us, that's practically a record. The elevators were protected by a poor man's airlock. The sliding glass doors opened at our approach, then slid closed, sealing us into a small antechamber. A second set of glass doors barred us from the elevator. Being a high-end hotel, they were configured to handle up to four entrances at a time, although most people wouldn't be foolish enough to take advantage of that illusionary convenience. 
If anyone failed to check out as clean, the doors would lock and security would be called. Going into an airlock with someone you weren't certain was uninfected was a form of Russian roulette that few cared to indulge in. Sean took my hand, squeezing before we split up. He took the leftmost station, while I took the one on the right. Hello, honored guests, said the warm, mock maternal voice of the hotel. It was clearly designed to conjure up reassuring thoughts of soft beds, chocolates on your pillow every morning, and no infections ever getting past the sealed glass doors. May I have your room numbers and personal identifications? Sean Philip Mason, said Sean, grimacing. Our usual games worked on the security system at home, but with a setup this advanced, there was too much potential that the computer would mistake messing around for confused about your own identity and call security. Room 419? Georgia Carolyn Mason, I said. Room 419. Welcome, Mr. and Ms. Mason, said the hotel, after a 15-second pause to compare our voice prints to the ones on file. Could I trouble you for a retinal scan? Medical Dispensation Federal Guideline 715A, I said. I have a registered case of non-active retinal Kellis Amberley and would like to request a pattern recognition test in accordance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Hang on while I check your records, said the hotel. It fell silent. I rolled my eyes. Every time, I muttered. It's just trying to be thorough. Every time. It only takes the system a few seconds to find your file. How many times have we gone through this garage now? Maybe they figure that if you were infected, you'd forget that stupid federal guideline. I'd like to forget your stupid... The speaker clicked back on. Ms. Mason, thank you for alerting us to your medical condition. Please look at the screen in front of you. Mr. Mason, please proceed to the line marked on the floor and look at the screen in front of you. Tests will commence simultaneously. Lucky disabled bitch, Sean muttered, placing his toes on the indicated line and opening his eyes wide. My screen flickered, resetting from scanning to text mode and displayed a block of text. I cleared my throat and read, Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow. Please hold, said the hotel. The black plastic doors on two of the test panels slid upward, revealing the metal testing panels. Mr. and Ms. Mason, please place your hands on the diagnostic panels. Don't you love how it doesn't tell us whether we've passed or not? said Sean, putting his hand flat on the first panel. They could be calling security right now and just stalling us until they get here. Gee, thanks, Mr. Optimism, I said. I pressed my hand to the second panel, feeling the brief sting of a needle against the base of my palm. Got any other cheery thoughts? Well, if Rick's frantic, Mihir may have experienced spontaneous human combustion by now. I hope somebody's got it on film. Mr. and Ms. Mason, welcome to the Parish Weston Suites. We hope you enjoy your stay. Please let us know if there's anything we can do to make you more comfortable. The hotel finished delivering its sugar-soaked greeting as the doors between us and the elevator slid open, allowing us to proceed. They closed as soon as we were through, locking us out of the airlock. Thank you for choosing the Weston family of hotels. Same to you.
I said, and hit the call button. The science of moving people from point to point has improved over the past 20 years, since the infected have done a lot to discourage the once natural human desire to linger alone in dark, poorly defended places. The Weston had nine elevators sharing a series of corridors and conduits. They were controlled by a central computer that spent the day dispatching them along the most efficient, collision-free routes. It took less than five seconds for the elevator doors to open. It promptly skidded sideways 20 yards once we were inside, beginning the rapid ascent to the elevator access closest to our hotel rooms. Priorities? asked Sean as the elevator shot upward. Clear the message boards, perform a general status check-in, and debrief, I said. I'll get my crew online if I have to haul them out of their beds. You get yours. What about the fictionals? Rick can handle them. If Buffy wanted to skip out on what might be the most important scoop the two more realistic sections of the site ever had, that was her prerogative. But she'd have to cope with us rousing her junior bloggers. Her department didn't get to hang up the blackout curtains just because she wanted to get laid. Sean grinned. Can I tell him? The elevator slowed as it approached our floor, dumping inertia at such a rate that you'd never guess it had just been traveling in excess of 20 miles per hour. The doors slid open with a ding. If it'll make you happy, by all means, tell him. Make sure he knows Magdalene is his to abuse. That should help things a bit. I approached our room, pressing my thumb against the access panel. It flashed green, acknowledging my right to enter. Sean opened the door and shoved past me, leaving me standing in the hall. I sighed. After you. Don't mind if I do, he called back. Rolling my eyes, I followed him. When the senator booked our rooms, he gave us a pair of adjoining suites, assuming Buffy and I would take one room while Sean and Rick took the other. It didn't work out that way. Buffy refuses to sleep without a nightlight, which I can't tolerate for obvious reasons. Sean tends to respond violently to unexpected noises in the night. So Rick and Buffy wound up in one room, while Sean and I were in the other with all the computers turning it into our temporary headquarters. Rick was at a terminal when we came in. The cat he'd saved was curled up in his lap, purring. I'd be purring, too, if I'd just eaten the better part of a tuna fish sandwich from room service. Lucky cat, I commented. Oh, thank God, said Rick, looking up. Everyone wants to know what we're doing next. The raw footage has been downloaded so many times I thought we were going to blow up one of the servers. Mahir won't stop pinging me and the message boards are... I interrupted him with a wave of my hand. What are the numbers like, Rick? Ah. He recovered quickly, glancing to the top of his screen. Up 7% in all markets. Sean whistled. Wow. We should uncover terrorist conspiracies more often. We haven't uncovered it yet. We've just found out that it existed, I said, and sat down at my own terminal. Hit your boards and start pinging your people. We're doing the debrief in 30, and then we start to edit and recap for the evening reports. On it. Sean grabbed a chair and looked to Rick, adding carelessly, You get to ping the fictionals. Buffy isn't coming. Oh, great, said Rick, wrinkling his nose. He was already pulling up his IM list as he asked, why do I get the honor? Because you kept the cat, I said. Kick Magdalene. She'll help you. Hush now. Mommy's working. He snorted but turned back to his computer. Sean and I did the same. 
It took 30 minutes to beat the message boards into something that looked less like a combination of a forest fire and a conspiracy theorist convention. No one had quite reached the point of linking the outbreak at the Ryman family ranch with the initial release of the Kellis cure and the death of JFK, but they'd have gotten there before much longer. As I'd expected, everyone in my department was already up, online, and doing their best to moderate the mess. And from the crossover threads, it looked like the same was mostly true for the Irwins and the fictionals. Behold the power of the truth. When people see its shadow on the wall, they don't want to take the time to look away. My boards are clear, Sean called. Ready when you are. Same, Rick said. The chat relay is humming nicely and the volunteer mods have things under control. Excellent. Since the volunteers weren't technically employees of After the End Times, they didn't need to be included in the debriefing. I pulled up the employee chat and typed, Log on now. Turn on your conference functions, boys. We're about to see the swarm. Logged on. Logged on. Logging on now. Room 11, maximum security. Our conferencing system is half the standard Microsoft Windows Virtue Party setup, allowing people to share real-time socialization through webcams and a common server, and half Buffy's own homebrew. All 11 of our channels have varying degrees of security, from the base 3, which clever readers can break into with relative ease, to 11, which has never been successfully violated. Not even by the people we've paid to try. Windows began spawning on my screen, each containing the small, pixelated face of one of our bloggers. Sean, Rick, and I appeared first, followed almost immediately by Mahir, who looked like he hadn't slept in several days. Alric, and Susie, the girl I'd hired to replace Bex after she jumped ship to the Irwins. Bex herself appeared a moment later, along with a trio of Irwins I only vaguely recognized. Five more faces followed them as the fictionals logged in. Three of them were sharing one screen, proving that Magdalene was hosting another of her infamous grindhouse parties. When all was said and done, we were only missing Dave one of Sean's Irwins, who was on a field trip in the wilds of Alaska and probably couldn't get to a conferencing setup, and Buffy. I looked from face to face, studying their expressions while the initial quiet still held. They looked worried, confused, curious, even excited, but none of them looked like they had anything to hide. This was our team. This was what we had to work with, and we had a conspiracy to break. All right, everyone, I said. This afternoon, we led an expedition onto the Ryman family ranch. You've seen the footage by now. If you haven't, please log out, watch it, and come back. Here's the topic at hand. What happens next? Following the campaign of Congresswoman Kirsten Wagman taught me one important fact about politics. Sometimes, style can matter more than substance. Let's face it. We're not talking about one of the great political minds of our age. We're talking about a former stripper who got her seat in Congress by promising her constituency that for every thousand votes she got, she'd wear something else inappropriate to the floor. Judging by the landslide of that first win, we'll be seeing congressional hearings graced by a lady in lingerie long after the end of her term in office. But she didn't win. Despite the general malaise of the voting public and their willingness to put interesting above good for them, in nine out of ten cases, Wagman's run for the presidential seat 
proved to be the tenth event. Why was this? I place the blame partially on Senator Peter Ryman, a man who proved that style and substance can be combined to the benefit of both, and, more important, that integrity is not actually dead. I also blame After the End Times and Georgia Mason for their willingness to get into the campaign in a way that has seldom been seen in this century. Their reporting hasn't been impartial or perfect, but it has something we see even more rarely than integrity. It has heart. It is with great joy that I report that the youth of America aren't actually riddled with ennui and apathy, that the truth hasn't been fully forsaken for the merely entertaining, that there's a place in this world for reporting the facts as accurately and concisely as possible and allowing people to draw their own conclusions. I've never been more proud of finding a place where I can belong. From another point of true, the blog of Richard Cousins, March 18th, 2040. Chapter 16 The discussion lasted late into the morning. People dropped off the conference one by one until it was just Rick, Mahir, and me. Sean had long since passed out at his terminal, leaning back in his chair and snoring. Rick's newly acquired cat was curled up on his chest with its tail tucked over its nose, occasionally opening an eye to glare at the room. I don't like this, Georgia, said Mahir worry and exhaustion blurring his normally crisp English accent into something much softer. He ran his hand through his hair. He'd been doing that for hours, and it was sticking up in all directions. The situation is starting to sound like it isn't exactly safe. You're on the other side of the planet, Mahir. I don't think you're going to get hurt. It's not my safety I'm concerned with here. Are you sure you want to continue to pursue the situation? I'd rather not be reporting your obituary. He sounded so anxious that I couldn't be angry with him. Mahir's a good guy. A little conservative and generally inclined to avoid taking risks, but a good guy and a fabulous newsie. If he couldn't understand why we were pursuing things, I just needed to make them clearer. Everyone who died at the ranch was murdered, I said. His image winced. The people who died in Eakley were murdered, too, and that set of casualties nearly included me and Sean. There's something connected to this candidate and this campaign that someone wants to see destroyed, and they're not above causing a little collateral damage. You want to know if we want to continue pursuing the situation. I want to know what makes you think we can afford not to. Mahir smiled, reaching up to adjust his glasses. I was assuming you'd say something along those lines, but I wanted to be certain of it. Rest assured that you have the full support of everyone here. If there's anything I can do, all you have to do is say so. You know, Mahir, your support is something I never worry about. I may have something for you very soon, I said. Although if you play test the boss again, I may kill you. For now, it's almost four in the morning, and the senator's going to want to talk before much longer. I hereby declare this discussion over. Rick, Mahir, thanks for sticking it out. Anytime, said Rick, voice echoing as the relay raced to keep up with him. His window blinked out. Cheers, said Mahir, and logged off. I closed the conference, standing. I was so stiff that it felt like my spine had been replaced with carved teak, and my eyes were burning. I removed my sunglasses and rubbed my face, 
trying to relieve some of the tension. It wasn't working. Bed? asked Rick. I nodded. Don't take this the wrong way, but get out. I know. Wake me when it's time to go? I will. Good night, Georgia. Sleep well. Rick opened the adjoining door with a faint creak. I opened my eyes, turning to wave as he slipped out. You too, Rick, I said. Then the door was closed, and I staggered to the bed, shedding clothes as I went. When I was down to t-shirt and panties, I abandoned the notion of looking for nightclothes and crawled under the covers, closing my eyes again as I sank into blessed darkness. Georgia. The voice was vaguely familiar. I pondered its familiarity for a moment and then rolled over, deciding I didn't need to give a damn. Georgia. There was more anxiousness to the voice this time. Maybe I needed to pay attention to it. It wasn't the sort of anxiousness that said, pay attention or something is going to eat your face. I made a faint grumbling noise and didn't open my eyes. George, if you don't wake up right now, I'm going to pour ice water over your head. The statement was made in an entirely matter-of-fact manner. It wasn't a threat, merely a comment. You won't like that. I won't care. I licked my lips to moisten them and croaked. I hate you. Where's the love? There's the love. Now get out of bed. Senator Ryman called. You slept through me talking to him for, like, the whole time I was getting dressed. How late were you up last night? I opened my eyes and squinted at Sean. He was wearing one of his bulkier shirts, the ones he puts on only when he needs to cover body armor. I pushed myself unsteadily into a sitting position, holding out my left hand. He dropped my sunglasses into it. Sometime around four? What time is it? Almost nine. Oh my God, kill me now, I moaned and rose, shuffling toward the bathroom. The hotel had been happy to switch our standard light bulbs for lower wattage soft lights that wouldn't hurt my eyes, but management didn't have a way to swap out the built-in bathroom fluorescence. What time will he be here, or are we going to him? You've got 15 minutes. Steve's picking us up. There was a distinctly amused note in Sean's voice as he relayed this piece of information. Buffy's pissed. She and Chuck are already with the Ryman's, and she didn't have spare clothes with her. I got the world's angriest text message while I was on the phone. She wants to have her night on the town. She can take the walk of shame the day after. The bathroom lights were searingly bright, even through my sunglasses. I looked in the mirror and groaned. I look like death. Cute journalistic death? Just plain death. I was washed out and sallow, and it had been too long since I had my hair trimmed. It was getting long enough to tangle. My head wasn't throbbing, but it would be soon. The light seeping in around the edges of my glasses was telling me that. There was a way I could avoid that, if I was willing to deal with the inconvenience. Muttering under my breath, I grabbed my contact case off the sink and clicked the bathroom lights off. Even with as little as I voluntarily wear my contacts, the nature of my medical condition means I need to be able to put them in despite near or total darkness. Doing otherwise means risking retinal scarring, and I have things to do that require having eyes. Sean's feet shuffled on the carpet as he crossed to the bathroom door. George? What are you doing in there in the dark? Putting in my contacts. I blinked and felt the first slide into place. Find me clean clothes. 
What do I look like, your maid? Nah, she's way better looking. I blinked my second lens into place before clicking the bathroom lights back on. Harsh, white light flooded the room. I squinted slightly, studying my blue-eyed reflection before I turned to the important matter of brushing my hair and teeth. Any time now, Sean. I can't go see the senator in my undies. Henris Thompson would go see a senator in his undies. Or your undies, for that matter. Hunter S. Thompson was too stoned to know what undies were. The bathroom door opened. I turned, catching the clothes Sean pitched in my direction. There. Now was that so hard? Go grab our gear. I'll be there in a second. Next time I'll let you sleep in, he grumbled, backing up. And those contacts make you look like an alien. I know, I said, and shut the bathroom door. Ten minutes later, Sean and I were back in the elevator. I was running the final diagnostic checks on my equipment, and Sean was doing the same, fingers tapping over the screen of his PDA in a series of increasingly complex patterns. This wasn't a field op, and odds were that Senator Ryman would request a privacy screen on anything we recorded, but that didn't matter. Leaving the hotel without our cameras and recorders set and primed to go would have been like leaving naked, and neither of us was up for that. Some of my cameras were starting to show signs of misalignment, and the memory in my watch was almost full. Making a note to have Buffy take a look at things, I stepped out into the lobby with Sean half a beat behind. Thank you for choosing the Parish Weston Suites as your home away from home, the hotel chirped as we approached the airlock. We know you have many choices, and we are grateful for your business. Please place your right hand. That's enough, I said slamming my palm down on the test panel as soon as it finished opening. Getting out of the hotel requires nothing but a clean blood test. They don't care if you want to go into massive viral amplification, as long as you have the common courtesy to do it outside, preferably after you've paid your bills. Sean and I checked clean, and the outer doors slid open, allowing us to exit while the automated voice of the hotel chirped pleasantries to an empty antechamber. It was cold and bright outside. A perfect Wisconsin day. There was only one car idling in the passenger pickup lane. Think that's us? asked Sean. That, or there's a pro wrestling convention in town, I said. We started toward it. When the senator sends a car, he doesn't screw around. Our intended transport was a solid-looking black SUV. The windows were tinted, and I would have placed bets on their being bulletproof. Possessing a personal fortune has its perks. Sean nudged me and whistled, pointing to the insect gunner's windows on the back windshield. Even Mom doesn't have those, he murmured. I'm sure she'll be jealous, I said. Steve was standing by the rear passenger door, holding it open for us. As much, I'm sure, as a reminder that we weren't allowed to ride up front as a gesture of civility. His eyebrows rose when he saw my contacts. To his credit, he didn't comment on them. He just held the door open a little wider. Sean, Georgia. I see you drew the short straw this morning, I said, hoisting myself into the SUV and scooting over to make room for Sean. Rick was already inside. I offered him a small wave, which he dolefully returned. The senator prefers this meeting be conducted in a more secure location and thought you might appreciate the chance to take a break from driving. Steve glanced toward the parking garage and tapped his earpiece. I frowned. They thought our van had been bugged? It was possible. 
Without Buffy running a full diagnostic on our systems, there was no way to tell, but it seemed a little paranoid. I stopped that line of thought. Rebecca Ryman was murdered by someone who was willing to use live state Kellis Amberley in an uncontrolled situation to achieve their goals, whatever they happened to be. There was no such thing as paranoia anymore. Looking good, Steve-O, said Sean, slapping the security agent a high five as he slid into the car. One day you're going to call me that and I'm going to punch your head clean off, said Steve and slammed the door. Sean laughed. The sound of Steve's footsteps moved around the car where the driver's side door opened and closed again. A sheet of one-way glass separated the front seat from the passenger compartment. He could see us, but we couldn't see him. How encouraging. He probably means that, you know, said Rick. As long as I get it on film, I'll be happy, said Sean. Folding his hands behind his head, he stretched out in the seat and propped his feet in my lap. This is awesome. We're being driven to a clandestine meeting with a man who wants to be president. Anybody else feel like James Bond right now? Too female, I said. Too aware of the fact that I'm not immortal, said Rick. You realize you're both wimps, right? Scolded Sean. Yes, but we're wimps with a life expectancy, and I have to respect that, I replied. I'll trade my life expectancy for a cup of coffee in a nice dark room, said Rick. I craned my head to look at him. He was rubbing his eyes. He looked groggy, and I wasn't entirely sure he'd changed his shirt. Didn't sleep well? Cat kept me up all night, he said. Dropping his hands from his face, he did a classic double-take, eyes going wide. Georgia? What's wrong with your eyes? Contacts, I said. They irritate the shit out of my eyes. But at least this way, I can't have some hopped-up asshole with a megaphone take my sunglasses away. He tilted his head, studying me. That really upset you, didn't it? What? You mean the part where the nice guys with the big guns demonstrated over a live feed that I can be incapacitated by taking my glasses away? That didn't bother me a bit. I shoved Sean's feet off my lap. Sit up. This isn't a cruise. Behold the bitchiness of George when she hasn't had her beauty sleep, said Sean, pushing himself upright. Twisting around to face Rick, he said, So, Ricky boy, you seen your ratings? Because I have some ideas to spice things up. Let's start with nudity. And he was off and running, offering a plethora of insane suggestions as my overwhelmed fellow newsy looked on in dismay. Grateful for the save, I pulled out my PDA and started scrolling through the headlines. There had been another outbreak in San Diego. That city hasn't had a break since the rising, when bad timing and worse luck caused amplification to occur during the annual International Comet Convention an event that drew over 120,000 attendees. The results were less than pleasant. In other news, Congresswoman Wagman had been asked to leave the floor for showing up in an outfit more suitable for a Vegas showgirl. Another nutcase in Hong Kong was claiming that Kellis Amberley had been engineered specifically to undermine those religions that depended on ancestor worship. In other words, a pretty quiet day if you cut out the headlines that directly referenced or connected back to our expedition to the Ryman family ranch. At a rough glance, I estimated that 60 to 70 percent of the news sites were carrying us as their top story. Us. I tapped my ear cuff. There was a pause as the connection was made. Then Buffy was on the line, sounding irritated from her first curt, Go. 
Buffy, I need numbers. We're everywhere, and I have to know whether I'm hauling Mahir's ass out of bed to start manning the walls. Sec. We all have live feeds, but Buffy's are the most up-to-date. I need special equipment to get the data she pulls as a matter of course. That's why she's the techie, while I'm just in charge. There was a long pause. Longer than I'm used to. Buffy can normally give me numbers in a matter of seconds. Buffy? Sean stopped talking as both he and Rick turned toward me. I held up my hand, signaling for quiet. Are you still there? I'm here. I, uh, I think I'm here anyway. She sounded a little bit scared. Georgia? We're number one, Georgia. We have more current hits, references, linkbacks, and quotations than any other news site on the planet. My entire body seemed to go numb. I licked my lips. Say that again. Number one, Georgia. You're sure? I'm positive. There was a pause before she said plaintively, What do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do now? Wake them up, Buffy. Call your people and wake them up. Senator Ryman, we're on our way. Ignore him. Get your people on the phone and get them on the damn site. I hit my ear cuff to kill the connection and twisted to face the others. Sean, start dialing. I want your entire team updating ten minutes ago, and that means Dave, too. They have phones in Alaska. Rick, check your inbox. Start clearing out any merchandise queries that got routed to you by mistake. George, what? We have the ratings, Sean. We have the top slot. I nodded at his stunned expression. Yeah. Now get them on the phone. The rest of the ride was a blur of telephone calls, text messages, emails, and rousing person after person out of their well-earned rest in order to throw them back into the fray. Most of my crew was too disoriented by lack of sleep to argue when I ordered them out of bed and to their terminals, where the freshly updated site message that appeared as each of them logged in read, Number one new site in the world, in flashing red letters. If that wasn't enough to jolt them into consciousness, they were probably already dead. Mahir put it best. When I called him, he responded first with stunned silence, then by swearing a blue streak and hanging up on me so he could get to his computer. Hell of a man who keeps his priorities straight. All three of us were so engrossed in work that we missed the rest of the drive to the senator's secure location. I was in the process of giving Alric and Susie their marching orders when the car doors opened, filling the back seat with light and nearly spilling Sean, whose feet were braced against the left-hand passenger window, into the parking lot. We're here, said Steve. The three of us continued frantically typing on our various handheld PDAs and output screens. Rick was managing to type on his palm and his phone at the same time, using his thumbs for data entry. Steve frowned. Uh, guys? We're here. The senator is waiting. Sack, I said, freeing one hand long enough to hold it up to him in the universal stop gesture. While he gaped at me, I finished tapping out the instructions Alric and Susie would need to keep their portions of the site functional until I could get back online. I wasn't confident they'd survive the day, but Mahir would back them up as much as he could, and he had most of the same administrative permissions as Sean and I. It would have to do. I lowered my PDA. All right, where do we go? You sure you don't need a few more minutes to check your email or anything? I glanced to Sean. I think he's making fun of us. I think you're right, Sean said, and slid out of the car, offering me his hands. Ignore the Philistine and get out of here. We have government officials to annoy.
We were parked in a covered garage less than a quarter the size of the one at the hotel. The lights were bright enough that I hadn't even noticed the transition from real to artificial illumination. I used Sean's hands for balance as I stepped out of the car, sliding my PDA into the carrier on my belt before turning to help Rick down. He glanced to me and I nodded. That was his cue. Rick goggled, sparing Sean and me the trouble of playing hick before asking, Where are we? The senator considers it wise to keep a second local residence for meetings of a sensitive nature, said Steve. I gave him a sharp look. Or meetings with people who don't feel comfortable being around the horses? I'm sure I wouldn't be qualified to speak to that, Miss Mason. That meant yes. Fine. Where do we go? This way, please. He led us to a steel-reinforced door where I was surprised to see a lack of the customary blood-testing units. There also wasn't a doorknob. Sean and I exchanged a glance as Steve tapped his earpiece, saying, Base, we're at the west door. Release. Something clicked, and a light above the doorframe flashed green. The door slid open. There was a soft outrush of air as the hall on the other side was revealed. It was a positive pressure zone, designed to force air out rather than allowing it to flow in and cause a contamination risk. No wonder they don't need blood tests. I followed Steve into the hall with Sean and Rick close behind me. The hallway door slid shut behind us. The lights in the hall were bright enough to hurt my eyes even through my contacts. I squinted, stepping closer to Sean and letting the blurry motion of his silhouette guide me toward the door at the far end, where two more guards waited, each holding a large plastic tray. The senator would prefer this meeting not be broadcast or recorded, Steve said. If you would please place all non-essential equipment here, it will be returned to you at the end of the meeting. You have got to be kidding, said Sean. I don't think he is, I said, turning towards Steve. You want us to walk in there naked? We can put up an EMP privacy screen if you don't think we can trust you to leave your toys behind, said Steve. His tone was mild, but the tightness around his eyes said he knew exactly how much she was asking, and he wasn't happy about it. The choice is yours. An EMP privacy screen sufficient to secure an area would fry half of our more sensitive recording devices and could do serious damage to the rest. Replacing that much gear would kill our operating budget for months, if not the rest of the year. Grumbling, all three of us began stripping off our equipment, and in my case, jewelry, and dumping it into the trays. The guards stood there impassively, waiting for us to finish. Dropping my ear cuff into my hand, I looked to Steve. So, do we have to be totally radio silent, or are we allowed to keep our phones? You can keep any private data recorders that will be used solely for the purposes of taking personal notes, and any telecommunications devices that can be deactivated for the duration of the meeting. Swell. I dropped my ear cuff into the tray and slipped my PDA back onto my belt. I felt strangely exposed without my small army of microphones, cameras, and data storage devices as if the world held a lot more dangers than it had a few minutes before. How's Buffy taking this? Steve smirked. They said they wouldn't cut her off until we got here. So you're telling me your men are in there right now trying to take Buffy's equipment away? Sean said, and looked toward the closed door with a sort of wary fascination. Maybe we should stay out here. It's a lot safer. Unfortunately, Senator Ryman and Governor Tate are waiting for you. Steve nodded to the guards. 
The one on the left leaned over and took the tray from the one on the right who opened the door. There was another inrush of air as the hallway's positive pressure zone met the house beyond. If you don't mind. Tate's here? My eyes narrowed. What do you mean Tate's here? Steve walked through the open door without answering me. Eyes still narrowed, I shook my head and followed, with Rick and Sean close behind me. Once the last of us was through the door, the guards closed it, remaining outside in the garage. What? muttered Sean. No blood test? Guess they figure there's no point, said Rick. I kept my mouth shut, busying myself with studying the house. The decor was simple but refined, all clean, sleek lines and well-lit corners. Overhead lighting provided a steady level of illumination, with no visible dimmer switches or controls. It was either light or darkness, with nothing in between. It was less glaring than the hallway lights, but I still grimaced. The lights answered one question. This was nothing but a show home, intended for meetings and parties, but never for living in. Emily, with her retinal K.A., couldn't possibly have lived here. There were no windows. We walked through the house to the dining room, where a brisk-looking security guard in a black suit was finishing the process of taking Buffy's equipment away. If looks could kill, the way she was glaring would have left us with an outbreak on our hands. We about done here, Paul? asked Steve. The guard, Paul, shot him a harried look and nodded. Miss Maisonnier has been quite cooperative. Liar said Sean so close to my ear that I don't think anyone else heard him. Buffy, I said, swallowing my smile. What's the sit rep? Chuck's in there with the senator and Mrs. Ryman, Buffy said, as she continued glaring at Paul. Governor Tate just got here. They didn't tell me he was coming or I would have warned you. It's all right. I shook my head. He's a part of this campaign now, like it or not. I looked to Steve. We're ready when you are. This way, please. He opened a door on the far side of the room, holding it as the four of us filed through. When Rick stepped through the doorway, Steve closed the door behind him. The lock slid home with a final sounding click. We were standing in a sitting room decorated in stark blacks and whites, with stylized white art deco couches flanked by glossy black end tables and carefully arranged spotlight lamps illuminating tiny pieces of art that probably cost more individually than our operating budget for the year. The only spots of color came from the faces of the senator and his wife, both red-cheeked from crying, and from Governor Tate, who was wearing a tailored dark blue suit that screamed money in a politely subdued way. All three turned toward us, and the senator rose, tugging his suit jacket down before offering his hand to Sean. Sean shook it. I looked past them to where Governor Tate was endeavoring to cover his own expression of disgust. Thank you for coming, said Senator Ryman, releasing Sean's hand and reclaiming his seat. Emily's eyes were hidden behind mirrored sunglasses. She mustered a tiny smile as she folded her hands around her husband's. He tugged her closer, seemingly unaware of the gesture. He didn't have much strength to offer, but what he did have was hers without question. That's the kind of guy we need running this country. We had a choice, asked Sean, dropping onto one of the couches and sprawling with intentional untidiness. He'd clearly caught Tate's look, too. That, combined with the confiscation of our equipment, had him primed and ready to offend. Good. 
It's always easier to seem reasonable when my brother is providing a handy contrast. We were glad to come, Senator, but I'm afraid I don't understand why your equipment had to be confiscated. Some of those cameras are delicate, and I'm not comfortable leaving them with anyone who's not a member of our staff. If we'd been informed of the need for privacy before we left the hotel, we could have left them behind. Tate snorted. You mean you could have brought cameras that were easier to hide? Actually, Governor, I meant what I said. I turned to look him in the eyes, unblinking. One of the few handy side effects of retinal KA is the lack of a need for repeated ocular lubrication, or, in layman's terms, I don't blink much. Being stared at by someone with retinal KA can be very unnerving, at least according to Sean. I'm aware that you're a recent addition to this campaign and may not be used to working with members of the reputable news media. We can make allowances for that. I would, however, appreciate it if you could also keep in mind that we've been working with Senator Ryman and his staff for some time now, and not once have we broadcast or distributed material we were asked to withhold. Now, I'll admit that part of that can be attributed to the fact that we've never been asked to withhold information without good reason. I still believe it establishes that we're capable of behaving ourselves with tact propriety, and above all, the patriotism inherent in the duty of serving as media court of a major political campaign. Well, Missy, said Tate, meeting my eyes without a flinch. Those are a lot of pretty words, but I hope you'll forgive me if I've been burned a few times by the media before landing here, and I prefer to proceed with caution. Well, sir, I replied, you'll forgive me if I believe that our track record should count for something given that we've never been anything other than appropriate in our dealings with sensitive information. Further, if I might be so bold, there's a chance that the media has burned you so many times because you persist in treating honest people like they're waiting for the opportunity to be criminals. For a man who says he's standing for American values, you're sure devoted to the suppression of media freedom. The governor's eyes narrowed. Now see here, young lady. My name is neither young lady nor missy, and I think I see all too well. I turned to the others. Sean, get up. Rick, Buffy, come on. Where do you think you're going? Demanded Tate. Back to our hotel, where we'll cheerfully explain to our many readers that we have no news for them today because, after uncovering an act of criminal bioterrorism on United States soil, we were unable to attend a conference with our candidate since, oopsie, the new man on the ticket thinks the media can't be trusted. I smiled. Won't that be fun? Georgia, sit down, said Senator Ryman. He sounded exhausted. That was no surprise. You too, Sean, Buffy, Rick, you can sit or not as you prefer. And you, David, will please try to remember that these folks are the only ones who cared enough to really look at the ranch rather than writing it off as a simple outbreak. You'll be courteous, and we'll trust them to keep on being as they have been, perfectly reasonable and willing to work with us. There's still the matter of our recording devices, Senator, I said, staying still. That was a bad decision, and I'm sorry. That being said, I'm going to stand by it for now and ask that you allow me to conduct this meeting. I raised an eyebrow. And what do we get? Governor Tate sputtered, growing red in the face. Senator Ryman waved him down, looking at me squarely, and said, An exclusive interview with me. No editing regarding what you found yesterday. No deal, said Sean. The senator and I looked toward him, surprised. My brother was sitting up, suddenly alert. No offense, sir, but you're not that impressive anymore. 
Our readers know you. They respect you. And if you keep on the way you have been, they'll elect you. But they won't be razzled and dazzled by the fact that we managed to get you. The senator ran a hand through his hair, looking pained. What do you want, Sean? Her. He nodded to Emily. We want an interview with her. Absolutely not. Yes, said Emily. Her voice was weary but clear. I'm happy to. I only wanted to be left out of things for the sake of... for the sake of my family. Her voice broke. That's not a concern anymore. You aren't worried about the safety of your younger daughters? I asked. They aren't at the ranch. They have the best security in the world. They're safe. If I can prevent people from going out and killing other people's pets because of what happened to Rebecca and my parents, well, she managed to muster a smile. It'll be worth the strain. Senator Ryman reached for her arm. Emily. Accepted. I sat next to Sean, ignoring the senator's stricken look. We'll be setting up interview times with both of you later this afternoon. Now, I assume there's a reason we're all here? The senator would like to discuss the tragic evidence of tampering that your crew discovered at his family ranch, Miss Mason, said Governor Tate smoothly, all traces of his earlier aggravation gone. The man was a natural politician. I had to give him that, even if I wasn't willing to let him have anything else if I could help it. Now, I realize this might seem as if I'm questioning your journalistic integrity. Hey, Rick, ever notice how dickheads only say that when they're about to question your journalistic integrity? Asked Sean. Oddly, yes, Rick said. It's like a nervous twitch. The governor shot them a glare and continued. Please understand that I don't ask this for personal reasons, but simply because we need to determine the truth of the situation. I looked at him. You're wondering if somehow to drive up our ratings, we smuggled evidence of terrorist activity through the checkpoints and managed to plant it while our own cameras were broadcasting over a live feed to an audience that can be conservatively estimated, judging by yesterday's ratings, as being somewhere in the millions. I wasn't intending to put it in quite those. I held up my hand to cut him off, turning to face Senator Ryman. Senator, you know I'll ask this again when I'm permitted to film the exchange, but in the interest of killing this line of questioning here and now, I'm going to sacrifice spontaneity in favor of clarity. Have the lab results come back on the syringe? Yes, Georgia, they have, said the senator, jaw set in a hard line. Can you tell us what those results were? I don't see how that's relevant to the original question, said Tate. Senator, I said. The contents of the syringe were determined to be a suspension of 95% live state virus, common designation Kellis Amberley or KA, isolated an iodized saline solution the senator said. We're waiting on additional information. Like the viral substrain? I asked. Right. Governor Tate, my crew and I were several hundred miles from the ranch at the time of the outbreak at the Ryman family home, and security records will support this. Further, with the exception of Mr. Cousins, we were all traveling with the campaign for months prior to the outbreak. Mr. Cousins was traveling with the convoy of Congresswoman Wagman. Who should be able to vouch for his whereabouts? I'm not a virologist, but I'm fairly sure it takes special equipment to isolate the live virus without risking infection. And that said, special equipment would not only be delicate, but would require special training to operate and maintain. Do you see where I'm going with this, Governor Tate, or should we draw you a diagram? She's right, said Emily. Governor Tate looked toward her, eyes narrowing. She met his gaze and said, 
I took virology courses at college. They're required for an animal husbandry degree. What Peter is describing is lab quality. You'd need a clean room and excellent biohazard protections just to isolate it, much less load it into any sort of a... a weapon. They just didn't have the resources. You'd need something a lot more secure than a pressure cooker in a hotel room to do something like this. Furthermore, I said, cutting Tate off before he could speak again, even assuming we could somehow come up with the resources to do something like this and had some sort of silent partner we could get out to the ranch while we were occupied at the convention, we'd have to be idiots to turn around and be the ones who found the proof that the outbreak was man-made. So now that you've insulted our patriotism, our sanity, and our intelligence, how about we move on? Governor Tate leaned back in his seat, eyes narrowed. I kept my own eyes wide, playing off just how disturbing the unbroken, too-too blue of my contacts is to most humans. He looked away first. Satisfied, I turned toward Senator Ryman. So now that we've had that little throwdown, what else did you feel needed to be handled behind a firewall? To his credit, he looked embarrassed as he said, We were wondering, given the circumstances, if, well, if it might not be the best idea for the four of you to go home. I gaped at him. Rick did the same. Buffy, who had been uncharacteristically silent through the entire exchange with Tate, continued staring at her hands. In the end, it was Sean who spoke, slamming his feet flat against the floor as he stood up and demanded, are you people fucking insane? Sean, said Senator Ryman, raising both hands in a placating gesture. If you'd just be reasonable here. Pardon me, sir, but you gave up your right to ask me to do that when you suggested we run out on the story, Sean snapped, voice tight. Out of everyone in the room, I was the only one who understood how much that degree of self-control was costing him. Sean's temper doesn't show itself often, but when it does... Duck and cover is the best approach. Don't you think we owe it to our viewers to finish what we started? We signed up for the long haul. We don't get to cut our losses and run as soon as things start getting a little bit uncomfortable. My daughter died, Sean, said the senator. He was suddenly on his feet, leaving Emily abandoned and looking lost on the couch. Do you understand that this is more than a story to us? Rebecca is dead. Telling the truth isn't going to bring her back to life. Neither is telling a lie, said Rick, his tone so calm that it seemed almost out of place among the heated exchanges. We all turned to look at him. His head was up, his expression clear, as he looked from Senator Ryman to Governor Tate. Senator, believe me when I say I understand your pain more than you can know. And I understand that concern is making you listen to bad advice. He glanced toward the governor, who had the grace to redden and scowl. That says we're civilians, and you should get us out of harm's way. But, sir, it's too late for that. This is news. If you send us away, you're just going to get other reporters sniffing around looking for a story. Reporters who, if you'll allow me to beg your pardon, you can't control. Now, we have a working relationship, and you know we'll listen to you. Can you honestly expect that from anyone else who might be attracted to this scoop? I think we should go, said Buffy. I turned to her, eyes going wide. Still looking at her hands, she continued, We didn't sign up for this. Maybe Rick's right and maybe other people will come, but who cares? She glanced up through the fringe of her hair and licked her lips. If they want to come and die, that's their problem. But I'm scared, and he's right. We shouldn't be here anymore, if we were ever supposed to be here at all. 
Buffy, said Sean, sounding stung. What are you talking about? This is just a story, Sean. And everywhere we've gone, horrible things have happened. She raised her head, expression miserable. Those poor people in Eakley? The thing at the ranch? Senator Ryman, I think you're a wonderful man. But this is just a story, and we shouldn't be in it. We're going to get hurt. That's exactly why we have to stay, I said. My disappointment didn't show in my voice. I found that astonishing. I wanted to slap Buffy. I wanted to shake her and demand to know how she could be so blind to the importance of telling the truth after everything we'd been through together. Instead, I faced the room, and my voice stayed calm as I said, Everything is just a story. Tragedy, comedy, end of the world, whatever, it's just a story. What matters is making sure it's heard. That attitude, young lady, is why it's time for you to go, said Governor Tate. We can't trust you to keep your mouth shut when you decide it's time for the story to be told. Your judgment isn't the yardstick here. National security is. And I don't think you fully understand the dangers you could place us in. Now, David, said the senator. Nice stand for freedom there, Governor, I snapped. Can you believe this bullshit? demanded Sean. On the plus side, faithful reporters fired from campaign as veil of censorship descends has a nice ring to it said Rick. I figure that's a rating spike right there. Ratings. All you concern yourself with, be quiet, said Emily, is your precious bad god ratings. Governor Tate was getting into it now, his face flushing with religious fire. He'd found his latest opponents now that Senator Ryman was off the menu. Us. A little girl dies. A family is shattered. A man's run to the presidency might not recover. And what do you care about? Your damn ratings. Well, you could take those ratings and... We never found out what we could do with our ratings. The sound of Emily's palm striking Governor Tate's cheek rang through the room like a branch breaking. The only thing that could have been louder was the silence that came after it. Governor Tate raised his hand to his cheek, staring at her like he couldn't believe what he was seeing. I couldn't blame him. I couldn't believe what I was seeing either. And I wasn't the one who'd been slapped. Emily, what... began Senator Ryman. She raised her hand for silence, and then slowly, deliberately, removed her sunglasses, eyes on Governor Tate the whole time. The unforgiving light flooding the room had caused her pupils to expand until her irises were entirely gone, drowning in blackness. I winced. I knew how much that had to be hurting her, but she didn't flinch. She kept staring at Tate. For the sake of my husband's political career, I will be pleasant to you. I will smile at you at public functions, and I will, whenever a camera or member of the undiscriminating press is present, endeavor to treat you as if you were a human being, she said in a calm, almost reasonable tone. But understand this. If you ever speak to these people in that sort of manner in my presence again, if you ever behave as if they have no judgment, no compassion, and no common sense, I'll make you wish you'd never join this ticket. And if I come to believe that your attitude is in any way changing my husband, not damaging his oh-so-precious career, but changing who he is as a man, I will repudiate you, and I will end you. Do we have an understanding, Governor? Yes, ma'am, said Governor Tate, sounding about as stunned as I felt. A glance to Sean showed that he was probably feeling much the same. 
I think you've made yourself clear. Good. Emily turned toward us. Sean, Georgia, Buffy, Rick, I hope you won't let this unpleasant little scene sour you against my husband's campaign. I speak for both of us when I say that I very much hope you'll continue doing exactly what you've been doing for us. We signed on for the good and the bad alike, Mrs. Ryman, said Rick. I don't believe any of us are planning on going anywhere. Looking at Buffy, I wasn't sure. He's right, Emily, I said. We're staying. Assuming, of course, the senator wants us to? I looked his way and waited. Senator Ryman looked uncertain. Then slowly, he nodded and rose, moving to put his arm around his wife's shoulders. David, I'm afraid I'm going to have to vote with Emily on this one. I very much want them all to stay. Well, Senator, I said, I think our partnership is still good. Good, he replied. Reaching out, he took my hand and shook it. The trouble with the news is simple. People, especially ones on the ends of the power spectrum, like it when you're afraid. The people who have the power want you scared. They want you walking around paralyzed by the notion that you could die at any moment. There's always something to be afraid of. It used to be terrorists. Now it's zombies. What does this have to do with the news? This. The truth isn't scary. Not when you understand it. Not when you understand the repercussions of it. And not when you aren't worried that something's being kept from you. The truth is only scary when you think part of it might be missing. And those people? They like it when you're scared. So they do their best to sit on the truth, to sensationalize the truth, to filter the truth in ways that make it something you can be afraid of. If we didn't have to fear the truths we didn't hear, we'd lose the need to fear the ones we did. People should consider that. From Images May Disturb You, the blog of Georgia Mason, April 2nd, 2040. Chapter 17 We spent three weeks in Parish before it was time for the campaign to get back on the road. The voters would forgive the senator taking time to mourn for his daughter, but unless he got out there and made sure people remembered him as more than the victim of a senseless tragedy, he'd never make up the ground he was already losing. Voters are a fickle bunch, and Rebecca Ryman's heroic death was already yesterday's news. Instead, the news was buzzing with Governor Blackburn's exciting plans for health care reform, her suggestions for increasing school security, and her proposed alterations to the animal husbandry and care laws. In some ways, her campaign was using Rebecca as much as the senator's was, because when she said, tougher restrictions on keeping large animals, it was Rebecca's face people saw. The senator needed to get rolling, or there wouldn't be anywhere for him to roll to. Unfortunately, our swift departure from Oklahoma City left the convoy of RVs and equipment trucks we'd been depending on to get us across the country several states behind us. This became an issue as we were preparing to set out from Wisconsin, especially since our newly tightened schedule didn't leave time to go back and get them. How were we supposed to get ourselves, the senator, his staff, the security detail, and the equipment, some of which was new to the campaign, having joined us with Governor Tate, to our destination when we didn't have a means of protected travel? The answer was simple. We weren't. Instead, the senator, his wife, the governor, their respective campaign managers, and the bulk of the staff flew ahead to our next stop in Houston, Texas 
where they could meet up with the convoy and really get things started. The rest of us were left with the exciting task of getting ourselves and the equipment that hadn't been abandoned in Oklahoma to Texas via the Overland Express. There was no train from Parrish to Houston large enough to haul the additional equipment, but that worked out since Sean and I were unwilling to abandon our vehicles. One way or another, we were driving it. We initially planned to make the drive alone, just the after-the-end-times crew, reconnecting with one another through the time-honored ritual of the road trip. This plan got shouted down on all fronts, starting with Senator Ryman and moving down the chain to Steve. The argument that we'd travel faster without a bunch of extra bodies didn't hold water where they were concerned, but we managed to find a compromise after three days of shouting. We'd take a security team. We were exhausted enough after that fight to give in on the matter of Chuck, who needed to monitor the transportation of some of the more sensitive equipment. Besides, his presence might keep Buffy a little calmer, and we needed all the help we could get in that regard. The tension between Buffy and the rest of us had been getting worse since our meeting with the Ryman's and Governor Tate. None of us had expected her to endorse the idea that we should walk away. It was a betrayal of everything we worked for, and it came out of nowhere. Rick took it hardest. As far as I knew, he hadn't spoken to Buffy since we got back to the hotel. Buffy looked at him sorrowfully, like a dog that knew it had done something wrong, and went back to the task of getting our equipment ready for the road. By the time we were ready to roll, I think she'd rebuilt every piece of camera equipment we owned at least twice, in addition to upgrading our computers and replacing the memory chips in my PDA. Sean and I didn't have anything that practical to concern ourselves with. I managed to stay distracted by conducting remote interviews with every politician I could get my hands on, working with Mahir to update our merchandising, and cleaning up the message boards. Sean lacked those outlets. The government had banned him from going back to the ranch during the investigation, and Parrish was otherwise short of things for him to poke at. He was restless, unhappy, and making me insane. Sean doesn't handle idleness well. Make him sit still too long, and he winds up silent, sullen, and above all, touchy as hell. Sean's crankiness combined with everything else was the reason for our caravan traveling arrangements. Rick was in his little blue armadillo with the barn cat, which he'd named Lois, after it received a clean bill of health from the Ryman family veterinarian. Sean was in our van, blasting heavy metal and brooding, while Buffy was riding with Chuck in the equipment truck at the rear of the convoy. My own place in the driving order was a little less predictable since I was on my bike and unconstrained by the shape of the road. I kept my cameras running the whole time, privately hoping I'd find a shambler for Sean to amuse himself with. That was all he'd need to bring his spirits up. We'd been driving for two days, with another two still ahead of us, and the silence was starting to wear on me. My helmet speaker crackled. On, I said to activate the connection, following it with, Georgia here. It's Rick. What do you think about dinner? The sun went down an hour ago, and dinner is traditionally the evening meal, so I think dinner is logically our next stop. What are we looking at? GPS says there's a truck stop about two hours up the road that has a pretty decent diner. Any record on their screening protocols? We'd run into multiple truck stops where the security agents wouldn't let us eat because their blood tests weren't good enough to guarantee we wouldn't have to worry about an outbreak between the coffee and the pie. I'd been driving all day. If we stopped, I wanted it to be for more than 15 minutes in an argument. 
They're government certified. All their licenses up to date. All their inspection scores posted. Sounds good to me. I'll see if I can rouse Sean and let him know what the plan is. You call Steve and the guys, give them the address, and tell them we'll meet there. Deal. Coffee's on me. Georgia out. Rick out. Great. I followed it with disconnect and redial Sean Mason. The speaker beeped acknowledgement and began to ring as it signaled my brother. He never picked up the call. He didn't have the time. I didn't hear the gunshots until I went back to review the tapes and turned the low-level frequencies up enough to undo the work of the silencers. Eight shots were fired. The first two trucks, the ones containing the campaign guards and lower-level personnel, passed by unmolested. They were rolling ahead of the rest of the crew and passed out of the shallow valley without incident. The gun didn't start going off until Rick's car pulled into the ideal position, halfway between the valley's entrance and its exit. Two shots were fired at Rick's little blue armadillo, two more were fired at the van, and the two after that were fired at my bike. The last two shots were fired at the equipment truck at the back of the caravan, the one Chuck was driving, with Buffy riding shotgun. The shots were very methodical, one following the other as fast as the skill of the shooter would allow. I'd have been impressed if they hadn't been aimed so effectively at me and mine. The first shot fired at my bike punched a hole in my front tire, sending me weaving out of control. I screamed and swore, fighting with the handlebars as I tried to steady my trajectory enough to keep me from becoming a stain on the side of the road. Even with my body armor, falling wrong would kill me. I was focusing so hard on not toppling over that my driving became impossible to predict, and the second shot went wide. Maybe that's why I was able to believe I'd blown a tire as I let momentum carry me off the edge of the road, rolling onto the uneven ground beyond the shoulder. I finished steadying myself, dumped speed, and wrenched the bike to a stop 20 yards after I left the road. Panting, I kicked the stand down and unsealed my helmet before turning to stare at the carnage that had overwhelmed the road. Rick's car was still at the front of the pack, but now it was lying stranded on its back, wheels spinning in the air. The tires on the right-hand side were nothing but shredded rubber stretched over bent steel. The equipment truck was on its side fifty or so yards behind him, smoke oozing from its shattered cabin. There was no sign of the van. Suddenly frantic, I fumbled my ear cuff from my pocket and shoved it onto my ear with enough force to leave a bruise that I wouldn't feel until later. Sean? Sean? Pick up your goddamn phone, Sean! Georgia? The connection was poor enough that his voice crackled in and out, but the relief was unmistakable. It would have been unmistakable even if the connection had been worse. He never called me by my full name unless he was angry, scared, or both. George, are you okay? Where are you? Twenty yards off the road on the left-hand side near some big rocks. I'm between the car and the equipment truck. There's smoke. Sean, has anyone else tried to... Don't make any more calls. I don't know if they can trace him. You stay right there, Georgia. Don't you fucking dare move. The connection cut with a sharp final click. In the distance, I heard tires squealing against the road. Sean had sounded panicked. Rick and Buffy were out of communication. The truck was on fire. My bike was down. And Sean was panicking. That could only mean one thing. It was time to take cover. Slamming my helmet back over my head, I ducked behind my bike and started surveying the surrounding hills. Short of a rocket launcher, there wasn't much that stood a viable chance of killing me in my body armor. Hurting me, yes, but 
killing me. Not really. There was nothing. No lights, no signs of motion, nothing. Yeah? Come in, Georgia. Rick? I nodded to the right, confirming the connection. Rick, is that you? Are you okay? Are you hurt? I'm fine. Airbag stopped me from hitting the roof. He coughed. Chest a little banged up, and lowers his pistol as hell, but otherwise we're okay. You? Didn't dump the bike. I'm fine. Any word from Buffy? There was a pause. Finally, he said, No, I was hoping she'd called you. Did you try to call her? No word. Damn. Rick, what happened? You mean you don't know? He sounded genuinely surprised. Georgia, somebody shot out my damn tires. Shot? What do you mean? Sh Sean came blasting around the curve of the road and off the pavement, moving so fast that our hydraulically balanced and weighted van nearly rocked onto two tires. Sean's here. We'll be right there to get you. Georgia out. Clear. The connection clicked off. I pulled my helmet back off and climbed to my feet, waving my hands in the air. Sean spotted the motion and turned the van toward my location, screeching to a stop beside me. The doors unlocked, and Sean was throwing himself out of the driver's side door, his heels slipping on the gravel-covered ground as he ran over to throw his arms around me. I let him crush me against his chest, taking a deep breath. You okay? he asked, not letting go. You didn't get a blood test before coming over here. Don't need one. If you were infected, I'd know, Sean said, and let me go. I repeat, you okay? I'm okay. I climbed in the open van door, sliding over to settle in the passenger seat. Sean got in behind me. You okay? Better now, Sean said, turning the engine back on and slamming his foot down on the gas. The van leapt forward into a wide curve, rocketing toward Rick's car. You hear the shots? Bike was too loud. How many? Eight. Two for each of us. He glanced at me. For a brief moment, I saw the raw worry in his eyes. If they'd kneeled both your tires, I'd be dead. I leaned forward to open the glove compartment and pulled out the forty-five I keep there. Suddenly, being outside without a gun in my hand didn't seem like a good idea. If whoever did this had done their damn homework, you'd be dead too, so let's not dwell. Word from Buffy? None. Great. I pulled back the slide, checking the chamber. Satisfied by my bullet count, I let the slide rack back into place. So is this enough excitement for you? Maybe a bit much, he said. For once in his life, he sounded like he meant it. It was true, though. If our attackers had done their homework, Sean wouldn't have been driving. He'd have been dying. Normal tires blow when they take a bullet. Even armor plating won't prevent that. But some vehicles are too damn valuable to lose just because you lose a tire, and most vehicles in that class are the sort likely to draw heavy gunfire. So scientists developed a type of tire that doesn't give a damn about gunshots. They're called run-flats. You put a bullet in them, and they keep on rolling. I might have skipped them. I did skip them on my bike, where they made the ride unbearably choppy. But Sean insisted. He bought a new set every year. For the first time since we got the van, it didn't seem like a waste of money. Sean focused on driving, and I focused on trying to page Buffy and Chuck, using every band and communications device we had. We knew communications weren't being jammed. At least some of my messages should have made it through. There were no replies on any channel. 
I'd been terrified. That's when I started to get numb. Sean pulled up next to Rick's car. Think there's still a shooter out there? Doubtful. I slid the gun into my pocket. This was a targeted operation. They only took out our cars. If they'd been sticking around to make sure they killed us, you'd have kept taking bullets. And I made a damn good target when I first stopped my bike. Hope you're right, said Sean, and opened his door. Rick watched our approach through the car window, waving his arms to show that he was still alive. He was half-pinned by the airbag, and blood was dripping into his hair from a small cut on his forehead, but other than that he looked fine. Lois and her carrier were strapped into the seat next to his. I didn't want to be the one to let that cat out of the box. I knocked on the glass, calling, Rick, can you open the door? Despite the urgency of the situation, I couldn't help but be impressed by the structural integrity of his little car. It had to have rolled at least once before coming to a stop on its roof, and yet it wasn't showing any dents, just scratches in a crack in the passenger side window. The folks at VW really knew what they were doing. I think so, he called back. Can you get me out? Mirthlessly, I echoed. I think so. Not the most encouraging answer, he said, and twisted in the seat, movements constrained by seatbelt and airbag, until he could kick the door. On his second kick, I grabbed the handle and pulled. I didn't have to pull that hard. Despite the car's inverted position and the beating it had taken, the door swung open easily, leaving Rick's foot dangling in the air. He pulled it back into the car, saying, Now what? Now I get your belt, and you get ready to fall. I leaned into the car. Hurry up, George, said Sean. I don't like this. No one does, I said, and unsnapped Rick's belt. Gravity took over from there, sending Rick thumping against the roof of the car. Thanks, he said, reaching over to unhook Lois's carrier before climbing out. The cat hissed and snarled inside the box, expressing her displeasure. Straightening, Rick eyed his car. How are we supposed to flip that back over? Triple-A is our friend, I said. Get in the van. We need to check on Buffy. Paling, Rick nodded and climbed in. Sean and I were only a few feet behind him. I noted without surprise that Sean had his own pistol, substantially larger than my emergency's only forty-five, with specially modified ammo that did enough damage to human or post-human tissue that it was illegal without a disturbing number of licenses, all of which Sean obtained before he turned sixteen, out and at the ready. He wasn't buying my glib assurances of our safety. That was fine. Neither was I. Sean took my assumption of the driver's seat with just as little surprise and didn't bother fastening his belt as I slammed the gas pedal down, sending the van racing across the hard-packed ground between us and the still-smoking equipment truck. The truck wasn't likely to burst into flames. That only happens in the movies, which is almost a pity given the number of zombies that arise from automotive accidents every year. Buffy and Chuck could die from smoke inhalation if we dawdled, assuming they weren't dead already. Rick braced himself against the seat. Has there been any word from Buffy? Not since the truck went down, Sean said. Why the hell didn't you go for her first? Simple, I said, steering around a chunk of rubber torn from the truck's tires. We knew you were alive, and we might need the backup. Rick didn't say anything after that until we pulled up alongside the equipment truck. Sean reached between the seats and pulled out a double-barreled shotgun which he passed to Rick. What am I supposed to do with this? Rick demanded. You see anything moving that isn't us? 
Chuck or Buffy, you shoot, Sean said. Don't bother checking to see if it's dead. It'll be dead after you hit it. And if I hit emergency personnel? We're stranded, and we've been the victims of a malicious attack in possible zombie territory, I said, stopping the engine and opening my door. Cite Johnston's and you'll get a medal instead of a manslaughter conviction. Manuel Johnston was a truck driver with several DUIs on his record, but when he gunned down a dozen zombies in highway patrolmen's uniforms outside Birmingham, Alabama, he became a national hero. Since Johnston, it's been legal to shoot people for no crime more defined than existing in rural hazard zones. We usually curse his name, since the precedent he set has gotten a lot of good journalists killed. Under the circumstances, he was a savior. Sean and I have the truck. You've got point. Got it, said Rick grimly, and climbed out of the van's side door as Sean and I got out and moved toward the still-smoking truck. It was obvious that the equipment truck had taken the worst of the beatings. Lacking the maneuverability of my bike, the armor of Rick's car, or the paranoia-fueled unstoppability of our van, it had taken two bullets to the front left tire and completely lost control. The cabin was half-smashed when the truck went over. The smoke had thinned without clearing, and that lowered visibility as we started toward the cab. Buffy? I called. Buffy, are you there? A piercing scream was the only answer, followed by a pause, a second scream, and silence. Zombies can scream. They just generally don't. Buffy? Answer me! I ran the rest of the way to the truck and grabbed the handle of the nearer door, wrenching it as hard as I could. I barely noticed removing a layer of skin from my palms in the process. It didn't matter. The door was mashed in when the truck fell, and it wasn't budging. I tried again, yanking even harder, and felt it shudder on its hinges. Sean! Help me over here! George, we have to make sure we're covering the area in case of... Rick can do the goddamn covering! Help me while there's still a chance that she's alive! Sean lowered his pistol, cramming it into the waistband of his pants and moving to put his hands over mine. Together we counted. One, two, three! And yanked. My shoulders strained until it felt like I would dislocate something. The door groaned and swung open, creaking along the groove of the broken frame. Buffy tumbled out onto the glass-sprinkled pavement, coughing hard. That cough was reassuring. Zombies breathe, but they don't cough. The tissue of their throats is already so irritated by infection that they ignore little things like smoke inhalation and caustic chemical burns, right up until they render the body unable to function. Buffy! I dropped to my knees next to her feeling glass crunch through the reinforced denim of my jeans. I'd have to check for slivers before I put them on again. I put my hand against her back, trying to reassure her. Honey, it's okay. You're okay. Just breathe, sweetheart, and we'll get you away from here. Come on, honey, breathe. Georgia. Sean's voice was strained enough that he sounded almost sick. I looked up, my hand still flat against Buffy's back. What? Sean gestured for silence attention fixed on the interior of the truck's cab. His right hand was moving with glacial slowness to the gun shoved into the belt of his jeans. Whatever he was looking at was outside my range of vision, and so I stood, leaving Buffy coughing on the ground as I reached up to remove my sunglasses. The smoke wouldn't irritate my eyes more than they already were, and I'd see better without them. At first there seemed to be nothing but motion inside the cab of the truck. It was slow and irregular like someone trying to swim through hardening cement. 
Then my pupils dilated that extra quarter centimeter, my virus-enhanced vision compensating for the sudden change in light levels, and I realized what I was looking at. Oh, I said softly. Crap. Yeah, Sean agreed. Crap. Buffy fell out of the cab when we opened the door. Buffy hadn't been wearing her seatbelt. Buffy never wore her seatbelt. She liked to ride cross-legged in her seat, and seatbelts prevented that. Chuck, on the other hand, was a law-abiding citizen who obeyed traffic regulations. He fastened his seatbelt every time he got into a moving vehicle. He'd fastened it before the convoy pulled out that morning. He was still wearing it now that he was too far gone to remember how to work the clasp, or even what a clasp was. His hands moved against the air in useless clawing motions, as his mouth chomped mindlessly, stimulated by the presence of fresh meat. There was blood around his mouth. Blood around his mouth, and blood on the seatbelt, and blood on the seat where Buffy had been sitting. Cause of death? I asked, as analytically as I could. Impact trauma, said Sean. The creature that had been Chuck hissed at him, opening its mouth and beginning to moan. Unconcerned, Sean raised his pistol and fired. The bullet hit the zombie square between the eyes, and it stopped trying to reach us, going limp as the message of its second, final death was transmitted throughout the body. Continuing as if he'd never paused, Sean said, It must have been instantaneous. Chuck was a small guy. Amplification would have been over in minutes. Source of the blood? Sean looked toward me, and then back to Buffy who was still down on her knees in the broken glass, hugging herself and coughing. He didn't have time to bleed. I stayed where I was for a seemingly endless moment, staring into the cab of the truck. Chuck remained slumped and unmoving. I wanted to find something, anything I could use to explain the blood away. A scalp wound, maybe, or a nosebleed that started when he hit his head and didn't stop until he reanimated. There was nothing. Just one small, sad body, and bloodstains on the passenger seat that didn't match to any visible wounds. I turned to Buffy, numbly unsurprised to see that Sean had his pistol out. My feet crunched on the glass as I walked over to her. Buffy, can you hear me? I'm dead, not deaf, she said, and lifted her head. Tears had left clean trails through the soot staining her cheeks. I hear you just fine. Hi, Georgia. Is everyone all right? Is, is Chuck? Chuck's resting now, I said, crouching down. Sean, radio Rick. Tell him to come back here and to bring a field kit. George, do it. I kept my eyes on Buffy and felt, rather than saw, Sean's angry stare. I was too close to her. Her body weight was too low and I was too close. If she was undergoing amplification, I might not be able to move back fast enough. And I didn't care. Buffy, are you hurt at all? There's some blood we can't identify. I need you to show me if you're hurt. Buffy smiled. It was a small, utterly resigned expression, one that turned wry as she rolled up her right sleeve and turned her arm toward me, showing the place where a chunk had been bitten out of her forearm. Bone showed through the red. You mean like this? I must have hit my head on the roof when the truck rolled, because I woke up when Chuck bit me. The bleeding was already starting to slow. Rapid coagulation of blood, one of the first, classic signs of the Callus Amberley virus going into amplification. I swallowed, saying in a soft, sickened tone, that would probably account for it. I heard the gunshot, you know, 
If Chuck's resting, it's the sort of rest you don't get better from. Buffy rolled her sleeve primly back down. You should shoot me now. Take care of things while they can still be tidy. Rick's on his way with the field kit, said Sean, stepping up next to me. He had his gun trained on Buffy the whole way. She's right, you know. He'd just turned when he bit her. There's a chance his saliva hadn't gone live yet, I said, glancing at him over my shoulder. I was lying, to no one more than to myself, but he'd let me. Just for a few minutes, he'd let me. We wait for the test. I was never any good at tests, said Buffy. She shifted on the ground, pulling her knees up against her chest in an unconsciously childlike gesture. I always failed them in school. Hi, Sean. Sorry about this. Not your fault, he said. His tone was gruff. Anyone who didn't know him as well as I do might not have realized how upset he was. You're taking this pretty well, considering, you know, the circumstances. Not much we can do about it now, is there? Her tone was light, but her eyes were beginning to brim with tears. One escaped, running down the channel already cleaned by its peers. I'm not happy about this, but I'm not going to take it out on you. I have faith that God will reward me for my forbearance. I hope you're right, I said softly. The Catholic Church declared all victims of zombie attacks martyrs 15 years ago to deal with the messy little issue of last rites. It's hard to conduct them when death is fast, unexpected, and filled with teeth. I've got the kit, shouted Rick, jogging up to the three of us. He had the shotgun tucked underneath his arm and a standard blood testing kit in his left hand. He came to a stop as he spotted Buffy, paling. Please, please tell me this isn't for you, Buffy. Sorry, she said, and held up her hands. Toss it here. Eyes gone wide in his bloodless face, he tossed her the kit. She caught it with ease, sliding her right hand, the one nearest to the bite, into the kit's opening. Then she closed her eyes, not watching the lights as they cycled green to red, green to red. You need to read my notes, she said, in a voice so tightly controlled as to be a model of reasonableness and calm. They're stored on the server under my private directory. Login ID is the one I use for my poetry uploads. Password is February-4-29, capital F in February. I don't have time to explain everything, so just read them. February 4th, 2029, was the day the United States government finally acknowledged that Alaska was too well-suited to the undead and would never be able to come below a level two hazard zone. As that made it illegal for anyone without a very special and difficult to obtain license to even enter Alaska, much less live there, that was the day they began evacuating the last of the state's residents, including Buffy's family. Like a lot of the displaced, they never got over losing Alaska. You're going to be fine, I said, watching the lights. They were still cycling, still measuring the viral payload of her blood, but the cycle was becoming irregular, hanging on red for six seconds before flashing back to green. The test results were being confirmed, and they were not in Buffy's favor. You're too attached to the truth, Georgia, she said. Her voice was serene, at peace with itself. It makes you a crappy liar. The tears were falling faster now. I swear, I had no idea they were going to do those things. No idea at all. If I'd known, I would never have agreed to it. You have to believe me. I wouldn't have. The lights had settled on a steady red, as damning as any doctor's report. The viral load Buffy picked up from Chuck's saliva might have been small, but it had been enough. That wasn't the only thing making me go cold. 
I stood, stepping back next to Sean and pulled the gun away from my belt. You wouldn't have agreed to what? They said the country was drifting away from God. They said that we were losing sight of his desires for the nation, and that was why things are the way they are now. And I believed them. They, who, Buffy? They didn't give me a name. They just said they could make sure things went the way they needed to go. The way they had to go for this country to be great again. All I had to do was let them access our databases and follow the Ryman campaign. Voice suddenly gone hard, Rick said. When did you figure out what they were using that information to do, Buffy? Before or after Eakley? After, she said, opening her eyes and turning a plaintive look his way. After, I swear, it was after. It wasn't until the ranch that I realized. I realized. My hand shook, sending my aim wavering as I realized what she was saying and what it meant. Oh, my God. With access to our databases, they'd known exactly where the senator was going to be, what sort of security he'd have, what times we had booked for any given location. It gets worse, said Sean. His own voice was flat. She had our databases queued to the senator's databases. Didn't you, Buffy? It seemed practical at the time, and Chuck said it wouldn't hurt anything as long as we stayed out of the more sensitive areas. It made things easier. Lots of things, I said. Like knowing when the ranch would be most vulnerable. You cut them off, didn't you? Told them you wouldn't be giving them anything else. How did you know? She closed her eyes again, shuddering. Because they'd have no other reason to try to kill us all. I glanced toward Rick and Sean. We stopped being useful, so Buffy's friends tried to take us out. My notes, said Buffy, with an air of desperation in her tone. Her tears were stopping. Another classic sign. The virus doesn't like to give moisture away. You have to read my notes. They'll tell you everything I knew. I didn't know their names, but there are timestamps, there are IPs. You can try to... try to... How could you do this, Buffy? demanded Sean. How could you possibly have done this? To the senator? To us? People have died, for God's sake. And I'm one of them. It's time to shoot me. Please. Buffy, that's not my name, she said, and opened her eyes. Her pupils had dilated until they were as large as mine. She turned those unnaturally dark eyes toward me, shaking her head. I don't remember my name, but that isn't it. Sean started to swing his pistol into place. I raised my hand, stopping him. I hired her, I said quietly. It's my job to fire her. I stepped forward, putting my left hand over my right to steady my grip on the gun. Buffy continued looking up at me, her expression calm. I'm sorry, I said. It's not your fault, she replied. Your name is Georgette Marie Maisonnier. I said, and pulled the trigger. She fell without another sound. Sean put his arms around my shoulders, and we stood there, frozen in the night. Nothing would ever be the same. Book Four Postcards from the Wall Alive or dead, the truth won't rest. My name is Georgia Mason, and I am begging you, rise up. While you can. Georgia Mason If you asked me now, was it worth it? Were the things you got the things you wanted? 
I tell you no, because there isn't any other answer. So, I guess it's a good thing that nobody's ever going to ask. They never ask the things that really matter. Sean Mason It is the unfortunate duty of the management of After the End Times to announce that the maintainer of this blog, Georgette Marie Buffy Maisonnier, passed away this past Saturday night, April 17th, 2040, at approximately 8.15 p.m. Buffy was involved in an automotive accident that led, tragically, to her being bitten by her boyfriend, Charles Wong, who had died and reawakened only a few moments previously. Please do not mistake the professional tone of this memo for a lack of compassion or mourning on the part of the staff here at After the End Times. Rather, take it for what it is, a sign of our respect and dismay over her sudden loss. Buffy's family has been notified, and her entry has been transmitted to the wall. Her blog and its archives will be maintained in her honor for the lifetime of this site. Buffy, you will be missed. A message from Georgia Mason, originally published in By the Sounding Sea, the blog of Buffy Maisonnier, April 18th, 2040. Chapter 18 My aim has never been as good as Sean's, but it didn't matter at close range. Headshots get a lot easier when there's no real distance between you and your target. Even so, I kept my gun raised for several minutes, as much waiting to feel something as waiting for her to move. She was part of my team, part of our inner circle, and she was gone. Shouldn't I have felt something? But there was nothing beyond a vague sense of loss and a much stronger sense of onrushing dread. The sound of Rick retching snapped me out of my fugue. I leaned back against Sean's arm, sliding my sunglasses back on and feeling their familiar weight settle against my face, before I lowered my gun and turned toward the other surviving member of our team. Rick, what's your status? He made more retching noises. I nodded. About what I figured. Sean, head for the van and get three more field kits. And you'll be doing what exactly? as I leave you alone in the middle of nowhere with the dead things and Captain Vomit? I unzipped the pocket of my jacket and pulled out my PDA, holding it up. I'll be standing here, keeping an eye on Captain Vomit and calling for help. We'll need to provide clean test results before they'll approach us with anything more useful than bullets. We're going to need a full biohazard squad out here. We have two corpses. We have a contaminated truck. We have Buffy's blood on the ground. Sean froze going white as he looked from the slivers of glass embedded in the knees of my jeans to my hands, which were red and raw from where the door handle had stripped the skin from my palms. And we need clean test results, he said, in a voice that bordered on numb. Exactly, I said. He looked scared. I distantly wished I could find it in me to be scared, but I couldn't. It wasn't making it past that damned numbness. Go. Going, he said and wheeled, breaking into a run as he headed for the van. Rick was still on his hands and knees making soft, retching sounds, but the actual vomiting had stopped. I moved to stand beside him, attempting to comfort with my presence as I tapped in an emergency channel call on my PDA. Opening a broad emergency channel while standing near a state highway would broadcast my message to every police scanner, hospital hazmat department, and federal agency within the receiving range. If there was help to be had, we'd have it. This is Georgia Carolyn Mason. 
License number ABF-175893. Currently located between mile markers 77 and 78 on southbound Interstate 55 with a hazard zone upgrade for the vicinity and a priority aid distress call. Status is stable, awaiting test results on surviving party members. Request acknowledgement. The reply was immediate. This is the Memphis CDC. A biohazard team is being dispatched to your location. Please explain your presence in the hazard zone. It isn't technically illegal to drive the federally maintained highways. People still have to get from place to place, but it's unusual unless you're a trucker, and even they have to file routes stating exactly where they expect to be at each step along the way. Caravans are held to many of the same restrictions. When the rulings first went into effect, some people complained that the government was limiting personal freedom, but they quieted when it was pointed out, rather harshly, that this wasn't as much a matter of tracking the movements of individuals as it was a matter of charting the mobility of potential outbreaks. Most people shut up as soon as we just want to know where the zombies are going to be came into the equation. Route Registry 47-A, designation Ryman Tate Equipment Caravan. Registered drivers present at the scene are Georgia Carolyn Mason, Class M license, Sean Philip Mason, Class A license, Richard Cousins, Class C license, Charles Lee Wong, Class A license. Registered passengers, Georgette Marie Maisonnier, Class C license. Purpose of trip, registered as movement of heavy equipment from Parrish, Wisconsin to Houston, Texas. Registered duration, four days, allowing for reasonable rest stops and sleeping periods for the available drivers. Two of our trucks are still on the road. I'm not sure of their status. If you give me your network key, I can transmit our precise route. The man's tone was gentler when he spoke again. My information had been fed into his computer and was checking out clean. That won't be necessary, Miss Mason. Why are y'all calling for a hazard team? Someone shot out the tires on three of our vehicles. We're down a car, with possible injuries to the driver. The rear equipment truck flipped. The driver, Charles Wong, was killed in the impact and reanimated before we were able to reach the vehicle. He infected his passenger, Georgette Maisonnier. Her test results are recorded in a standard field test unit, manufacturer Sony, model number V-15-11-A, and were registered via wireless upload with the CDC mainframe at the time of confirmation. Due to the possibility of inaccurate positive with that model number, we did not take immediate action but maintained a safe distance until Ms. Maisonnier began to experience pupil dilation and memory loss. Once her infection was confirmed, she was put down honorably. There was the grief and outrage at last, beginning to chip away at the edges of my numbness. We have hot blood in the cab of the truck and on the ground outside the truck, as well as two hot corpses in need of removal and disposal. The team will not approach until preliminary test results for the surviving members of your party have been uploaded, and they will not offer direct physical assistance until you've been tested again on the CDC field units they provide, the man cautioned, some of the warmth leaching from his tone. Two bodies and a lot of hot blood on the road outside Memphis could spell an outbreak much larger than our little team. We both knew it. Now we had to contain it. Understood. My PDA started beeping, signaling an incoming call. Sir, may I ask, what is your name? Joseph Wynn, Ms. Mason. Stand tight. Our team will be there soon. Thank you, Joe, I said. God be with you, he said. The line clicked off. Shifting my PDA to my other hand, I pressed the receive button. Georgia? Sean was running toward me, 
The field kits clutched against his chest. I raised my free hand and he lobbed one at me. It was more than a simple game of catch. There are a hundred small tests and checks for infection that don't depend on medical science. If he could throw and I could catch, the odds were better that we were both clean. I saw him relax when I caught the kit, even though he didn't slow down. Senator Ryman's voice came through the receiver, made sharp and tight by panic. Georgia, what's this I'm getting on the scanner about an accident? Is everyone all right out there? Senator, I nodded to Sean. He put Rick's testing kit down next to him, and the two of us popped the lids off our respective kits in comforting unison. Routine is the most reassuring thing there is. I'm afraid I have to answer in the negative, sir, but the CDC is dispatching a biohazard team to our location. Once we have an all-clear, we're going to need a fresh truck and a team to move the equipment. I hesitated before adding, We're also going to need a new driver. Rick doesn't have his Class A license, and I don't want to leave my bike behind. There was a long pause, during which I tucked my PDA between my shoulder and my ear, freeing my hand, and mouthed a silent, One, two, at Sean. On two, we both rammed our forefingers down on the unit the other held. The prick of the needle puncturing my thumb made me wince, nearly dislodging the PDA. Finally, while the lights were blinking red to green and back again, the senator said, Georgia, is Chuck? I closed my eyes, blocking those ever-hateful lights, and said, I'm sorry, senator. He paused again. Georgia. Yes, senator. Buffy. Wasn't she? I'm afraid that when the truck rolled, we were unable to save either of the occupants. Oh, Christ, Georgia, I'm sorry. So am I, sir. So am I. Can you arrange for another truck and driver to be sent to our location and alert the rest of the convoy that we're being unavoidably delayed? We're just outside Memphis. You should be able to pull us up on the team GPS. I'll have someone on the way inside the next ten minutes. The third pause was longer than the other two, and when he spoke again, he sounded more exhausted than I'd ever heard him even after we received the news of Rebecca's death. Georgia, have the rest of you. Have you. The tests are running now. If anything changes, we'll call you. Thank you. I suppose I should let you get to it. That would be best. God save you, Georgia Mason, he said, and ended the call before I could say goodbye. Lowering the PDA, I opened my eyes, looking to Sean's face and avoiding the lights entirely. He's sending help, I said. Good, he replied. We're not infected. I allowed myself to glance down to the field kits, whose lights had settled on a steady green. I took a single, shallow breath, followed by another deeper one, and nodded. Better. Turning, I looked at Rick. Rick, we need a blood test. What? He raised his head, eyes wide and blank. A blood test. The field kit is next to you. The biohazard team won't approach until we're either checked out clean or dead. I pulled my finger free, feeling the antiseptic tingle in the pinprick wound, and shook my hand briskly before depressing the signal button at the base of the kit. That would activate the built-in wireless transmitter, uploading the results into the CDC mainframe. A manual upload is only necessary in the event of a negative. The CDC doesn't care, under normal circumstances, about the fact that someone isn't about to turn into a zombie. Buffy's results uploaded themselves the second the light settled on red. Once you've tested positive, the CDC knows. 
Disabling the upload functionality of a blood testing unit is a federal offense. John mirrored my actions. He held out his hand and I passed him his test kit, which he dropped into one of the plastic bags he pulled from his belt. My test kit went into a separate bag, which he handed to me. Again, in semi-unison, we pressed down the pressure seals, leaving our respective thumbprints on the corners of our bags. If they were tampered with in any way, the seals would turn scarlet and the kits inside would become worse than useless. They would become suspect. I... I'm not sure I can, said Rick, swallowing. Buffy. Buffy's dead, and so is Chuck. We need to know if you're clean. I handed the bag back to Sean and moved to crouch next to Rick, picking up his test unit and popping off the plastic cover to reveal the pressure pad and needle inside. Come on. You know the drill. It's just a little pinprick. What if the lights go red? Then we'll sit with you until the CDC gets here. They have better units than we do, and they're on their way, I said, keeping my voice as reasonable as I could. I felt like crying. I didn't dare. Rick looked like he was barely holding himself together. If I started to cry, his control might shatter. Unless you actually start to convert, we'll take no actions. If the lights go red, you'll take action immediately, he said, and his voice was suddenly cold, devoid of hesitation. I want that bullet in my brain before I know what's going on. Rick. He leaned forward, jamming his thumb down on the needle's point. I'm not upset that you shot her, Georgia. I'm upset that she had to go that far before you could. He tilted his face upward, looking to Sean, then to me. My son converted before he died. Please do me the great kindness of letting me die while I remember his name. Of course, I said, and straightened, stepping back to my customary place beside Sean. He raised his right hand, placing it against the middle of my back, while his left hand moved to rest ever so lightly on the holster of his pistol. If we lost a second teammate today, the bullet wouldn't be mine. Sometimes you have to spread the guilt around. I didn't know you had a kid, Ricky boy, said Sean, his tone almost jovial. What else haven't you been telling us? I wear women's underwear, Rick said. Then, very slightly, he smiled. I'll show you his picture sometime. He's just... He's the reason I left print media. Too many people there remembered him, and too many of them had known his mother. Too many people looked at me differently after I lost them. I still loved the news, but I didn't want to be the news. So I found another way to get the story out there. The lights were flashing red to green to red. What was your son's name, Rick? I asked. Ethan, Rick said his smile growing more sincere and coloring with sorrow. Ethan Patrick Cousins, after my father and his mother's grandfather. Her name was Lisa. His mother, I mean. Lisa Cousins. She was beautiful. He closed his eyes. He had her smile. The lights stopped flashing. We'll remember their names for you, if it ever comes to that, I said. But it won't be today. You're clean, Rick. Clean? He opened his eyes, looking at the test kit like it was some alien thing he'd never seen before. Then, slowly, he removed his finger from the needle and pressed the transmission button. Clean. Which is a damn good thing because there is no way I was taking care of your mangy cat, said Sean. He's right, I said, moving to offer a hand to Rick to help him off the ground. Sean would have tossed her out the window at the first truck stop we passed. Now, George, don't be silly chided Sean. 
I would have waited for one that had a beware of dog sign. It wouldn't do for Lois to not have any friends. Rick and I exchanged a startled look before we burst out laughing. I started to cry at the same time and pulled Rick to his feet before slinging my arms around his shoulders and using him to steady myself. Sean walked over and put his arms around the both of us, joining our laughter and smashing his face into my hair to hide his own tears. I knew they were there. Rick didn't need to. Some secrets don't need to be shared. We stayed that way until the sound of tires alerted us to the approach of the biohazard convoy. Hastily, we pulled apart, trying to get ourselves into something that approached composure. Rick wiped his face with one hand, while Sean dried his cheeks and I raked my fingers through my hair before shoving my sunglasses up the bridge of my nose. Looking to Sean, I nodded and started toward the sound of the approaching vehicles, carrying my bag test in one hand, digging my license beacon out with the other. The convoy stopped about twenty yards away from the forerunning vehicle, my poor abandoned motorcycle. The Memphis CDC didn't play around. They'd sent a full unit. Two troop carriers, with their standard Jeep-style frames surrounded by steel-reinforced clear plastic armor, a white medical van nearly twice the size of ours, and, most ominously, two of the vast armored trucks media pundits call fire trucks. They were huge, painted safety orange with red biohazard signs blazoned on all sides, and their hoses didn't squirt water. Instead, they delivered a nasty, high-octane variant on napalm mixed with a concentrated form of insecticide. Once a fire truck sprays something down, it's sterile. The soil would be dead for decades, and anything that happened to be in the radius and alive when the trucks came wouldn't be breathing afterward, but the area would be clean. One of the men in the foremost troop carrier raised a microphone as we approached, and the loudspeaker at the front of the car blared, Put down your testing units and step back. Clean units will be put in their place. Do not approach personnel. Failure to comply with instructions will result in termination. The headlights of the convoy were almost blinding, even through my sunglasses. I raised the hand with my license to shield my eyes and squinted at the troop carrier. Joe, is that you? Got it in one, darling, the voice replied less formally. Just go ahead and set those units on down, if you'd be so kind. I'm leaving my license beacon with the test, I called. It includes important medical data. If these people made me take my glasses off, the glare from their headlights would probably blind me. A new voice, female and substantially more clinical, came over the loudspeaker. We know about your retinal condition, Miss Mason. Please comply with instructions. We're complying, jeez, shouted Sean dropping his bag-testing unit and putting his license beacon on top. I bent to put mine down, somewhat more gently, and Rick did the same. The three of us then started backing away. We made it about twenty feet before Joe's voice came over the speaker again, saying, That's far enough, darling. You three hold tight now. The door of the medical van opened, and three technicians in biohazard containment suits emerged. I could hear the chugging of their positive pressure unit as it cycled the air, keeping outside particles from entering their sterile zone. Moving with the sort of grace that implied hundreds, if not thousands of hours spent in the bulky suits, the technicians walked over to collect our test kits and beacons, putting three sealed kits in their place. With this accomplished, they retreated, and Joe's voice called, Please approach, open the testing units, and stay where you are until you've checked out clean. It's like playing Simon Says, 
muttered Sean as we started forward. Where I grew up, Simon didn't usually have a truck full of napalm pointed at you, said Rick. Pansy, said Sean. The testing units left by the CDC technicians were Apple XH229s, only slightly less advanced than the top of the line. Sean whistled low under his breath. Wow, we really are a threat. Something like that, I said. I picked up the first kit and broke the seals with my thumbnail before removing the plastic lid. It was designed to cover my whole hand, all the way to the base of my wrist. There were at least fifteen visible points of contact. Grimacing, I rolled my sleeve up and slid my hand inside. The mist of antiseptic across my skinned palm was deceptively soothing, a feeling that lasted only a second before needles drove themselves into my already damaged flesh starting to sift through my blood looking for active viral bodies. The lights began to cycle, moving from red to yellow to green as the more advanced medical processes kicked in. I was so intent on the lights and what they could mean about my future that I didn't hear the footsteps behind me over the drone of the positive pressure units or feel the hypo until it was pressed against my neck. A wash of cold flowed over me, and I fell. The last thing I saw was a row of lights, settling on a steady green. Then my eyes closed, and I didn't see anything at all. The question I have been asked most frequently since my transition from the traditional news media to the online world is, why? Why would I want to give up an established career to strike out into a new field, one where my experience would not only be laughed at, but would actually work against me? Why would any sane man, and most people regard me as a sane man, want to do something like that? For the most part, I've replied with the pretty expected lies. I wanted a challenge, I wanted to test myself, and I believe in telling the truth and telling the news. Only that last part is true, because I do believe in telling the truth, and that's what I'm doing today. I married young. Her name was Lisa. She was smart, she was beautiful, and, above all, she was as crazy in love with me as I was with her. We were still in college on our wedding day. I was going to be a journalist, and she was going to be a teacher, a career path that got put on hold when, three days after graduation, the pregnancy test came up positive. That was a test we passed, and gladly. It was the only test we passed. Our son... Ethan Patrick Cousins, was born on April 5th, 2028. He weighed 8 pounds, 6 ounces, and routine testing of his bodily fluids and vital signs revealed a system crawling with the Kellis Amberley virus. His mother had condemned him without ever knowing it. Further tests showed that the virus had set up camp in her ovaries, reproducing there without infecting her or changing her life in any way. Our son was not so lucky. I was fortunate. I had nine good years with my son, despite the precautions and quarantines his condition entailed. He loved baseball. On his last Christmas, he wrote to Santa Claus and asked for a cure, so Mommy and Daddy won't be sad anymore. He underwent spontaneous viral amplification two months and six days after his ninth birthday. Posthumous examination of his corpse displayed a final body weight of 62 pounds, 6 ounces. Lisa, 
took her own life. And me? I found a new career. One where I'm still allowed to tell the truth. From another point of true, the blog of Richard Cousins, April 21st, 2040. Chapter 19 I woke in a white bed in a white room, wearing white cotton pajamas, with the cloying white smell of bleach in my nose. I sat up with a gasp, screwing my eyes shut in an automatic attempt to keep them from being burned by the overhead lights before I realized that I'd opened my eyes while I was lying on my back. I looked directly into the lights, and it hadn't hurt at all. A lack of sensitivity to pain is one of the many warning signs of early Kellis Amberley amplification. Was that why the CDC decided to attack us? Was I in some sort of fucked-up research facility? Rumors always abound, after all, and some of them just might be true. Cautious now, I reached up to touch my face. My fingers found a thin band of plastic resting above my eyes, balanced to put next to no pressure on either the bridge of my nose or the sides of my head. I knew what it was when I felt it. They've been using polarized UV blocker strips for hospital treatment of retinal KA for about 15 years now. They're expensive as hell. Just one can add $500 or more to your bill, even after insurance, and they're fragile to boot. But they filter light better and less noticeably than any other treatment mechanism we've found so far. I relaxed. I wasn't amplifying. I was just a CDC kidnap victim. It says something about the situation that I was able to find this reassuring. I began studying the room. It was empty, except for me. The white bed with its white sheets and white duvet and white pillowcases. A white bedside table with foam-padded edges that rendered it effectively useless as a weapon. And a large tinted mirror that took up most of the wall next to the door. I squinted at the glass looking into the sterile hallway beyond. There was no one watching my room. That spoke well for my continued non-zombie status. They'd have guards out there if I was infected, assuming they had some reason not to have just shot me already. If it hadn't been for my ocular condition, that mirror would have seemed like the real thing, allowing me the illusion of privacy while letting any attending physicians watch me from a distance. The days of beeping monitors and bulky machines are over. Everything is streamlined now all micro-mesh sensors and carefully concealed wireless monitors. It's as much for the protection of the doctors as it is for the comfort of the patients. After all, every reason to go into the room with someone who might go into viral amplification at any moment is another reason to stop practicing medicine and go into a safer profession, like journalism. Not that journalism seemed particularly safe at the moment. I closed my eyes. Buffy was right there waiting for me looking up with virus-dark eyes as the infection took hold and the essential core of her dissolved. I got the feeling she always would be there. For the rest of my life, she'd be waiting. Kellis Amberley is a fact of existence. You live, you die, and then you come back to life, get up, and shamble around trying to eat your former friends and loved ones. That's the way it is for everyone. Given what my parents do and what happened to their son, it might seem like it's had a huge impact on my family, but the fact is, all that happened before Sean and I were old enough to understand. The virus is background noise to us. If it hadn't existed, Sean and I would have found something else to do with our spare time, something that didn't involve poking zombies with sticks. Until Chuck and Buffy, 
it had never actually taken anyone away from me. It touched people I cared about. It killed acquaintances, like the security guards we lost in Oklahoma, or Rebecca Ryman, who I knew from pictures, if not from actual meetings. But it never touched me, not until Memphis. I opened my eyes. All the brooding in the world wasn't going to bring Buffy and Chuck back, and it didn't change the facts of the situation. The Memphis CDC had, for whatever reason, drugged us and transported us to a holding facility. I didn't have my clothes, my weapons, or any of my recording equipment. My ears were bare. They'd taken my short-range cellular devices along with everything else. Even my sunglasses were gone, replaced by a UV blocker that, while doubtless more effective, left me feeling naked. My mother once told me that no woman is naked when she comes equipped with a bad mood and a steady glare. Fixing that fact to the forefront of my mind, I walked over to the room's single door and tried the knob. It was unlocked. That wasn't necessarily good. The hallway was as sterile as the room where I woke up, all white walls, white floors, and stark white overhead lighting. More of those large faux mirrors were spaced every ten feet, lining both sides of the corridor. I was in the isolation wing. That was even less reassuring than the unlocked door. Pushing the UV blocker up the bridge of my nose in a gesture that was deeply reassuring, if not strictly functional, I started down the hall. Rick was in the third room on the left, lying atop his bed covers in white cotton pajamas identical to mine. The CDC isn't big on gender stereotyping. I knocked on the window to warn him that I was coming before opening the door and stepping inside. Do they actually have room service in this place? Because I'd just about die for a can of Coke right about now. Reanimation, strictly optional. Georgia. Rick sat up, relief and delight warring for control over his features. Thank God. When I woke up in here alone, I was afraid, what, that you were the last one left? Sorry, guy, but you don't get promoted that easily. I leaned against the doorframe, assessing him. He wasn't visibly injured. That was good. If we needed to exit in a hurry, maybe he could keep up. I am, in fact, immortal when annoyed. Wow. Wow? You'll never die. He paused and raised his right hand, making vague gestures toward his eyes. Georgia, you're not... It's all right. I tapped the band. UV blocking plastic. The latest thing. Technically better than my sunglasses, even if everything is a little bright right now. Oh, he said. Your eyes are brown. Well, yeah. He shrugged. I never knew. Life is an education. Keeping my tone as light as possible, I asked. So were you just waiting for me? Have you seen Sean? No. Like I said before, I woke up alone. I haven't seen anyone since the CDC mickeyed us. Any idea what the hell is going on here? I'm thinking it's more like they roofied us. And right now, I'm marginally more interested in finding my brother. He gave me a speculative look. You're more interested in your brother than in figuring out the truth? Sean's the only thing that concerns me more than the truth does. He's not here right now. Which is why we're going to go find him. I stepped back into the hall. Come on. To his credit, Rick rose without argument. They didn't lock the doors. That means they don't think we're infectious. That, or it means we're already in the middle of an outbreak and they've sealed this whole wing. Aren't you just a little ray of happy sunshine? I slanted a tight smile in his direction. I always have been.
I understand your brother a little bit more with every day that passes. I'm choosing to ignore that remark. The hall was empty, stretching in both directions with no distinguishing features either way. I frowned. Know anything about isolation ward layouts? Yes. His answer was surprisingly firm. I glanced toward him, eyebrows raised in silent question. He shrugged. Lisa and I spent a lot of time in places like this. Right, I said after an uncomfortable pause. Which way? CDC ISO wards all follow the same basic layout. We go left. That made sense. Zombies don't learn. And if there's a chance your personnel are uninfected, you want them to know which way to run. It would also serve as a herding mechanism. Those that had already amplified but were hoping for a way out would charge straight into the airlock, where a positive blood test would buy them a bullet to the brain. Rick started walking. I hurried to keep up, and he glanced at me. I'm sure Sean's fine. Mm-hmm. If we'd amplified, we'd be seeing signs of the outbreak, or at least smelling fresher disinfectant. Mm. I'd like to take this opportunity to say, off the record, that your eyes are much more attractive when you don't hide them behind those freaky-ass contact lenses. Blue really doesn't suit you. I gave him a sidelong look. Rick smiled. You didn't go, mmm, at me that time. Sorry, I get a little anxious when I don't know where Sean is. Georgia, if this is a little anxious, I never want to see you when you're actually uptight. I shot him another sidelong look. You're awfully relaxed. No, he said in a measured tone. I'm in shock. See, the difference is that if I were relaxed, I wouldn't be walking along waiting for the reality of Buffy being dead to hit me like a brick to the side of the head. Oh. This time, his smile was small and tight and held not a trace of humor. Ethan taught me about CDC isolation. Lisa taught me about shock. I didn't know what to say to that. We walked through the white halls, our white-clad reflections flickering like ghosts in the tinted glass windows, until something new appeared up ahead. A steel-barred door with an intercom and a blood-testing unit set into the wall next to it. Friendly. I said as we approached. The intercom connects to the duty station, and the test unit has an automatic upload function, said Rick. Friendly and efficient, I amended. I stopped in front of the door and pressed the button for the intercom. Hello? Sean's voice answered immediately, full of the rampant cheer only I was likely to recognize as his way of masking grief and fear. George, you decided to rejoin the world of the living! Something in the center of my chest unclenched and I could breathe again. Good to see you haven't decided to leave it, I said. Next time, leave me a damn note or something. Afraid that's my fault, Ms. Mason, said a deeper, southern-accented voice. We try not to leave anything that could serve for a weapon in the rooms. That includes paper. You understand the necessity. I frowned. Joe? That's right, and I'm pretty properly glad to see you're both all right. Both. Rick hadn't said a word since I activated the intercom. I turned and scanned the edge of the ceiling until I found a small discolored patch, off cream against the white of the tile. Looking directly into it, finger still on the intercom button, I said, You must have been real popular with the girls in high school. They love peeping toms. Hey, don't rag on the man, George. This way I get to see your adorable pajamas. You look like Frosty the Snowman, if he were on the rag, I mean. Frosty's going to be kicking your ass in a minute, 
I said. Can someone tell me what the hell is going on here before I get seriously pissed? Door won't unlock without a blood test, George, said Sean. Of course it won't. Turning, I slapped my hand down on the reader panel, barely even flinching as the needles bit into my skin. For every needle I felt, there were five more I didn't. The thicker needles on CDC kits are more for psychological reassurance than anything else. People don't believe they've been tested unless they feel the sting. Most of the information the CDC needs comes from hypos so small they're essentially acupuncture needles, sliding in and out without leaving marks. A light over the door flashed on, going almost immediately from red to green, and the locks disengaged with a loud click. I removed my hand from the panel. I assume alarms go off if Rick tries to follow right through? Got it in one. Hit into the airlock, let the door shut, and he can follow you. Right. I gave Rick a quick nod, which he returned, and opened the door and stepped through. If the hallways seemed featureless, the airlock they fed into was antiseptic. The walls were so white that the stark light they reflected was enough to make my eyes ache, even through the UV blocking strip. Half squinting, I shuffled to the middle of the room. The intercom crackled and Joe's voice said, Stop there, Miss Mason. Close eyes, hold breath? Exactly, he said with faint amusement in his tone. It's always a pleasure to work with someone who knows the drill. I'm not really in a pleasure place, I said. Maybe after I have some pants on. Standing around and grousing wasn't going to get me to my clothes or my brother any faster. Closing my eyes, I removed the UV blocker, took a deep breath, and held it. The smell of bleach and disinfecting agents filled the room as a cool mist drifted down from the vents in the ceiling, blanketing me. I forced myself to keep holding my breath, counting backward from twenty. I'd reached seventeen when the fans kicked on and the mist pulled away, sucked into drains in the floor. It would be pulled into channels of superheated air, baked until any traces of infection that had managed to survive the chemical bath were burned away, and then pumped into an incinerator, where it would be destroyed. The CDC does a lot of things, but it doesn't fuck around with sterilization. You can open your eyes now, Ms. Mason. Sliding the UV blocker back into place, I opened my eyes and proceeded to the door on the airlock's far side. The light above it was green, and when I touched the handle, it swung open without resistance. I continued on. The duty station was one of those hybrid beasts that have become so common in the medical profession over the past 20 years. Half nurse's station and medical triage, half guard point with alarm buttons posted at several spots around the walls, and a large gun cabinet next to the water cooler. A good medical duty station can provide an island of safety for the uninfected, even as an outbreak rages on all sides. If your airlocks don't fail and you have enough ammo, you can hold out for days. One duty station in Atlanta did exactly that. Four nurses, three doctors, and five security personnel kept themselves and 18 patients alive for almost a week before the CDC was able to fight through the outbreak raging through the neighborhoods around the hospital and get them safely out. They made a movie about that incident. Sean, who had his own clothes on, the bastard, was sitting atop the counter with a cup of coffee in his hands. A man I didn't recognize was standing nearby, wearing a white doctor's coat over his clothes, and Senator Ryman was beside him, looking more anxious than the other two combined. Nurses and CDC techs moved past the station, talking among themselves like extras in a movie background. They completed the setting, but they weren't part of it, 
any more than the walls were. The senator was the first to acknowledge my arrival. He straightened, relief radiating through his expression, and moved toward me, catching me in a tight hug before I had a chance to register what he was planning to do. I made a soft oof noise as the air was shoved out of my lungs, but he just squeezed tighter, seeming unfazed by the fact that my arms remained down by my sides. This was a hug for his comfort, not mine. Don't think she can breathe over there, chief, drawled Sean. Pretty sure she hasn't kicked the oxygen habit just yet. The door opened and closed again behind me, and Rick said, sounding surprised, Why is Senator Ryman trying to crush Georgia? Post-traumatic shock, said Sean. He thinks he's a boa constrictor. You kids can laugh, said the senator, finally letting go. Relieved, I stepped back before he could decide to do it again. You scared me to death. We scared ourselves pretty badly, too, Senator, I said, continuing my retreat until I was next to Sean. He put his hand on my shoulder, squeezing. There was a world of relief in that simple gesture. I leaned into his hand, looking toward the stranger. Joe, I presume? Dr. Joseph Wynn, Memphis, CDC, he said, and walked over to extend his hand in my direction. I took it. His grip was solid without being crushing. I can't begin to say how glad I am to speak with you face to face. Glad to still be in the shape to speak, I said. Pleasantries accomplished. I frowned. Now, can someone fill me in on why I was standing next to a highway doing my civic duty and suddenly woke up in a CDC ISO ward? Also, if I could get hooked up with my clothes, that'd be awesome. I feel kind of naked here, and that's weird when there's a United States senator in the room. That's a funny story, actually, said Sean. Releasing Joe's hand, I craned my head around to eye my brother. Define funny. Sean picked up a bundle from the counter on the other side of him and passed it to me. My clothes and a plastic bag containing my gun and all my jewelry. As I hugged the bundle to my chest, he said, with all apparent sincerity, Someone called the CDC two minutes before you did and told them that we'd all been killed in the accident. For a moment, all I could do was stare at him. Then, swiveling my head around to direct the stare to Joe and Senator Ryman, I demanded, Is this true? Looking distinctly uncomfortable now, Joe said, Well, darling, we have to react to every call we get. You had test results from us. You knew we weren't dead. Those types of test results can be falsified, Joe said. We did the best we could. I nodded grudgingly. Under the strict interpretation of the law, the CDC would have been within its rights to come into the valley, shoot us, sterilize the surrounding area, and deal with our remains. The fact that it took us alive for extensive testing was unusual, because it represented an unnecessary risk on its part. No one would have questioned it if the CDC had killed us. What made you take us alive? I asked. Joe smiled. Ain't many people who can make a call that drastic to the CDC and sound that calm about it, Ms. Mason. I wanted to meet anyone who could do that. Our parents taught us well, I said. Raising the bundle of clothes and gear, I asked, Is there a place where I could get dressed? Kelly! Turning, Joe flagged down a passing woman in a doctor's coat. She was fresh-faced and wide-eyed. She couldn't have been any older than Buffy, and her long blonde hair clipped back with a barrette, created the illusion of resemblance. A knot formed in my throat. Joe gestured from the woman to me. 
Georgia Mason, Dr. Kelly Connolly. Dr. Connolly, if you could please show Ms. Mason to a changing room. Sean slid off the counter. Come on, Rick. I'll show you the men's room. Much obliged, said Rick, snagging his own clothes from the counter. Certainly, Dr. Wynn, said Kelly. Miss Mason, if you'd come this way. Sure, I said and followed her. We walked down a short hallway, this one painted a warm yellow, and Kelly opened a door leading into a small locker room. The nurses change here, she said. Thanks, I said. Putting my hand on the knob, I glanced to her. I can find my own way back. All right, she said. Hesitating, she looked at me. I looked back. Finally, she said, I read your sight. Every day. I used to follow you on bridge supporters before you managed to schism off. I raised an eyebrow. Really? To what do I owe the honor? She reddened. Your last name, she said, sounding abashed. I did a report in medical school on human-to-animal transmission of the callus Amberley amplification trigger. I found you when I was looking for information on your... Your brother. I stayed for the writing. Ah, I said. She seemed about to say something more. I waited, watching her. Her blush deepened. I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that I'm sorry. I frowned. About... Buffy? It felt like all the blood in my veins had turned to ice. Careful to keep breathing, I asked. How did you know about that? She blinked, surprise unconcealed as she said, I saw the notice that she'd been added to the wall. The wall? I said. But how would they know to... Oh, Jesus. The cameras. Ms. Mason? Georgia? Are you all right? Huh? At some point, I'd looked away from her. I looked back, shaking my head. I just... I didn't realize she'd already be on the wall. Thank you. Your condolences are appreciated. I turned and walked into the changing room without waiting for her to respond, closing the door behind me. Let her think I was rude. I'm a journalist. Journalists are supposed to be rude, right? It's part of the mystique. Thoughts chased themselves through my head like leaves tumbling in the wind as I stripped off my CDC-issue pajamas and began getting my own clothes on. It took longer than normal because I had to pause every step along the way to get the appropriate recording devices, cameras, and wireless receivers into their assigned pockets. If I didn't, I wouldn't be able to find anything for weeks. Buffy's death was on the wall. I should have known it would be, since her family would have been notified, which meant there would have been an obituary. But somehow knowing that simple fact, that she'd joined all the other victims of this endless plague on the wall, made her death all the more impossible to deny. More, it reminded me of one crucial fact. We were connected to the rest of the world, even when we were isolated. The cameras were always rolling, and right now, that was what concerned me. I slid my sunglasses into place, removing the UV blocker as I shoved them up the bridge of my nose. They made me feel less naked than anything else. Reaching up, I tapped my ear cuff. Mahir, I said. Several seconds later, Mahir's sleep-muddled voice came over the line, saying, This had better be good. You realize your accent gets thicker when you're tired. Georgia? Got it. Georgia! Still got it. You're alive! Barely, and we're in CDC custody, so I need to make this fast, I said. Mahir, being the good lieutenant that he is, shut up immediately. 
I need you to download the footage from the external cameras on the van and my bike, check to make sure it's complete, and then wipe the originals. I'm doing this because... I'll explain later. When I wasn't making the call from inside a government installation, where all communications were likely to be monitored. Can you do it? Of course. Right away. Thanks, Mahir. Oh, and Georgia. I'm very grateful that you're still alive. I smiled. So am I, Mahir. Get the footage and get some sleep. I tapped my ear cuff, cutting off the call. Adjusting the collar on my jacket, I schooled my face back toward neutrality and left the changing room, heading for the duty station. The cameras. How could I have forgotten about them, even for a few minutes? We keep the external cameras recording constantly. Sometimes we've found things when we've gone back to do review, like the time Sean was able to use some shots of a totally normal highway median to track a pack of zombies hunting near the Colma border. Depending on the angle the shooter was working from, we might be able to use the latest footage to find a murderer. Assuming, of course, that whoever it was hadn't already been able to get to our hard drives and that Buffy hadn't told any of her friends about our filming habits. I was starting to feel like a conspiracy theorist. But that was all right because this was starting to feel very much like a conspiracy. Rick had less equipment than I did. He and Sean were back at the duty station when I arrived, and Rick had acquired a mug of coffee from somewhere. I started to give it a longing look and stopped as Sean handed me a can of Coke, still cold enough to have condensation beating on the sides. Truly, you are a god among men, I said. Now I'm a god, but tomorrow, when you have to stop me from playing with dead things again, you'll be right back to calling me an idiot, won't you? Sean said. Yep. I lifted the can, cracked the tab, and took a long drink before exhaling. CDC has decent taste in soda. We try, said Joe. That was the opening I needed. Lowering the can, I turned toward him, secure behind my sunglasses. You received a call reporting us dead? Time stamp puts it at two minutes before your call came in. The report flashed my screen while I was talking to you. That explained his request for detailed credentials. Did you get a name? Or better, a number? Afraid not on either, Joe said. Sean broke in. It was an anonymous tip made from a disposable mobile phone. So the number's in their records, but it doesn't mean anything. Cute. I continued watching Joe. Dr. Wynn. Joe, please. A girl comes back from the other side of legally dead, she gets to call me by my Christian name. My surprise must have shown because he chuckled without amusement, saying, The CDC gets a call that says you're virus positive. You're dead until we confirm it's a hoax. It's a standard legal and safety precaution. I stared at him. Because it's not like anyone would hoax the CDC. No one should be. And believe me, Ms. Mason, when we find the people responsible, they'll be learning that lesson right well. Joe's smile drew down into a scowl. An understandable one. Most of the people who go to work for the CDC do it out of a genuine desire to better the human condition. If anyone's going to find a cure for Kellis Amberley, it's almost certainly going to be the Centers for Disease Control, with its near-global approval ratings and even more extensive pocketbooks. Young idealists fight tooth and nail over CDC postings, and only the best ever get them. That means the CDC employs a lot of very proud people, ones who don't take things that besmirch the honor of the institution sitting down. I'd be willing to bet that whoever made that call was also responsible for shooting our tires, I said. 
Well, Miss Mason, Georgia, please. Well, Georgia, it seems like a bit of a sucker bet. And I don't customarily take those. It isn't often someone tries to pull a fast one on the CDC, and a fast one that happens to center on a convoy that's been attacked by snipers, well... Do we have any ballistics on the gun the shooter used? Joe's expression turned remote. I'm afraid that's classified. I glanced at the senator. His own expression was equally distant, his eyes fixed on some point beyond our heads. Senator? I'm sorry, Georgia. Dr. Wynn is right. Information relating directly to the police investigation of this matter is classified. I looked at him, grateful for the way my sunglasses concealed the bulk of my expression. Only Sean was likely to realize how upset I was. You mean it's classified from the media? Now, Georgia, are you seriously telling me that if I were some random Joe public, you'd answer my questions, but because I work for a news site, you won't? His silence was all the answer I needed. God damn it, Peter! We are dying for you, and you won't tell us what kind of bullets they're using for the job? Why? Because being reporters means we automatically have no sense of discretion? Is that it? We're going to run right out and cause a public panic because, gee, no one's going to suspect a cover-up when one of our own gets dead and we don't say anything but death sucks. I started stepping toward him and stopped as Rick and Sean each grabbed me by an arm. Screw you, I spat, not bothering to fight their hold. I thought you were better than this. Senator Ryman looked at me, shaking his head in open bewilderment. She's dead, Georgia. Buffy's dead. Chuck's dead. You should be dead, all of you, dead and sanitized, not here and alive, shouting at me for not wanting you to rush right back out and keep getting yourselves killed. Georgia, I'm not keeping this from you because you're a reporter. I'm keeping it from you because I'd rather you didn't die. With all due respect, Senator, I think that's a decision you have to let us make for ourselves. I shook my arm free of Sean's grasp. As soon as Sean released me, Rick did the same. We looked at Senator Ryman together, waiting for his answer. The senator glanced away. I don't want your deaths on my conscience, Georgia. Or on my campaign. Well, then, Senator, I guess we'll just have to do our best not to die, I said. He turned back to us. His expression was bleak. It was the face of a man who'd spent his life chasing a dream and was only now beginning to realize how much it might cost to get it. I'll have the report sent to you, he said. Our plane leaves in an hour, if you'll excuse me. It wasn't a question, and he didn't wait for an answer. He just turned and walked away. First time I met Buffy. Man, I didn't even know I was meeting her, you know? It was one of those types of things. Me and George, we knew we needed a fictional if we wanted to get hired at one of the good sites, because you can't just log in and be like, yo, we're two-thirds of a triple threat, give us our virtual desks. We needed a wedge, something to make us complete. And that was Buffy. We just didn't know it yet. They do these online job fair things in the blogging community, like Craigslist gone even more super specialized. Georgia and I flagged our need for a fictional at the next fair, opened a virtual booth, and waited. We were about to give up when we got a chat request from somebody who ID'd herself as B. Mason Ye and said she didn't have any field experience, but she was willing to learn. 
We talked for thirteen hours straight. We hired her that night. Buffy Masonier was the funniest woman I knew. She loved computers, poetry, and being the kind of geek who fixes your PDA before you know it's broken. She liked old TV and new movies, and she listened to all kinds of music, even the stuff that sounds like static and church bells. She played guitar really badly, but she meant every note. There are people who are going to say she was a traitor. I'll probably be one of them. That doesn't change the fact that she was my friend. For a long time, before she did anything wrong, she was my friend, and I was with her when she died, and I'm going to miss her. That's what matters. She was my friend. Buffy, I hope they have computers and cheesy television and music and people laughing where you are now. I hope you're happy on the other side of the wall. We miss you. From Hail to the King, the blog of Sean Mason, April 21st, 2040. Chapter 20 The senator and his security team came from Houston to Memphis via the Houston CDC's private plane. Every CDC installation has one fueled and ready at all times. Not because there could be an evacuation. Any outbreak large enough to require evacuating an entire CDC installation would leave a distinct lack of uninfected people to actually evacuate. But for the transfer of specialists, patients, and yes, politicians and other such notables from one location to another in a quick, efficient, and above all discreet manner. It wouldn't do to set off a public panic because someone had seen, say, the world's leading specialist in Kellis Amberley-related reservoir conditions being flown into a populated area. The nation is constantly poised on the edge of a riot, and the CDC is very aware of how easy it would be to be the match that starts the fire. The last time I was on a CDC plane and conscious of the experience, I was nine and on my way to visit Dr. William Kroll. Dr. Kroll was that world's leading specialist I mentioned before, and he thought he might have found a cure for retinal K.A. My parents, ever eager to do stupid shit in the name of a good story, flew me to Atlanta to let him test his treatment on me. His cure proved as artificial as his toupee, and his light therapy left me seeing spots for a month but I got to ride in an airplane and have an adventure without Sean. For my nine-year-old self, that was almost enough. They give you more snacks when you're nine. Also, airplane captains may be willing to let cute little girls in dark glasses hang out in the cabin, but they're not as understanding of adult journalists who just want to get away from their traveling companions. When you added the fact that the senator wouldn't look me in the eye, while Sean spent the entire flight trying to take his seat apart with a screwdriver swiped from one of the guards, it's no surprise that I was happy as hell to touch down at our destination, even though landing came barely an hour after taking off. My relief was partially fueled by the fact that CDC regulations forbade the use of wireless devices while in flight, and I hadn't heard from Mahir before we left Memphis. I was switching things on before they even opened the cabin doors. Mail alerts began sounding immediately. I had more than 500 pending mail messages, and none were the message I wanted. Six more guards were waiting on the runway, including Steve, who held a wicker cat carrier in one hand. Rick let out a wordless exclamation and pushed past Sean to snatch the carrier, starting to make cooing noises at the wide-eyed, brush-tailed Lois. Cat didn't die, I said, adjusting my sunglasses. Sean shook his head. 
Man needs a girlfriend. Hush. This is a touching reunion. I stand by my statement. Sean tilted his head back, looking up at Steve. You brought the man his cat. Looking amused, the enormous security nodded. I did. So where's my present? Will the location of your van do? I think so. Sean glanced to me. George? I was planning on holding out for a million dollars, but as long as my bike's included in the deal, I guess I can let you off easy. This time. I flashed a thin smile. Hey, Steve. Good to see you breathing, Georgia. It's good to be breathing, Steve. Robert Channing, who got elevated from chief aide to chief of staff, as soon as it became apparent that the campaign might have a genuine shot at the White House, pushed past the substantially larger guards, arrowing in on Senator Ryman like a hunting dog going for the kill. Senator, we have 20 minutes to get halfway across the city, and you can't be late or Tate's going to take the stage alone. His tone implied that this would be a horror beyond all reckoning. And we can't have that, now can we? Senator Ryman grimaced, shooting an apologetic glance our way. I'm sorry, but the job comes first, I said. Rick, give me the cat. Looking alarmed, Rick hugged the carrier to his chest. Lois yowled. Why? Because despite recent events and rampant stupidity, we're still reporters, assuming we're still allowed to be. I slanted a sidelong glance at the senator. He met my eyes and nodded. Turning back to Rick, I said, You're going with the senator to cover whatever sort of appearance this is supposed to be. Speaking to the daughters of the American Revolution, said Robert. Right, whatever, I said, waving a hand to indicate my lack of interest in the specifics. Rick, you're going to attend whatever sort of appearance this is supposed to be, and you're going to find something interesting to say about it. We're going to go check the equipment and see what sort of dive we're supposed to be camping out at. Rick nodded with obvious regret, holding the carrier out to me. I almost felt bad taking it from him. Only almost. I needed to talk to my brother, and loathe as I was to admit it, I needed to do that talking alone. Rick and Buffy had a past. Buffy betrayed us. Rick was still in the equation. If we were going to keep working with the illustrious Mr. Cousins, we had to decide to do it together, and without Rick participating in the discussion. And if we weren't, we needed to have all our ducks in a row before we invited him to seek employment elsewhere. Sounding affronted, Robert said, You're staying at the plaza with the rest of us. It's five stars, all the latest in amenities and fully licensed security. Senator, I'm sorry, but there isn't any more time to stand around and chat. Come on, please. Not pausing to allow any further discussion, he grabbed the senator by the arm and began steering him toward the waiting car. Rick followed along with all but two of the security guards. Steve was one of the guards remaining behind. The other was a Hispanic man I didn't recognize, but whose sunglasses were dark enough to either be prescription strength or render him effectively blind. He would have seemed tall next to anyone else. Next to Steve, he looks like a normal human. Shifting Lois's carrier to my left hand, I looked toward Steve. Babysitters? Bodyguards, Steve replied without levity. You folks came close to dying out there on the road. We'd like to see to it that you don't do it again. So we don't do any long-distance driving? Not good enough. Sean stepped up beside me. Are you planning to stop us from doing our jobs? No. Just to keep an eye on you while you do them. I could feel Sean starting to bristle. 
Being an Irwin means frequently taking stupid chances for the amusement of the cameras. A good Irwin can make going to the corner store for a candy bar and a Coke look death-defying and suicidal. The idea of trying to post reports with a security guard looking over his shoulder was probably about as appealing to Sean as the idea of censorship was to me. I put a hand on his arm. So, you're saying our jobs have become so dangerous that we need to be protected not from the hazards of the living dead, but from the hazards presented by our fellow man? I asked. Not exactly how I would have put it, but you're in the neighborhood, said Steve. Sean relaxed grudgingly. I guess it'll sound good in the headlines, he said, his tone implying that it wouldn't do anything of the kind. At least he was mollified. Leaving my hand on Sean's arm, I swung my head around until I was facing the second agent, not depending on my questionable peripheral vision. I'm Georgia Mason. This is my brother, Sean Mason. You would be? Andres Rodriguez, ma'am, he replied. His tone was level. Do I pass muster? That's a question for the grand jury. You can, however, take us to our hotel now. Lois yowled. I amended. Right now. I think someone's getting cranky. The cat isn't the only one, Sean said. Behave, I said. Keeping the hand that wasn't holding the carrier on his arm, we turned and followed the agents to the car. Steve and Andreas took the front, leaving us with the back seat. A sheet of soundproof safety glass cut us off from our bodyguards, turning them into vaguely imposing silhouettes that might as well have been in another car. It was a small blessing, even if I couldn't quite bring myself to relax. I didn't trust it. I didn't feel like I really trusted anything anymore. Sean opened his mouth when the engine started, but I shook my head, gesturing toward the overhead light. He quieted. Without Buffy and her tiny armada of clever devices, we had no way of knowing whether the car was bugged. It turned out that even with Buffy, we'd had no real way of knowing whether the car was bugged, since she'd sold us out. But at least we'd believed we could protect our privacy. Brow furrowed. Sean mouthed, Hotel? I nodded. Once we were in our own space with our own things, we could sweep for bugs and set up an EMP field. After that, we could talk in something resembling security. And we needed to talk. We needed to talk about a lot of things. The drive from the CDC airstrip to the hotel took approximately 20 minutes. It would have taken longer, but Steve took advantage of the priority override available to government officials and law enforcement, turning on the car's beacon and sliding us straight into the fast side of the carpool lane. The toll booths flashed green as soon as we came into receiving range. Electronic pay passes have led to a general speed-up, but nothing moves your average driver as fast as knowing that someone else is picking up the ticket for his commute. We must have provided a free pass for dozens of commuters. That almost made up for the fact that we were cutting ahead of them during the beginning rush hour, when five minutes can make the difference between home at a reasonable hour and late for dinner. Lois yowled the whole way, while Sean made a vague, disinterested show of trying to pick the lock on his side of the car. My brother's good with locks. The car's security was better. He'd made no progress by the time we pulled off the freeway and turned toward the hotel, and he put away his lockpicks with a silent expression of disgust. The downtown Houston Plaza was one of those huge, intentionally imposing buildings built just after the Rising, when they still hadn't figured out how to walk the fine architectural line between elegance and security. 
It looked like a prison coated in pink stucco and gingerbread icing. Palm trees were planted around the exterior, where they utterly failed to blunt the building's harsh angles. There were no windows at ground level, and the windows higher up the building were the dull mat of steel-reinforced security glass. The infected could batter on them for years without breaking through, assuming they somehow made the intellectual leap necessary to figure out how to use the ladder. Sean eyed the building as we circled. It wasn't until the car pulled off at the parking garage entrance that he offered his professional opinion. Just trap. Many of the early zombie-proof buildings were. I adjusted my sunglasses. The garage doors creaked open as Steve waved a white plastic fob in front of the sensors, and we drove on into relative darkness. What makes this one so deadly? All that frou-frou crap on the front of the building. You mean the trim? Right, the trim. It's supposed to be ornamental, right? Doesn't matter. I bet it would bear my weight. So if I get infected but I haven't converted, I can use the trim to climb the building looking for shelter. There are plenty of handholds. So I can get to the roof. And if this place followed the standard floor plan for the time period, there's a helicopter pad up there and multiple doors connecting it to the interior so any survivors could use it to evacuate during an outbreak. Sean shook his head. Run for the roof? It's covered in the people who ran there before you. And they're not looking for a rescue. They're looking for a snack. Charming, I said. The car pulled into a parking space and the engine cut off. I guess we're here. The front driver's side door opened. Steve emerged, heading across the garage floor to the airlock. I tried my own door, but it was still locked. The safety latches hadn't disengaged. The hell? Sean, try your door. He did and scowled. It's locked. The car intercom clicked on. Andres's voice, distorted by the speaker, said, Miss Mason, Mr. Mason, if you could be patient for a moment. My colleague is going to pass through the airlock and will wait for you on the other side. The lock on the right will be disengaged as soon as he's tested clean and Miss Mason will be permitted to proceed. Once Miss Mason has passed through the airlock, Mr. Mason will be permitted to go. Sean groaned. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. The intercom clicked again. Standard safety precautions. You can take those safety precautions and shove them sideways up your... Sean began pleasantly. I put a hand on his arm. He stopped. Mr. Rodriguez, it looks like Steve's made it through, I said, keeping my voice level. If you'd unlock my door now, please? Very well. My door unlocked. Mr. Mason, please remain seated. Miss Mason, please proceed toward the... Hey, what are you doing? You can't do that! Ignoring the shouts from the intercom, Sean finished sliding out of the car, blowing a kiss back toward the agitated shape of Andres before slamming the door and following me to the airlock. True to expectations, Andres remained seated, mouth moving as he swore at us through the glass. Nobody who cares that much about security is going to come out into the open with a possible infection, I said, taking Sean's hand in my left, swinging Lois's carrier in my right. She yowled, punctuating the statement. We're dangerous. Man thought he could make us do this separately, said Sean. Taking the still yowling Lois from me, he slid the carrier into the luggage hatch. The sensors would record the fact that the box contained a living thing, but they would also record its weight. Lois was too small for amplification and would slide straight through. Man's an idiot. No, he's an amateur, I said, moving into position in front of the blood testing panel. I raised my right hand. 
Sean stepped into position next to me and raised his left. One. Two. We pressed our palms flat. Steve was waiting on the other side of the airlock, shaking his head. You probably just scared Agent Rodriguez out of a year of his life, he scolded without conviction. Given that Agent Rodriguez just annoyed me out of a year of my life, I'd say we're even, I said, retrieving Lois from the luggage bin. Do we need to wait on him, or can you show us to our rooms? And our van, Sean said. You promised me our van. Your van is in the parking garage along with George's bike, Steve said. Fishing two small plastic rectangles out of his jacket pocket, he passed them to us. Sean, you're in room 214. Georgia, you're in room 217. We exchanged a look. Those don't sound adjoining, I said. Originally, you were going to be sharing a room with Miss Maisonnier, Georgia, while Sean and Mr. Cousins shared a room down the hall, Steve said. It seemed best to let you keep your privacy given recent events. Right. Sean handed his key back to Steve. I'll just stalk along with George until you can get me my own key. Rick and Lois can have some valuable alone time to rebond after their separation. As if on cue, Lois yowled. Steve's eyebrows arched upward. You two would rather share a room? His expression was a familiar one. We've been seeing it from teachers, friends, colleagues, and hotel concierges since we hit puberty. It's the, you'd rather share a room with your opposite gender sibling than sleep alone? Face. And it never fails to irritate me. Social norms can bite me. If I need to have someone guarding my back when the living dead show up to make my life more interesting than I want it to be, I want that someone to be Sean. He's a light sleeper. And I know he can aim. Yes. I said firmly. We two would rather share a room. For a moment, Steve looked like he might argue. Then he shrugged, dismissing it as none of his business, and said, I'll have them send up a second key and get your luggage moved. Georgia, all your things and the equipment that you had marked as vital are already in your room. That meant they'd been searched. Standard security. But I didn't particularly care. I make it a rule never to keep sensitive data unencrypted where other people might get at it. If Senator Ryman's security detail wanted to waste their time looking for answers in my underpants, they could be my guests. Excellent. We'll just head for our room then, if you don't mind. Assuming you don't feel the need to accompany us. I'm going to trust the two of you not to get yourselves killed between here and the elevator, said Steve. Thanks for the vote of confidence, I said. Sean snapped a salute and we walked away. Lois still yowling to follow the wall-mounted signs leading us to the elevators in the lobby. The hotel was old enough that the elevators still ran up and down in fixed shafts. It would have been an interesting novelty if I hadn't been so wired and exhausted. As it was, I stared at the mirrors on the walls, trying to ignore my growing headache and the increasingly fevered pitch of Lois's complaints. She wanted out of the box, and she wanted out now. I understood the sentiment. Our hotel room was as old as the elevator, with hideous wallpaper striped in yellow, green, and brown, and a steel-reinforced window looking out over the central courtyard. Sunlight reflecting off the pool three floors down turned the water into a giant flare of light, shining directly through our window. I whimpered involuntarily, whipping my face around and squeezing my eyes shut. Sean shoved past me to close the blackout curtains, and I stumbled blind into the room, letting the door swing closed. The lights were off, 
and when Sean got the curtains fastened, the room was plunged into blessed darkness. He walked back across the room, putting a hand on my elbow. It's safe now, he said. The beds are this way. That was a rotten trick, I complained and let him guide me. But funny. Not funny. I'm laughing. I know where you're planning to sleep tonight. And yet somehow, still funny. He stopped walking, pushing down on my shoulder as he took the cat carrier out of my hands. Sit. I'll get things set up. Don't forget the EMP screen, I said, settling on the bed and flopping backward. The mattress was younger than the decor. I bounced. And get the servers up. I have done this before, said Sean. The amusement was evident in his tone, but it wasn't enough to conceal the concern. You look like hell. You can tell that with the lights off? You looked like hell before the evil day star punched you in the face. Now you look like hell in a darkened room. Easier on the eyes, no less hellish. Why didn't you say anything before? We were surrounded by people, and you were getting your bitchy and thwarted on. It didn't seem appropriate. Rattling noises marked his passage across the room, followed by a thump and the sound of a light bulb being unscrewed. I'm swapping the bulbs and the bedside lights. Thanks. No worries. You're more pleasant when you haven't got a migraine. In that case, toss me my big painkillers when you're done with that. There was a pause. You actually want them? I'm going to need them after we talk. I take a lot of generic drugs for the headaches my eyes give me. That's not the same thing as my big painkillers. A nasty narcotic mix of ergot alkaloid, codeine, caffeine, and a few less pronounceable chemical agents. They kill the pain. They also kill all higher brain functions for at least six hours after I've taken them. I avoid drugging myself whenever possible, because I don't usually have the time to waste, but I was getting the feeling this might be the last free time we were going to have for a while. If spending it drugged out of my mind meant I had the stamina to handle the rest, well, I've done worse in my pursuit of the truth. Georgia, don't argue. I was just going to say that there's time for a nap before we talk if you want it. And painkillers after that. The daughters of the American Revolution always talk for hours. No, there isn't. We ran out of time when someone decided we'd outlived our usefulness. Time is now officially something we don't have. Hit the lights as soon as you're ready. Right, said Sean. There was a click. The room brightened before I heard him move away again. Servers need to initialize, and I'll turn on the screens. Your computer's on the desk if you want to get it hooked up. Got it. My headache screamed when I opened my eyes. I ignored it. The lower wattage bulbs Sean put in were bearable, if not exactly pleasant. I could deal. Sitting up, I bent forward to open the cat carrier, which was still sitting on the floor near the base of the bed. Lois was out in a flash, vanishing into the bathroom. I rose and walked over to take a seat at my desk, where I started connecting cables. I was moving gingerly to upset my head as little as possible, and that slowed me down. I was only halfway done when Sean called. Clear! I put down the plug I'd been holding, and the air filled with an electrical buzz that made all the hair on my arms stand on end. You'd better have that set low enough not to fry anything, I said, going back to work. What do you take me for, an amateur? Sean was trying to sound affronted. I wasn't buying it. It's easy to slip when you're setting up a privacy screen. That's part of why I'm not fond of using them. They also make my teeth itch. It'll short out anything around the perimeter, but as long as you don't get any closer to the walls, you'll be fine.
If you're wrong, you owe me dinner. If I'm right, you owe me dessert. Deal. I swiveled in my chair. Sean was sitting on the bed, leaning back on his hands in a pose of such sheer relaxation that it had to be forced. Skipping the preamble, I said, Buffy sold us out, and someone tried to kill us. I got that. Did you get the part where, legally, we were dead as soon as the CDC got the call saying we were infected? I did. Sean frowned. I'm surprised they didn't come in shooting. Call that the last of our luck, I said. The way I see it, they weren't just gunning for Buffy. If they were, they wouldn't have bothered calling the CDC after they saw her truck go down. Horrible accident, very tragic, but there's no need to do that sort of mopping up. Makes sense, Sean said, and flopped over backward. So what do we do? Pack our things and go running home? That might not work since presumably we already know something that's worth killing us for. Or Buffy knew something that's worth killing us for. Whoever's behind this has already proven that it's the same thing. I can't imagine we've got two conspiracies running in parallel. That means whoever had our tires shot out was also responsible for the ranch. And for Eakley, said Sean. Don't you dare forget Eakley. I wouldn't, I said. I can't. I dream about Eakley. The statement was almost offhanded, but there was a depth of hurt to it that surprised even me, and I usually know what Sean's thinking. They never saw it coming. They never had a chance. So leaving isn't an option. Leaving never was. What are we going to do about Rick? Keep him on, of course. Raising my eyebrows, I leaned forward to rest my elbows on my knees. There was no hesitation there. Why not? Don't be an idiot. Sean sat up, falling into a posture that was the natural mirror image of my own. Buffy got bit, right? Right. Buffy was dying. That's not right. Buffy was dead, and she knew it. She told us what she'd done and how to find out more about it, right? Rick was there, and she didn't finger him for a snitch. She was sorry for what she'd done, George. She didn't mean for anyone to die. So why would she have gone and left us with a cuckoo in our birdhouse? What if she didn't know? What if? Sean shook his head. They tried to kill Rick, too. If his car was a little less reinforced, or if he'd hit at a slightly different angle, he'd have been a goner. There's no way to stage that. And the call to the CDC said we were all toast, not just the two of us. So what if Buffy didn't know? Rick's not a moron. He'd have said something by now. So you say he stays. I say we can't afford to lose anyone else. And I also say that with Buffy gone, I'm an equal partner in this enterprise, so get up. I blinked. What? Get up. Sean stood and pointed to the bed. You're going to take a nap, and you're going to do it right now. I can't nap. I'm waiting for Mahir to call me back. He can talk to your voicemail. No, he can't. Georgia, just wait. No, Sean's voice was firm. I'll get the rest of the equipment set up. I'll get the servers running, and I'll check your caller ID every time your phone rings. If Mahir calls, I'll wake you without consideration for the fact that you're going to work yourself to death. I'm agreeing to that, but I'm also making an executive decision, and my decision is that you, Georgia Carolyn Mason, are going to bed. If you do not like this decision, you may appeal to the court of me hitting you in the back of the head as soon as you turn around. Can I have my painkillers? You can have two pills and a pillow, Sean said. When you wake up, the world will be a magical wonderland of candy canes, unicorns, and fully assembled servers. And Rick stays. 
Deal? Deal. I stood, stepping out of my shoes before sitting back down on the bed. Bastard. Close your eyes. I did. Sean removed my sunglasses, pressing two small round objects into my hand. Swallow those and you can have these back when you wake up. That's dirty pool, I complained, popping the pills into my mouth. They dissolved almost instantly, leaving the bitter taste of codeine behind. I wobbled and let myself fall sideways, eyes still closed. Dirty pool player. That's me. Sean kissed my forehead. Rest, George. It'll be better when you wake up. No, it won't, I said, resigning myself to the inevitable. It'll just be later. Later isn't better. Later is just when we have less time. Sleep, said Sean. So I did. This is the truth. We are a nation accustomed to being afraid. If I'm being honest, not just with you, but with myself, it's not just the nation, and it's not just something we've grown used to. It's the world, and it's an addiction. People crave fear. Fear justifies everything. Fear makes it okay to have surrendered freedom after freedom, until our every move is tracked and recorded in a dozen databases the average man will never have access to. Fear creates, defines, and shapes our world, and without it, most of us would have no idea what to do with ourselves. Our ancestors dreamed of a world without boundaries, while we dream new boundaries to put around our homes, our children, and ourselves. We limit our potential day after day in the name of a safety that we refuse to ever achieve. We took a world that was huge with possibility, and we made it as small as we could. Feeling safe yet? From Images May Disturb You the blog of Georgia Mason, April 6, 2040. Chapter 21 I awoke to the sound of Rick and Sean arguing quietly, undercut by the comforting static buzz of servers and computers. True to his word, Sean had managed to get the network up and running while I slept. I stretched experimentally and was pleased to discover that my head neither hurt nor felt like it was stuffed with medicated cotton wool. I'd live. I'd pay for it later. My headaches come from minor damage to the optical nerves, and the more I use artificial stimulants to ignore it, the more likely it becomes that the damage will be permanent. But I'd live. Telling you we're letting her sleep until she wakes up. Work on your report. It's the Daughters of the American Revolution. They haven't said anything new since the American Revolution. So it should be an easy report. Asshole. Hey, man. I just want you to do your job and let my sister get some sleep. Is that so wrong? Right now? Yes. Pet your cat and finish your report. Sean sounded exhausted. I wondered how long I'd been asleep, lost in my dreamless, drug-induced wonderland, while he wrangled the servers and waited for Mahir to call. I must have sighed because I heard footsteps. The mattress bowed as Sean leaned against the edge, asking anxiously, George, did you want something? Another eight hours of sleep, replacement eyes, and Buffy back from the dead. Since I wasn't likely to get any of the things I really wanted, I sighed and answered, My sunglasses? My voice was dry and scratchy. I turned my face toward Sean, my eyes still closed and eyebrows raised in silent punctuation to the question. He touched my hand with the tips of his fingers before he pressed my sunglasses against my palm, saying, 
You've been out for about ten hours. I've tried him here three times, but there's been no response. Beck said she spoke to him after we did, when she had to request a delete and re-upload of some of her journal files, but that's the last timestamp anybody has. Bex. Oh, Rebecca Atherton, the newsie he stole from me after things went wrong in Eakley. I slipped my sunglasses on and opened my eyes, taking a moment to orient myself before sitting up. Getting my eyes to focus took a little longer. Sean put a hand on my knee, steadying me, and I covered it with my own, turning my still blurry eyes toward the distant glow of the computers against the far wall. There was a patch of blobby darkness there that looked out of place against the green, and I nodded to it, saying, Hey, Rick. Hey, Georgia, the blob replied. Feeling any better? I'm half blind, and it feels like a flock of seagulls crapped inside my head, but it doesn't hurt, so I guess I'll live. I squeezed Sean's hand. How was the DAR meeting? Boring. Good. At least something in this world can be counted on to stay dull. My eyes were starting to work. The blob had a head now. You planning on sticking around, or do we need to post your job opening, too? Rick paused. Sean said you'd already discussed it. The two of us, yes. The three of us, not so much. I shrugged. I figured you should get a say. You plan to stick around? We're not doing so well on the survival figures, I'm afraid. One out of four sort of sucks. I'd rather take my chances with you than any place else I can think of if it's all the same. I raised my eyebrows high enough that they crested above the tops of my sunglasses. Oh? What's the logic behind that? I know I haven't known you or your brother for long, and you don't have much reason to trust me. What I'm about to say probably won't help with that. But Buffy was a friend of mine for years. She was a good person, and she never meant to hurt anyone. But if I don't stay with this team long enough to make sure you remember that, one day the news is going to get out. And she's going to be remembered not as a great writer and a good friend, but as the cause of the Eakley massacre and the cat's paw behind the death of Rebecca Ryman. The best she'll be able to hope for is traitor, and I won't have that. I could hear the frown in his voice. I'm staying because I have to. You can try to make me leave if you want to, but it's not going to be fun for any of us. I wouldn't dream of it. Giving Sean's hand a final squeeze, I stood and walked over to sit down at my computer. This close up, my screen was a little fuzzy, but it was nothing I couldn't handle. If you feel that strongly about staying, you stay. We're glad to have you. My screen blinked at me, prompting for a password. I entered it. Sean could get me online, but that didn't mean he could access my files. Starting to type, I asked, What's our general status? Buffy's death hit the newswires five minutes after it happened, said Sean, moving back to his own machine. But that's not the fun part. He paused portentously until I glared at him. He's good at detecting glares, even through dark glasses. You want the fun part? Yes, Sean, I said. I've been asleep for ten hours, and I want the fun part. Fine. Here's the fun part. Our deaths hit the wires at the same time. My eyes widened. What? We were all reported dead, Sean said. Half the news sites had the story before anyone could contradict it, and half of them are still listing you as deceased. I looked to Rick, who nodded. Whoever called the CDC made sure the call was accidentally made on a channel that several local news sites monitor for gossip, he said. We all got listed as dead before we even made it to Memphis. They printed a retraction about Sean when he posted to complain about the CDC coffee, and about half the sites did the same for me when I threw up the DAR blurb. 
he quirked a smile. I'm not interesting enough to spread as quickly as a mason. And me? I asked, too annoyed not to. Still dead, said Rick. They've got some great conspiracy theories going, too, about Sean and me concealing your death until we can prove you weren't doing something forbidden by your licensing. Thus invalidating my life insurance, I said, putting a hand over my face. Is there any more good news? Only Buffy made it to the wall, Sean said. She's the only one whose death has actually appeared in the public CDC database. I bit back a groan. How many people think we've faked our own deaths to up ratings? A lot, Sean said, voice going grim. On the plus side, if we'd really been doing that, it would have worked. We gained another three points of market share while people waited for the grisly details to pop up. And have they? On us? No. On Buffy? Yeah. It's all over the place. Somebody broke into our main camera upload and I get the picture. I'll get our official report up tonight so we can put these damn hoax rumors to rest and let people know I'm still breathing. Buffy deserves better than to have her death tarred with some publicity stunt we didn't pull. How official is this official report going to be? asked Rick. You mean, am I going to include the call the CDC got? I asked. He nodded. So did I. Yes, I am. Is that... Wise? Safe? A good idea? No, on all three counts, but I'm going to do it anyway. I pulled up my email and started scanning the list of senders, looking for Mahir's name. Somebody who's depending on secrecy wants us out of the way. So screw them. We're taking that secrecy away. And when they start shooting? Who says they've stopped? Even with Buffy's astonishingly well-constructed filters, the amount of spam that had managed to get through was daunting. I began deleting. That reminds me, we need to hire a new head for the fictionals. Rick shot me a sharp look. Doesn't that seem a little abrupt? Buffy just died. Buffy's death was abrupt. This is necessary. The fictionals aren't like the Newsies or the Irwins. They won't keep working just because they don't know how to hold still. They need management, or it turns into a million works in progress and nothing that actually progresses. Unless we want to start getting angry letters from people wanting to know where the next installment of some 50-part serial romance is, we need a new division head. Sean blinked. Buffy didn't name anyone? Buffy thought she was immortal. Talk to Magdalene. Even if she won't do it, she can probably suggest somebody who will. Suddenly tired again, I set my spam purge to run on auto and minimize the window, pulling up the staff LWNT directory. That archive contained a current copy of the last will and testament of every employee currently on the After the End Times payroll, including details on the dispensation of their intellectual property. Properly filed and witnessed wills are legally required for all businesses whose normal routine brings them into contact with federally established hazard zones, the infected, or members of the working press. Journalists. As dangerous as zombies under modern American law. According to the directory timestamps, Buffy's file hadn't been updated since we left California. I entered my password to open the file. Both Sean and I possess the legal authority to access all files stored on our servers, just in case of situations like this. The document flashed open. It was a read-only copy of the actual document, which was being held, according to the header information, by the Masonier family lawyer back in Berkeley. For our purposes, it was more than sufficient. Sean slid out of his chair and stepped up behind me, resting a hand on my shoulder. Buffy left the bulk of her personal possessions to her family, her written works and literary estate to the site as a whole, 
and her nonfiction, which is to say her personal files, to Sean and me. We had the right to use her data however we saw fit. There was no mention of a successor, but that didn't matter because the last rider told me everything we needed to know. Son of a bitch, I muttered. She knew she was going to die over this, and she knew she was doing the wrong thing even if she didn't want to admit it to herself. She knew. How can you say that? asked Rick. Sean answered for me, saying, She left us her personal files. Why would she do that if she didn't know we'd need something that's in them? Maybe she felt like she had to do this, but that doesn't mean she managed to convince herself that it was right. George? Rick, I need you to find a new head for the fictionals. I hit print and closed the file. That's your assignment for right now. Well, that and the DAR report. Sean, I'm going to need to do a news report on what happened, but, but the bulk of it's an Irwin thing. Got it. Sean squeezed my shoulder before returning to his own machine. What about Buffy's files? The server she told us to access? I'd really like that camera footage Mahir has. I was hoping to get that out of the way first, but yeah, the files. I'll head over there now. George, just be quiet while I deal with this, I said, almost more curtly than I'd meant to, and began to type. After the End Times maintains two file servers for employee use. One, the so-called public server, is open to uploads and downloads by every blogger we employ as well as every blogger even remotely affiliated with the site. If you do any work for us at all, we open an account for you on the public server, and those accounts are rarely revoked unless there's active abuse. There's just no point, especially since we have a tendency to reuse freelancers. Why burn goodwill on a server purge? More important, why waste time by forcing your IT person to set up the same accounts more than once? When we're a little bigger, if we live that long, We'll need to reconsider that policy, but it's served us well so far. The private server is a lot more locked down. There are presently seven people whose accounts include access to that server, and one of them is dead. Me, Mahir, and Rick from the Newsies, Buffy and Magdalene from the Fictionals, Sean and Bex from the Irwins. That's where we keep the important things, from private financial records to stories about the campaign that still need to have their facts verified. That server is as hack-proof as it can be, because one unverified story leaked under my byline would be enough to seriously cripple, if not kill, the news section of our site. The news is serious business. If you're not willing to treat it that way, you shouldn't be anywhere near it. I opened an FTP window and fed in the address for our secure server. When it prompted me for a username and password, I typed in, Sounding C followed by the password February-4-29. Sean and Rick abandoned their workstations and moved to stand behind me, watching as the screen flickered once, twice, and then rolled as a video player seized control of my machine. Tapping the escape key did nothing to stop the program from opening, so I settled back in my seat, comforted by the presence of my team. We weren't much, and we were dwindling by the day, but the three of us were all that we had left. The screen stopped rolling as the much-beloved face of Buffy Maisonnier became clear. She was seated cross-legged on the counter of our van, wearing her patchwork vest and tattered broomstick skirt. I recognized that outfit. She'd been wearing it the day we left Oklahoma City, when we'd barely been speaking to one another. She'd wanted us to give it up. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, they say. Well, it was a little late now, but at least I understood why she'd wanted so badly to make us all head home. She'd been trying, in her misguided way, to save our lives. 
Looking into the camera, Buffy smiled. Hey, she said. Her voice and expression combined to paint the picture of a woman tired beyond all reckoning, so worn through that she was no longer sure she could be patched back together again. I guess you guys are watching this. Schrodinger's video recording. If you can see it, it's too late for you to tell me what the picture quality is like. Isn't that always the way? It's my masterpiece and I'll never see the reactions. I guess that means I won't have to live with the reviews either. I should get down to business though, because if you're watching this, you probably don't have much time left to waste. My name is Georgette Marie Maisonnier, license number Delta Bravo Echo 841207. I am of sound mind and body, and I am making this recording to testify that I have willingly and knowingly participated in a campaign to defraud the American public, beginning with my business partners, Sean Philip Mason and Georgia Carolyn Mason. As a part of this campaign, I have fed news reports and private feeds to third parties with the understanding that they would use this information to undercut the presidential campaign of Senator Peter Ryman and planted recording devices in private spaces with the understanding that the material thus collected would be used to further undermine the campaign. On the screen, Buffy paused to take a deep breath, looking suddenly very young behind her exhaustion. I didn't know. I knew that what I was doing was wrong and that I'd never work in the news again. But I didn't know anyone was going to get hurt. I didn't know until the ranch. And by then, I was in too deep to find a way out again. I'm sorry. That doesn't bring back the dead, but it's the truth. Because I didn't want anyone to get hurt. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought that when this was over, we'd be a stronger nation because of what I'd done. A tear escaped her left eye, running down her cheek. It would have seemed overly theatrical if I hadn't known Buffy as well as I did. Knowing her... It wasn't theatrical enough. She was really crying. I see them when I dream. I close my eyes and they're all there. Everyone who died in Eakley. Everyone who died at the ranch. It was my fault and I'm so afraid we got this job because someone who could manipulate the numbers knew I was for sale if you offered the right price. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean any of it. If I knew who I'd been sold to, I'd tell you, but I don't. I went out of my way to never know, because if I'd known, I think if I'd known, I would have realized that it was wrong. Buffy looked away from the camera, wiping her eyes. I got in too deep. I couldn't get back out. And you won't let us go home. Giorgio, why can't we go home? She turned back toward the lens, both eyes brimming with tears. I don't want to die. I don't want you to see this. Please, can't we just go home? God, Buffy, I'm sorry. I whispered. My words dropped into the silence that followed her plea like rocks into a wishing well, with as little effect. On the screen, Buffy took a deep breath and held it before letting it slowly out. You're going to see this, she said, lips tugging up into a small and bitter smile. You have to see it, or you'll never know the truth. By triggering this file, you've mailed a video to my parents telling them how sorry I am and how much I loved what I did. When it closes, You'll have access to my private directory, including a file named Confession. It's locked and time-stamped. If you don't open it, it'll be admissible in court. I didn't trust everything to the servers. I think I know better than anyone else right now just how dangerous it is to trust people. You have something of mine that no one else has. Look there. You'll find everything I've got, including the access codes for all those listening devices. Good luck. Avenge me if you can. And I'm sorry. Buffy paused, smiling for real this time, and added, This? 
being here with you, following this campaign, really was what I wanted. Not all of it, maybe, but I'm glad I came. So thank you. And good luck. The picture winked out. The three of us stayed frozen in our silent tableau for several minutes. A sniffle from behind my left shoulder told me Rick was crying. Not for the first time, I damned Kellis Amberley for taking that simple human comfort away from me. What does she mean something we have that no one else does? Sean asked, putting his hand on my right shoulder. All her luggage was in the truck. But we have her laptop, I said. Pushing my chair back from the desk, I rose, turning to face them. Get me a toolkit and her computer. Never steal another reporter's story. Never take the last of another reporter's ammo. Never mess with another reporter's computer. Those are the rules. Unless you work for a tabloid where they replace never with always. But once you're dead, you're meat, and all bets are off. I had to keep telling myself that as I used a screwdriver to work the bottom panel off Buffy's laptop. Sean and Rick stood nearby, watching. We'd already scanned the machine itself and found nothing. Literally nothing. She wiped the drives at some point, probably before we left on the drive that killed her. When it came to paranoia, Buffy was world class. She had good reason to be, after Eakley. It was somehow anticlimactic when the laptop's bottom panel came free, tearing the tape stretched between it and the battery case and dropping a data stick into my hand. I held it up, showing it to the two of them. The plot thickens, I said. Sean, Bex used to be a newsie. How's she with computers? Not as good as Buffy. No one's as good as Buffy. But she's good. Good enough? Only one way to find out. He held out his hand. I gave him the data stick without a moment's hesitation. The day I couldn't trust Sean, it was over. Simple as that. Get her online and get her going through these files. Buffy said there were timestamps and IPs. We need to see what they can give us. I stood. Rick, get back on that report. What are you going to do? Rouse Mahir, I said, moving back to my machine. The chair was still warm. Things were moving faster than they seemed. I don't care what it takes. We need to get a copy of whatever's on that disc stored off-site. And I think London qualifies. Georgia? Rick's tone was soft. I glanced toward him. He hadn't moved back to his own machine. He was just standing there, looking at me. What? Are we going to survive this? Probably not. You want out? No. He shook his head. I just wanted to know whether you realized that. I do, I said. Now get to work. Both nodding, Rick and Sean did exactly that. For all that Mahir seemed to be out or asleep, or, God forbid, if this was somehow even bigger than it looked, already dead, his machine address still registered on the network. I tapped it in along with my priority code, activating a personalized screamer. If he did anything online, he'd start getting loud, intrusive pings demanding that he contact me immediately. Screamers are generally viewed as extremely poor form outside of emergencies. As far as I was concerned, this qualified as an emergency. Satisfied that I'd done everything I could be reasonably expected to do in order to find my second, I bowed my head, set my fingers to the keys, and went to work. There's something deeply reassuring about doing a factual report. You have every bit of information you need at your fingertips waiting to be smoothed out and turned into something that makes sense. Take the facts, take the faces, take the facets of the truth, 
polish them until they gleam and put them on paper, or in my case, put them in pixels, as an exercise for the reader. I set my feed for a live page by page, with a license confirmation on the upload. Anyone who really thought this was some sort of cover-up for my death could report the site to the licensing committee for abuse of my number, and that would cancel the rumors faster than anything else I could do. It'd make good news, too. The emails started coming in as soon as my first page was uploaded. Most of it was positive, congratulating me on my survival and assuring me that my readers had known all along that I'd get out alive. A few letters were less friendly, including one I tagged for upload with the op-ed piece I was planning to write. It said Sean and I deserved to die at the hands of the living dead, since sinners like us were about as ethically advanced. It would fit perfectly with the reality of how Buffy had been bought. Page six had just gone up when Sean called. Beck says she's cross-checking the IPs now. Most of them look to be scrambled. Meaning? Meaning she can't follow them. Damn. How about the timestamps? They prove it wasn't any of us or the senator, but not too much other than that. Just going by the times, it could even be Mrs. Ryman. Double damn. Got any good news for me? Sean looked up from his screen, grinning. How does access codes on all Buffy's bugs sound? Like good news, I said. I would have said more, but my computer beeped, flashing an urgent message light at the bottom of the screen. I double-clicked the prompt. Mahir's face appeared in a video window, his hair unkempt and his eyes wild as he demanded, What's going on? What's wrong? You weren't answering your phone, I said, embarrassed even as the words left my mouth. He was on the other side of the world. There was no way this situation could hold the same urgency for him. The local fictionals were holding awake in poetry reading in Buffy's honor. He brushed his hair out of his face. I tended to report on it. I'm afraid I had a bit too much to drink. Now he sounded sheepish. I fell asleep as soon as I got home. That explains how you slept through the screamer, I said. Twisting in my seat, I asked. Sean, we have a local copy of those files? In the local group directory, he confirmed. Good. I turned back to my computer. Mahir, I'm going to upload some files to your directory. I want you to save them locally. Make at least two physical copies. I recommend storing one of them off-site. Should I delete them from the server once I've finished reading? His tone was light, attempting to joke with me. Mine wasn't light at all. Yes, that would be a good idea. If you can pull the rest of your files long enough to reformat your sector, that wouldn't be a bad idea either. Georgia, he hesitated. Is there something I should be aware of? I bit back the urge to start laughing. Buffy was dead. We'd been reported dead to the CDC. Someone had tried to use us to undermine the United States government. There was a lot going on that he needed to be aware of. Please, I said. Download the files, read them, and give me your honest opinion. You want my honest opinion? His expression was filled with naked concern. Get out of that country, Georgia. Come here before something happens that you can't bounce back from. England wouldn't want me. We'd find a way. Entertaining as political exile might be, Sean would go crazy if I forced him to move, and I wouldn't go without him. Impulsively, I removed my sunglasses and offered Mahir's image a smile. I'm sorry I may never get to meet you. Mahir looked alarmed. Don't talk that way. Just read the files. Tell me how to talk after you do that. All right, he said. Be safe. I'll try. I tapped the keys to start the upload and his image winked out.
replaced by a status bar. Georgia? Sean's voice, the wrong name. I turned toward him, a cold spot forming in my stomach as I registered the fact that he hadn't called me George. What? Bex is one of the bugs online. And? And I think you ought to hear this. Reaching over, he pulled his headset jack out of the speakers. The crackle and hiss of a live transmission promptly blared into the room, seeming all the louder in the sudden silence. Even Lois, crouched next to Rick's monitor, was silent and still, her ears slicked back and her eyes stretched wide. Hear me? Tate's voice was almost impossibly loud, amplified by the bug's internal pickups and Sean's speakers. We are going to solve this problem, and we're going to solve it now, before things get any worse. Another voice, this one indistinguishable. Sean caught my eye and nodded. He'd have Bex running it through a filter as soon as we finished listening, trying to clean it up enough to determine the speaker. That was all we could really do. And I'm telling you, they're getting too close. With the Masonier girl gone, we can't steer them anymore. There's no telling how many of those damn bugs she planted around the offices. I told you we couldn't trust a spook. I caught my breath as Rick started swearing under his. Only Sean was completely silent, his lips pressed into a tight line. Unaware that he was being listened to, Tate continued. I'm in her little boyfriend's portable office. If there was any spot she wouldn't bug, it'd be the one where she was doing her own share of the sinning. He really didn't know her very well, Rick said, in a bitter, distant tone. Neither did we, Sean replied. I don't care how you take the rest of them out, Tate barked. Just do it. If the CDC couldn't finish them off, we'll find another way. Understand me? Do it! There was a slam, as if a receiver was being thrust rudely into its cradle, followed by the sound of footsteps. The hiss continued for a few more seconds, then cut off as suddenly as it had started. The only cut and save when there's sound being received, said Sean needlessly. We all knew how Buffy's saver bugs worked. Plant them, and they'd press anything they heard to file, going dormant to save their batteries when the space around them was silent. She must not have been listening to her files, just saving and transmitting them, serene in her own certainty that her side was the right one. Tate, snarled Rick. That fuck. Tate, I said. My eyes were burning. Finally sliding my sunglasses back into place, I looked from one to the other. We have to see the senator. Can we trust him not to be a part of this? Sean asked. I hesitated. How good is Bex? Not that good. Fine. I swiveled back to my screen. Screamers on everyone. Get the whole team online. I don't care where they are. I want them here. Georgia? said Rick uncertainly. I shook my head already beginning to type. Shut up. Sit down and get started. We have work to do. Every life has a watershed moment, an instant when you realize you're about to make a choice that will define everything else you ever do, and that if you choose wrong, there may not be that many things left to choose. Sometimes the wrong choice is the only one that lets you face the end with dignity, grace, and the awareness that you're doing the right thing. I'm not sure we can recognize those moments until they've passed us. Was mine the day I decided to become a reporter? The day my brother and I logged on to a job fair and met a girl who called herself Buffy? The day we decided to try for the plum assignment of staff bloggers to the Ryman campaign? 
Or was it the day we realized this might be the last thing we ever did and decided not to care? My name is Georgia Mason. My brother calls me George. Welcome to my watershed. From Images May Disturb You, the blog of Georgia Mason, April 8, 2040. Chapter 22 It took two hours and 17 minutes to gather every blogger, associate blogger, administrative employee, system administrator, and facilities coordinator employed by After the End Times together in one hastily opened virtual conference room. Our conferencing system has 11 rooms, and the 11th had never been successfully hacked, but Buffy built them all. The code was hers, and I didn't feel like we could trust it anymore. We would have invited the volunteer moderators. Leaving them out didn't seem right, but we didn't have any way of contacting them without using unsecured channels. And that was the last thing I was willing to do just now. With Bex, Alric, and Dave, who was finally back from Alaska, having acquired several hundred hours of footage and a minor case of frostbite, working in tandem, we almost had a functional replacement for Buffy. Alric and Dave did most of the heavy lifting of setting up the room, freeing Bex to keep trying to sift through Buffy's data. There was a lot to sort through. The atmosphere started out jovial, if tinged with unavoidable melancholy. Buffy was dead. We weren't. And every person who logged on seemed to feel the need to comment on both facts, congratulating us on our survival even as they mourned for her. The fictionals were taking it the hardest. No surprise there, although I was pleased to see Magdalene stepping up to comfort the ones who seemed the most distraught. No fewer than four of the network connections we were getting off the fictionals were coming from her house. Fictionals tend to be the most social and the most paranoid of the bloggers you're likely to encounter, but Maggie, with her sprawling old farmhouse with the military-grade security system, has a talent for getting them to set the second aside in favor of the first. She could have been an alpha at her own site if she'd wanted it, but what she'd wanted was to work with Buffy. That wasn't an option anymore. I tapped an IM to Rick, reminding him to ask her about taking the department. If she was handling the morning period this well, she'd definitely be an asset. The grumbling started about an hour in, when the congratulatory celebration of our survival died down, and it became apparent both that there were people online but working on some sort of secret project, and that we weren't planning to tell anyone what was going on until everyone arrived. No exceptions, no allowances. Not this time. The last person to log on was a Canadian fictional named Andrea, mumbling something about hockey games and cold-weather romances as her connection finished rolling and her picture stabilized. I wasn't really paying attention by that point. That wasn't why we were here. Is everyone's connection stable and secure? I asked. Tapping out a predetermined sequence of characters on my keyboard caused the borders of the dozens of tiny video windows to flash yellow. If the answer is yes, please input the security code now appearing at the bottom of your screen. If the answer is no, hit enter. We will be terminating this conference immediately if we can't confirm security. The grumbling slowed. People had been relieved to see us when we first called them, confused as I refused to let them off the line, and finally annoyed by our group refusal to tell them what was going on. Add draconian security measures and it became clear that something was up. One by one. The borders of the video windows representing our staff flashed white and then green as their security status was confirmed. Sean's window was the last to change states. We'd agreed on that beforehand. 
he would close the loop. Excellent. I picked up my PDA, which had been queued to my email client since the conference began, and tapped send. Please check your email. You'll find your termination notice, along with a receipt confirming that your final paycheck has been deposited to your bank account. Due to California's at-will status and the fact that you're all employed under hazard restrictions, I'm afraid we're not required to give you any notice. Sorry about that. The conference exploded as everyone started talking at once, voices overlapping into a senseless barrage of sound. Almost everyone. Mahir, Bex, Alric, and Dave stayed silent, all of them having ascertained from the process of getting the conference online that something huge was going on. Sean, Rick, and I sat quietly, waiting for the Fuhrer to die down. It took a while. The Irwins shouted the loudest, while the Newsies shouted the least. They knew me well enough to know that if I was supporting a grand gesture, and this was a grand gesture, there had to be a reason. They trusted me enough to wait and see what it was. Good team. I hired well. I set my PDA aside when the shouting began to quiet, saying, None of you work for us. None of you have any legal ties to keep you here. If you choose to log off at any point during the next five minutes, I'll see to it that you have a letter of recommendation stating that your value as a journalist is entirely beyond measure. You'll never have this easy a time finding another job in your life because I'll pull strings to get you hired. I'll make sure you're settled, and then I'll write you off. This is the all-or-nothing moment, folks. Walk away now if you want to walk, but if you do, you're walking for keeps. There was a long silence broken when Andrea asked, Can you tell us why you're doing this? Buffy's dead and now we're fired, interjected Alaric. You don't think these things might be connected? I just, not very well you didn't. Do me a favor, dears, and shut up so our former boss can speak, Magdalene sighed. You're giving me a headache. Thank you, Maggie. I looked around my screen, studying each video window in turn. Andrea... The answer to why we're doing this is a simple one. We don't want any of you to feel obligated to stay with this site any longer than you already have. I'm sure you've all heard about the call the CDC received reporting our deaths. Murmurs of agreement. It was received before we placed the call to tell them we were still alive. Someone shot out our tires. There was no one else on the road, and yet somebody told the CDC that we'd been killed. Do you have timestamps on that? asked Alric, suddenly alert. We do, I confirmed, nodding to Sean, who began to type. Alric glanced away from his video transmitter, signaling the arrival of the appropriate files and quieted. Buffy didn't die in an accident. Buffy was murdered, and her killers thought they'd killed us, too. There's a lot more going on, but that's the important part right now. Buffy was murdered. Her murderers would have been happy to do the same to the three of us and that means I can't put it past them to do the same to any of you. This is your chance to make a graceful exit before I tell you why they want us all dead. I tap my PDA again. If you check your email, you'll see an offer of new employment. Everyone but you, Magdalene, and you, Mahir. We need to talk to you offline. From Magdalene's nod, it was apparent that she'd been expecting that request, or something similar. Mahir just looked floored. I'd been anticipating both responses. Again, if you want to refuse, that's fine. You will have five minutes to make your decision. If you haven't decided within that time, I'll disconnect you from this conference. Should you choose to leave this organization, you will have 12 hours to remove your personal files from our servers. At the end of that time, 
Your access will be revoked, and you'll need to contact a member of the senior staff to obtain anything you haven't downloaded. I paused, giving the others a chance to speak. No one said a word. All right. Please review your contracts. If you accept, enter the security code listed under the space for your license number. If you do not accept, it has been a pleasure working with you. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. More silence followed this announcement as people opened and read their new employment agreements. Nothing had really changed from their original contracts. They got the same number of shares and the same percentages of the various merchandising lines, and they were expected to hold to the same deadlines and levels of journalistic conduct. In another way, everything had changed from their original contracts, because when those contracts were signed, nobody was trying to kill us. We weren't offering hazard pay or guaranteed ratings. We were just offering a lot of danger, and the only real reward was the chance to be a part of telling a truth that was bigger than any of us on our own. Andrea was again the first to speak, saying, I... I'm sorry, Georgia. Sean. I just... I was here because Buffy asked me to come. I never wanted to deal with this sort of thing. I can't. It's all right, Ace, said Sean soothingly. He's always been good with this sort of thing. That makes one of us. Thank you for all your hard work. I'm sorry I couldn't stay longer, said Andrea. I... Good luck, all of you. Wiping her cheeks with the back of her hand, she looked away from her webcam just before the picture blinked off leaving a black rectangle on the corner of my screen. That was the pebble that kicked off the avalanche. Screen borders started blinking white as people agreed to their new contracts. Video windows started blacking as people mumbled their apologies and logged off. Some of the answers we got weren't a surprise. I knew Alric and Bex would stay. Sean had given me the same reassurance about Dave. With Buffy gone, there was no one to vouch for the fictionals, but it seemed likely that we'd lose at least half of them. What I wasn't expecting was how many of my newsies would be making their apologies along with them. Luis put it best. It's not that I don't think you're doing the right thing. I know you. You're doing the only thing you can. But people are going to get hurt, and I can't afford to be one of them. I have a family. I'm sorry. And then he was gone, disconnected like half the fictionals and most of the administrative staff. We were left with less than half of our original connections when the disconnection stopped, and the only windows not outlined in white were those belonging to Magdalene and Mahir. I looked to the window that held my anxious, former second-in-command and said, I'll call you when this is over, before tapping out the code to close the connection. Magdalene, you can stay if you understand that you're not currently employed by this site. I'm assuming you're about to go over the current risk situation and that you're not hiring me right away because my contract needs review since you want me to do Buffy's job, said Magdalene, matter-of-factly. Sound right? Sounds exactly right, said Rick. I'll stay. It's my problem as much as it is yours, and my department's going to need me to know what's going on. Thank you, I said. I meant it. She'd never really replace Buffy but her response told me that she was willing to try. Rick, transmit the files. Done. Everyone, please check your mail. You'll find an attachment detailing what we currently know, including that whoever ordered Buffy's death was highly placed in the current government. Tate is involved. This information isn't just sensitive, it's potentially enough to get any one of us killed. Read it, 
transfer it to offline storage, and wipe your mail. Whether you're involved with our ongoing efforts to find out what's going on is going to be up to you. But if we're convicted of, say, treason against the United States government, all of you have just placed your asses on the line. Welcome to our party. I stood. Sean and Rick will be remaining to answer any questions you may have. Sean speaks for the Irwins, and Rick, as my new second, will be speaking for the Newsies. Thank you for coming. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to make a phone call. Ignoring their protests, I walked into the bathroom, turning off the interior lights before closing the door behind me. While Dave and Alric were cobbling together a new conference room, Sean and I had been isolating the bathroom in its own frequency screen, creating an envelope that could only be broken by transmissions made on a very specific set of bandwidths. Most of my equipment was as good as dead on the other side of that door, which was exactly how I wanted it to be. If I had that much trouble dialing out, the rest of the world was going to have one hell of a time dialing in. Even with the screen's keys coded into my PDA, it took almost five minutes to establish a connection with Mahir's phone. His first words were delivered in a sharp, wounded tone. What the hell was that about? Have I given you some reason to doubt my dedication to this site? Have I ever done anything other than precisely what you asked of me? Because I'm not feeling terribly valued at the moment, Miss Mason. Hello to you too, Mahir, I said, leaning against the bathroom sink and removing my sunglasses. The glow from my PDA was enough for me to see by. It wasn't enough to relieve my headache, but it was a start. You are terribly valued. That's why I fired you. There was a long pause as he tried to sort through that sentence. Finally, he admitted, I'm afraid I'm not following you. Look, there's every chance in the world that things are going to go wrong. I wish that I was lying to him. I never wanted to be a liar so badly in my life. We're playing in an arena we're not equipped for, and there's nobody we can call who has the tools we need to get equipped for it. We're either going to find what we're looking for, or we're going to go down in flames. What does that have to do with firing me? You seem happy to take everyone else down with you. What robs me of my right to a seat on the Titanic? The fact that I need you to be receiving the signals in the Coast Guard Tower. There was a pause. Then, I'm listening. If this goes as badly as it has the potential to go, if it goes all the way wrong, we could wind up dead, and everyone who works for the site could wind up charged with treason against the United States government. If whoever's behind all this can somehow turn it from their plot into our plot, that means every employee of After the End Times is in a position to be charged with terrorist involvement in the use of live state Kellis Amberley to bring about human viral amplification. Oh my God, said Mahir, sounding horrified. I hadn't considered that. I didn't think you had, I said grimly. The Raskin-Watts ruling of 2026 didn't impact just America. How could any country, however opposed to the United States government it might be, afford to look like it was soft on the matter of the infected? It couldn't. Every industrialized nation in the world with an extradition treaty had stepped forward by the end of 2027 to state that any individual found guilty of using or conspiring to use Kellis Amberley as a weapon would be turned over to the government of the affected nation or nations in order to stand trial. Being outside the boundaries of a country no longer protected you from that country's laws if you were foolish enough to cross the one line everyone had agreed to draw in the sand. The United States doesn't apply the death penalty to many crimes these days. Terrorism remains an exception to this particular rule. Use Kellis Amberley as a weapon and die.
that plain, that simple, that universal. Georgia, I appreciate the thought. I truly do. But I don't think sparing me is going to save the rest of you. It's not intended to, I said. Well, then what is it intended to do? It's intended to give you time to download everything off the server, burn it to disk, and run for Ireland, I said. Ireland has never had an extradition treaty with the United States. It still doesn't. If you can get across the border, you can probably lie low for years. And do what? Hope they forget that I'm an international terrorist. Make sure the world finds out the truth. The pause this time was even longer. When Mahir spoke again, his voice was quiet and very distant. I'm not sure whether I should be flattered that you trust me this much, or disturbed that you've just informed me that my life is your contingency plan. Does that mean you won't do it? Are you mad? Of course I'll do it. I'd have done it if you'd asked me up front, and if you'd asked me in a month. It's the only way. He hesitated before adding, wistfully, I just wish I were better with the notion of you doing this unsupported. Rick's a good fellow, but I've not worked with him long enough to feel like I'm leaving you in competent hands. What he can't manage, Sean will, I said. I'm going to cut off your official server access at midnight. I'll be mirroring all our findings on the old server address. You remember the old server? The old server was a box we rented from Talking Points when we were all a part of Bridge Supporters. We'd used it to back up our files when we were on the road, since Bridge supporters wouldn't post anything that hadn't been through full validation and didn't store anything uploaded by a beta blogger for more than 24 hours. We hadn't used it since well before the campaign trail began, and almost no one outside the clerical staff at Talking Points knew I still had the lease. It wasn't entirely secure, but it wasn't ours, either. Mahir could access it without leaving a trail that would prove he was still part of our group. I do, he said. I suppose I shouldn't call you after this. Not a good idea. I'll contact you when I can. Right, he chuckled. Cloak and dagger, that's us. Welcome to journalism. Indeed. I do wish I'd met you in the flesh, Georgia Mason. I truly do. It's been an honor and a privilege working with you. You may still get the chance, Mahir. I'm not ready to count us out yet. I slid my sunglasses back on. Be good, be careful, and be alert. Your name is still connected to After the End Times. I can't change that. I wouldn't want you to. You do the same, won't you? I'll try. Good night, Mahir. Good night, Georgia. And good luck. The click of the call disconnecting sounded more final than it had any right to. Snapping my phone closed, I straightened, sighed, and reached for the door. It was time to get back to my team. We had an awful lot of work to do. It is with regret, but without shame, that I must announce my resignation from this site. We part not over differences of politics or religion, but merely over a desire to explore different things. I wish the Masons the best in their future projects, and I look forward to seeing what they will accomplish. I'm sure it will be something spectacular. From Fish and Clips, the blog of Mahir Gowda, April 9, 2040. Chapter 23 Six weeks is a long time in the news, even when you're not working on a big project. Following a political campaign is a big project, one that's capable of taking up the resources of an entire team of dedicated bloggers. 
Training a new division head is also a big project. The fictionals tend to require the least amount of hand-holding, being largely content to sit around, tell each other stories, and look surprised when other people want to read them. But the person in charge of keeping them on task needs to be more focused than the rest of the breed. There were contracts to sign and review, permissions to change, files to transfer, and a thousand little administrative things to handle that none of us wanted to deal with. Not with Buffy's blood still fresh in our minds. Buffy caused her share of problems during those six weeks. Maybe she was gone, but she was still very much a part of the team, and not a productive one. Beck spent the bulk of her time hunting through our code and communications feeds looking for bugs and backdoors. I'd clearly never realized how paranoid Buffy really was, because the number of confirmed recording devices hidden internally was over three digits, and Bex was still finding feeds for wireless listening devices hidden in just about every office, public gathering place, and conference center we'd been to since this whole thing started. If she'd wanted to go CIA, she could have owned the place, Sean muttered on the day Bex confirmed that there were still bugs running in Eakley. But would they have put up with her fixation on sappy purple poetry? Guess not. Alric and Dave followed Bex through our systems, rebuilding the mess she made as she rooted out Buffy's worms. Together, they were almost up to the task of remaking the things Buffy had built alone, although it was starting to wear on them. They'd signed on as journalists, not computer technicians. Hire new field systems maintainer was near the top of my to-do list, right under Uncover Massive Political Conspiracy, Avenge Buffy's Death, and Don't Die. And even with all of this going on, we still had a job to do. Multiple jobs, really. Not only did we need to keep following the Rhyme and Tate campaign, which continued to gather steam, now buoyed by not one, not two, but three major tragedies, earning us a lot of extra news cycles in the traditional media outlets, as well as online. We needed to keep our beta bloggers on task and updating the rest of the site. The news marches on, whether you're walking wounded or not. That's one of the beautiful things about the news. It's also one of the most frustrating. Two weeks in Houston. Two weeks of sending Rick on every assignment we could get away with sending him on, while Sean and I locked ourselves in our hotel room and planned for a war we'd never signed up for against an adversary we'd never volunteered to fight. Whose side was Ryman on? I was guessing he wasn't a part of Tate's plan. No sane man would sacrifice his daughter like that. Then again, Sean and I were adopted to satisfy the Masons' desire to prove the zombie war had been won by the living, and they've never stopped us from walking into the jaws of death. If anything, they've encouraged it, living for the ratings, because when they lost Phil, the ratings were all they had. So who are we to judge the sanity of parents? We sat up until almost dawn every night, working through the darkness, making plans, making contingencies for those plans looking for a way out of a maze we didn't see before we were already lost inside it. Sean pretended he didn't know I wasn't sleeping, and I pretended not to hear him punching the bathroom walls. Caffeine pills and surgical tape. That's what I'll always think of when I think of Houston. Caffeine pills and surgical tape. I tried to talk to Ryman twice. He tried to talk to me three times. None of our attempts synchronized. I couldn't trust him when I didn't know whether or not he was working with Tate. He couldn't understand why we'd pulled away, or why we were overworked and snarly with exhaustion. Even Sean was visibly withdrawn.
He'd stopped going out in the field with Steve and the boys when he didn't need to file reports. And while he was still meeting his contracted duties, he wasn't doing it with anything like the flair and enthusiasm Ryman had come to expect from him. From all of us. There wasn't anything we could do about it. Until we knew if we could trust him, we couldn't tell him what was going on, what we suspected, what we knew, anything. And until we told him what was going on, we couldn't be sure we could trust him. It was a Mobius strip of a problem, endlessly twisting back on itself, and I couldn't see a way out of it. So we pushed him away and hoped he'd understand the reasons when things were over. After Houston, it was time to get back on the road, rolling across the country like nothing had ever gone wrong. Not nothing. Chuck was gone, replaced by a pale-faced drone who scuttled around doing his job and avoiding anything that resembled socialization. Our security detail tripled while we were moving, and Sean was no longer allowed to ride out unescorted. He took an almost malicious glee in forcing his babysitters to follow him into the nastiest, most dangerous terrain he could find, and some of the footage he got out of it has frankly been amazing. The Irwin community has been buzzing about putting him up for a Golden Stevo Award this year, and I'll be surprised if he doesn't win. We spent a month glad-handing our way across the western half of the country while the other candidates stayed in the air in the major cities, assuming major metro areas would have better anti-infection measures. Tell that to San Diego. The devil-may-care approach was winning Ryman big percentage points, enough to keep him in the news, even as the media flurry kicked up by this latest tragedy died down. Man of the people keeps the world grounded. Human interest gold. A few outlets made the requisite noises about how Ryman's insistence on an old-fashioned campaign had dogged him with tragedy from the beginning, but the facts of Rebecca and Buffy's deaths were enough to pretty much silence them. Maybe you could blame the senator for Eakley if you reached, but you couldn't blame him for terrorist action or assassination attempts. America is the land of the free and the home of the paranoid, and yet, blessedly, we haven't fallen that far. Yet. Six weeks after Memphis, we were overworked, overtired, and about to hit the crowds in one of the country's toughest, most essential markets, Sacramento, California. You'd think Sean and I would be excited about a stop in our state's capital, being California kids bred and raised. You'd be wrong. California is essentially a bunch of smaller states held together by political connections, water rights, and the stubborn refusal of any segment to cede the cash cow name California to any of the others. The California secessionist movement has been around since before the rising, not the state quitting the country, but the various parts of the state quitting each other. Sacramento has no love for the Bay Area. We get the good weather, the good press, and the big tourism dollars, and they? They get the state government and a lot of hard-to-defend farmland. To say that there's a little resentment there is to understate the case just a little. Whatever fellow feeling Sacramento had for the rest of the state died when it stopped hosting the annual state fair and started hosting the annual everybody hide in their houses and pray they don't die a thon in its place. The air was hot and so dry it seemed to suck the moisture out of my throat as we stepped out of the Sacramento airport and onto the partitioned off loading zone where we'd be meeting the senator's convoy. It was late afternoon, and the sun was bright enough to stab at my eyes through the lenses of my sunglasses. I staggered, catching myself on Rick's shoulder. 
he shot me a questioning glance. Silent, I shook my head. We were all feeling the strain, Sean as much as any of us, and if Rick said anything, Sean would spend the rest of the afternoon fussing over me. There was too much to do for me to let him do that. Senator Ryman had flown in the day before, along with Governor Tate and most of the senior staff. We were supposed to be right behind them, flying commercial air rather than via private jet. Unfortunately, a medical emergency grounded our plane in Denver, forcing us to wait on the tarmac with a hundred terrified passengers to see whether our aircraft was about to be declared a closed quarantine zone. I'll admit, for a few guilty moments, I was almost hoping it would be. At least then we'd be able to get some sleep before heading back to our home state. I was really starting to worry about Sean. It had gotten to where he only went to bed when I put him there. A familiar black car pulled up to the curb, and the door opened to reveal Steve, implacable and hulking as ever. Miss Mason, he said, with a nod in my direction. One corner of my mouth curled upward. Nice to see you too, Steve. What's our plan for the afternoon? I'm your escort to the assembly center. The convoy leaves for the hall in 90 minutes. That doesn't leave much time. I grimaced, grabbing a suitcase in each hand as Steve got out of the car and moved to start hoisting our equipment. Senator Ryman was giving a keynote speech to the California Republicans, and it promised to be the sort of evening that resulted in lots of sound bites, accidental quotes, and competitive reporting. We all needed to be on our game. I'd been hoping to manage it with more rest and less caffeine, but you can't always get what you want. Thanks for coming to meet us. Of course. A second car pulled up behind the first, Carlos getting out and joining in the collection of luggage. Our keepers, the unfortunate Andres, and a blank-faced woman named Heidi, who I suspected had only been assigned to accompany us because my eyes meant I would have to go for a private security screening, and they didn't want private to mean away from our guards, joined him, first in moving the luggage, then in his car. I suppose a night at the airport with the three of us had rather soured them on our company. Ready? asked Steve. Ready, Sean confirmed, and we piled into the car where blessed air conditioning washed over us. Steve glanced in the rearview mirror to be sure we were wearing our seatbelts before turning on the flashers and pulling away from the curb. I raised an eyebrow, and Sean, taking his cue like a pro, asked, We expecting trouble, sport? There are a great many politicians in town, Steve said. I knew what that meant. It meant Senator Ryman was concerned that whoever had been responsible for the attacks on his campaign was here in the city and would try to take care of unfinished business. They only got Buffy on their first try, after all. I forced the jet of fury rising in my chest down, refusing to let myself get riled. He didn't know the snake was in his camp. He didn't know it was Tate he needed to be watching out for. So why the fuck did he let us fly commercial? Sean put his hand on my arm seeing my sudden tension. Easy, he murmured. Hard, I said, and subsided. In the carrier Rick was clutching, Lois yowled. I knew exactly how she felt. Our diminutive convoy cut through the airport traffic in a bubble of open space created by the flashers, heading for the outskirts of town. Once, Sacramento was known for hosting the state fair, along with various rodeos, horse shows, and other large outdoor gatherings. After the rising made those impractical, the city found itself missing a lot of vital revenue, and it started looking for another way to make money. Several local taxes, 
a few private donations, and several major security contracts later, the fairgrounds reopened, given new life as the Sacramento Secure Assembly Center. Open air, with standing structures and mobile home hookups for traveling convoys, a four-star hotel, a conference center, and the country's largest outdoor space certified as safe for public assembly. If you wanted to see a candidate speak outside, looking heroic and all-American against a blue summer sky, you did it in Sacramento. Presidencies were made there. No matter what your politics were or how clean a campaign you ran, it all came down to how the people reacted when they saw your silhouette against that sky. According to the itinerary, Senator Ryman and Governor Tate were going to be spending the next seven days in Sacramento, giving speeches, meeting the press, and getting endorsements from California's political leaders. Not just the Republicans. My notes indicated that several prominent Democrats and independents would be coming to have their pictures taken with the man many were beginning to suspect would be our next president. Assuming the scandal when we outed Tate didn't kill his career, of course. Jesus, said Rick, whistling as the fence around the center came into view. You people don't do anything small, do you? Welcome to California. I said, rolling up my sleeves. Sean was doing the same. Rick glanced at us wincing and I smiled. Don't worry, they'll leave you a little bit. After four blood tests and a call to the CDC databases to confirm that my retinal KA was legitimately registered and not a recent affliction, we were permitted to move into the center. From here, blood tests would be required if we wished to enter a standing structure or leave the grounds. We'd also be subject to random testing by the center's staff, which could happen as often as twice an hour or as rarely as once a week. Sean made a game of pointing out the security cameras and motion detectors as we drove toward the spot assigned to the convoy. Start moving like a dead thing and they'll be on you in less than a minute, he said, with some satisfaction. Please tell me you're not speaking from experience, Rick said. I'm smarter than that, Sean tried to sound affronted. He failed. Someone else got there first, I said. How long did he get in state prison? Two years, but it was for science, said Sean. Uh-huh, I said. I might have gone on, but the car was turning, pulling down a narrow drive whose signpost identified it as Convoy Parking Number 11. I sat up straighter, resettling my sunglasses. We're here. Thank God, said Rick. The Sacramento sun hadn't gotten any cooler during our drive. I shed my jacket and grabbed my laptop bag, scanning the assembled vehicles and trailers until I spotted my objective. A slow smile spread across my face. Van, sweet van, murmured Sean. Exactly. I started walking, trusting the security detail to bring the rest of our things. Our vehicles and the majority of our equipment were already in place. In a hurry? Rick asked trotting to catch up with me. Sean gave him a look. He ignored it. I want to see if the boys have made any progress, I said, pressing my palm against the pressure pad on the van door. Needles bit into my hand. The door unloaded a few seconds later. Looking back over my shoulder, I asked, Steve, which trailer are we? The one on the far left with your name over the door. Mr. Cousins is in the trailer next to it, Steve said. I assume you're anxious to get to work? Yes, actually. Crap. I paused, dismayed. The keynote speech. I've got it, said Sean. I must have looked stunned because he shrugged. I can wear a monkey suit and take notes like a newsie. 
You'll never know the difference. And I bet the invite just says, Mason. Steve? Yes, said Steve, looking perplexed. It's settled. Come on, Rick. Let's let George get some work done. My brother grabbed the startled Newsy by the arm and hauled him away. Steve smirked and followed, leaving me standing at the entrance to the van, wondering what had just happened. Then, not being one to look a bit of gift productivity in the mouth, I stepped inside. We removed a few vital system components before letting them ship the van, like the backup drives, our files, and, most important, the data sticks that would unlock the servers. I made my way around the interior, taking my time as I brought each system up and online, ending with the perimeter cameras. There was a certain feeling of homecoming as the screens Buffy had worked so long to get installed began flickering on, showing rotating camera views of the outside. Nothing was happening. That's the way I like it. Once everything was stable, I flipped on the security systems. They would generate enough static to block any outside surveillance less sophisticated than the CIA's. And if we were being monitored by the CIA, we'd have been dead already. Sitting down at my console, I opened a chat window. Most online networking is done via message boards. Totally text, not quite real-time, or streaming video these days. Very few people remember the old chat relays that used to dominate the Internet. That's good. That means that if both sides of the chat are on servers you control, you can fly so far under the radar that you're essentially invisible. Luck was with me. Dave was waiting when I connected. What's the story? I typed. My words appeared white against the black command window. Georgia? Confirm. Password is Tintinabulation. Confirmed. Have you checked your email? Not yet, we just got in. Log off. Go read. I don't want to waste your time with a reframe. I paused, staring at those stark white words for a long moment before I typed, How bad? Bad enough. Go. I went. Reading the files Dave and Alric provided took the better part of an hour. Getting myself to stop hyperventilating took another twenty minutes. When my lungs stopped burning and I was sure I could control myself, I shut down my laptop, returned it to its case, and rose. I needed to get myself dressed. It was time to crash a party. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. When I was a kid, I thought they were the next best thing to superheroes. They told the truth. They helped people. I wouldn't find out about the other things journalists did, the lies and espionage and backstabbing and bribes, for years. And by that point, it was too late. The news was in my blood. Like every junkie in the world, I needed my next hit too badly to give it up. I've wanted nothing but the news and the truth, and to make the world a better place since I was a little girl. And I never regretted it for a minute. Not until now. Because this is bigger than me, and it's bigger than Sean. And God, I'm scared. And I'm still a junkie. I still can't walk away. From Postcards from the Wall, The Unpublished Files of Georgia Mason, June 19th, 2040. Chapter 24 Unfortunately for my need to hurry, the instructions regarding the senator's keynote speech and the dinner party to follow were clear. Formal attire was required for all attendees even media representatives. Maybe especially media representatives. After all, 
everyone else paid $1,500 for the privilege of eating rubber chicken and rubbing elbows with Senator Ryman while we were getting in on that damned freedom of the press loophole. If they shut us out, we'd be free to start playing dirty. If they let us in, cosseted us, petted us, and put us in our places, they could maintain the semblance of control. Maybe it's never stopped a real scandal from growing legs, but it's done a lot to keep the little ones under the table where they belong. The campaign staff had been careful with our luggage, placing mine and Sean's on our respective sides of the trailer we'd be living in for the duration of the Sacramento stop. That was, sadly, before Sean tore through like a hurricane looking for his own formal wear. My suitcases were buried beneath a thick layer of Sean's clothing, weaponry, paperwork, and other general debris. Locating them took the better part of ten minutes, and determining which case contained my own formal wear took another five. I cursed Sean the whole time. It kept me distracted. Men's formal attire is sensible. Pants, suit coats, cummerbunds. Even ties can be useful, since they work as makeshift tourniquets or garrots. Women's formal attire, on the other hand, hasn't changed since the rising. It still seems designed to get the people wearing it killed at the first possible opportunity. Screw that. My dress was custom-made. The skirt is breakaway, the bodice is fitted to allow me to carry a recorder and a gun, and there's a pocket concealed at the waist for extra ammo. Even with all those alterations, it's the most confining garment I own, and the situations that call for me to wear it almost invariably require hose and heels. At least modern pantyhose are made with a polymer weave that's virtually puncture-proof. I'd wear the heels. I'd wear the hose. I'd even wear a layer of tinted lip gloss, since that would make it look like I'd applied makeup for the occasion. There was no way I was going to put my contacts in for what was essentially a snatch and grab to get me to the senator and my team, convince them I had news, and get them back to the compound. Still swearing, I yanked the shawl that went with the dress out of the side pocket of my garment bag, clipped my ID badge to the right side of my chest, and went storming back out of the trailer, heading for the motor pool. Steve was on duty standing at a relaxed sort of attention as he monitored the radio channels for security or vehicular needs. He straightened when he saw me coming, chin bobbing downward as he took in the way that I was dressed. It was impossible to see his eyes behind his sunglasses, but he took no pains to disguise the motion of his head, which rose again as he studied the tailoring of my dress, the shawl around my shoulders, and finally, with a quirk of one eyebrow, my sunglasses. Going somewhere? he asked. I was planning on doing a little gate crashing, I said. Give a girl a ride? Didn't you send your brother in your place? Something came up. It's important that I get over there. Steve studied me for a moment, his expression implacable. I looked back at him, keeping my own expression just as composed. We both had a lot of practice, but I was the one who had more to lose if I slipped up. It was Steve who gave in, nodding marginally before he said, this got something to do with Eakley, Georgia? His partner died there. We knew there was a conspiracy. How likely was it that we'd still be alive if our security detail was a part of it? There might be listening devices. There was nothing I could do about that, and we were in the end game. It was time to go all in. This has everything to do with Eakley, and with the ranch, and with why Chuck and Buffy died. Please, I need you to get me to that dinner. Steve remained silent for a moment more, mulling over what I'd said. 
He was a big man. And people often assume big men must be slow. I never assumed that about Steve, and I didn't assume it now. He was getting his first real look at a situation my team and I had been living with for months, and it took some getting used to. When he did start to move, he moved quickly and with no hesitation. Mike, Heidi, you cover this gate. Anybody radios for me? You say I'm in the can, and I'll radio back when I'm done. Tell them I had Franks and beans for dinner, if you think it'll keep them from asking more. Heidi tittered, a high nervous sound entirely out of keeping with her professional exterior. Mike frowned, expression betraying a slow confusion. Yeah, we can do that, he said. But why? We hired you after the ranch, so I'm not going to smack you for asking that question. There's reasons. Steve glanced at me. I'm guessing that if it was safe to give those reasons in a place as open as this one, they'd have already been given. I nodded. I wouldn't have said as much as I had if he hadn't invoked the specter of Eakley first. But I wasn't going to lie to the man when I was asking for his help. Even if I thought I could pull it off, which I didn't, it would have been wrong. Just do it, Mike, said Heidi, aiming an elbow at the unfortunate Mike's side. He bore the blow stoically, only allowing a slight grunt to escape. Heidi withdrew her elbow. We got it, Steve. Watch the gate, monitor the radio, don't tell anybody you're gone. Good. Miss Mason, this way. Steve turned, his legs eating ground with frightening efficiency as he led me to one of the motor pool's smaller vehicles. It was a modified Jeep with a hard black exterior that made it look like nothing so much as a strange new type of beetle. He produced the keys from one pocket and hit a button. The doors unlocked with a beep. You'll forgive me if I don't open the door for you. Of course, I said. In a two-person vehicle this new, there would be blood test units built into the door handles to prevent some unfortunate driver from ending up sealed in an enclosed space with one of the infected. Chivalry wasn't dead. Chivalry just wanted to be certain I wasn't a zombie before I got into the car. Even when concerned enough to abandon his post, and that's what he was doing given that he hadn't radioed our whereabouts to base, Steve remained a careful, cautious driver. He sped down the roads back toward town at precisely the speed limit, without turning the flashers on. They would have attracted too much attention, especially from any members of our own camp who might start to wonder what he was doing out there. Our departure from the compound had been recorded, but those records were legally secured, save in the instance of an outbreak causing privacy laws to be suspended. The hall where Senator Ryman's keynote speech and the associated dinner party were being hosted was downtown, in one of the areas that was rebuilt after the Rising. Sean and I did a series of articles on the bad parts of Sacramento a few years ago, taking cameras past the cordons and into the areas that were never reapproved for human habitation. Burnt-out husks of buildings stare out on cracking asphalt, the biohazard tape still gleaming across their doors and windows. In the white marble and clean chrome paradise of the government assembly hall, you'd never know that side of Sacramento existed, not unless you'd been there. It took three blood tests to reach the foyer. The first was at the entrance to the underground parking garage, where valets in plastic gloves brought the test panels, clearly expecting us to allow the polite fiction that there weren't guards with automatic weapons flanking the booth. Those men stood there like statues, sending goosebumps marching across my arms. It wasn't the security. It was how blatantly it was displayed. No one would argue if they gunned us down. I had my recorders running, but without a security schematic, 
I couldn't afford to transmit across what might be compromised airspace, and without Buffy, I didn't have a security schematic I could trust. We needed her so badly. We always had. Steve stayed behind in the garage, standing silent guard over the car. Without my press pass and invitation, he'd never make it to the party without making a scene, and we didn't want to do that. Not yet. I was pretty sure there were a lot of scenes in my future. Assuming the senator listened long enough that we could keep on having a future. It took a second blood test to get out of the garage and into the elevator. The third blood test came as a bit of a surprise. It was required to get out of the elevator. How they expected me to have been exposed to the virus during the ten seconds I'd spent between floors was a mystery to me, but they wouldn't have spent the money on a testing unit if it hadn't happened at least once. The elevator doors didn't open until the light over the door went green, and I spared a moment to wonder what happened when more than one person took the elevator at a time. Then I stepped out into the foyer and into a world that had never known the rising. The mystery of the extensive security was solved in an instant, because this huge, lavishly appointed room looked like it was lifted straight from the pre-infection world. No one carried visible weapons or wore protective gear. A few folks had the clear plastic strips over their eyes that signaled the presence of retinal Kellis Amberley, but that was it. The place even had picture windows, for God's sake. It took careful scrutiny to see that they were holograms, looking out over an image of a city too perfect to be real. Maybe that's how it was once, but I doubt it. Corruption's been with us a lot longer than the living dead. Even without visible weapons, there was security. A man with a portable barcode scanner in one hand stopped me not two steps out of the elevator. Name? Georgia Mason, after the end times. I'm with the Ryman campaign. I unclipped my badge, handing it over. He swiped it through his scanner and passed it back, frowning at the display. You should have me on your list? According to this, Sean Mason has already checked in with those credentials. If you'll check your list of associated journalists, you'll see that we're both registered as being attached to the Ryman campaign. I didn't bother trying to win him over with my scintillating wit. He had the look of a natural bureaucrat, and that sort of person almost never yields from the stated outline of their job. Please wait while I access the list. He made a seemingly careless gesture with one hand. Only seemingly careless. I could see four people in the crowd who were now looking in our direction, and none of them was holding a drink or laughing. If four of the guards on duty were being that blatant, the math of professional security meant there were four more who weren't. The scanning unit beeped as it connected to the wireless network and queried the files available on the press corps cleared for entrance. Eventually, it stopped beeping, and the officious little man's frown deepened. Your credentials are in order, he said, sounding as if the very fact that I hadn't lied was inconveniencing him. You may proceed. Thank you. The watchers had melted into the crowd now that they were sure I wasn't gate-crashing. I clipped the badge back to my chest, putting several feet between myself and the man with the scanner before reaching up to tap my ear cuff. Sean, I muttered quietly. There was a pause, the transmitter beeping to signal that it was making a connection. Then Sean's voice, close by and startled. Hey, George. I figured you'd be neck-deep in sight reviews by now. What gives? Remember the punchline I forgot yesterday? I asked, scanning the crowd as I moved toward what I presumed was the entrance to the main dining hall. The really funny one? Sean's surprise faded, replaced by wariness. 
Yeah, I remember that one. Did you figure out the rest of the joke? Uh-huh, I did. Some friends of mine found it online. Where are you? We're at the podium. Senator Ryman's shaking hands. What's the punchline? It'll be funnier if I tell you in person. How do I get to the podium? Straight through the big doors and head for the back of the hall. Got it. Georgia out. I tapped the ear cuff, killing the connection and walked on. Sean and Rick were a few feet to the left of the crowd of people the senator was glad-handing his way through. They'd paid for the privilege of meeting the man being predicted as our next president, and they were, by God, going to meet him, even if it was only for the few seconds it took to shake a hand and share a smile. On those few seconds are presidencies made. Here, behind the believable safety of a double-checked guest list and that guest list's triple-checked infection status, old-school politicians felt free to revert to their old habits, pressing the flesh like it had never gone out of style. You could tell the ones who were genuinely young from the ones who'd had all the plastic surgery and regenerative treatments money could buy, because the young ones were the ones looking nauseated by all the human contact around them. They hadn't grown up in this political culture. They just had to live with it until they became the old men at the top of the hill. The senator didn't look uncomfortable at all. The man was in his element, all to the smiles, and bits of practical wisdom sliced down to soundbite size, in case one of the nearby reporters was broadcasting on an open band. He'd known to do that sort of thing long before we joined his campaign, but having a constant press entourage had forced him to master the art. He was good. Given enough time, he'd be great. Sean was watching for my arrival, his shoulders set at the angle that meant he was tenser than hell and trying to hide it. They relaxed slightly as he saw me cutting through the crowd, and he nodded for me to approach. I shook my head, mouthing, Where's Tate? Holding up a finger to signal me to quiet, Sean pulled out his PDA and scrawled a message with the attached stylus. My watch beeped a second later. The message, other side of room with investors, what's going on? Scrolling across the screen. The message, I need to talk to Senator Ryman without Tate hearing, would have taken too long to type on the tiny fold-out keypad. I deleted the message and kept walking. Georgia, Rick greeted as I drew close. He was holding a flute of what appeared to be champagne, if you didn't pay too much attention to the bubbles. Sparkling cider. Another trick of working the crowd. If people think you're getting as drunk as they are, they forget to be careful around you. Rick, I said with a nod. Sean was shooting me a concerned look and failing in his efforts to hide it. I put a hand on his arm. Nice tax. They call me Bond, he said gravely. Figured they might. I looked toward the senator. Gonna need to wait in there. I wish I had a cattle prod. Are we going to find out what the situation is anytime soon, or are we supposed to follow you blindly? Asked Sean. I ask because it determines whether I'm hitting you in the head sometime in the next eight seconds. Very vital information. It's a little hard to explain here, I said. Unless you know who's broadcasting locally? Sean groaned, attracting startled glances from several bystanders. A plastic smile snapping instantly into place, he said, Geez, George, that was a terrible joke. I didn't say it was a good punchline, just that I'd remembered it, I said, stepping a little closer. Pitching my voice so low it verged on inaudible, I said, Dave and Alric had their big breakthrough. They followed the money. Where'd it go? Sean was even better at this than I was. His lips didn't even seem to move.
Where did it come from? Would be a better question. It went to Tate. It came from the tobacco companies and from some people they haven't traced yet. We knew it was Tate. The IPs they're pulling are from D.C. and Atlanta. There's only one organization in Atlanta important enough to bring me running the way I had, especially when we'd already known at least a part of the conspiracy. Sean's eyes widened, need for secrecy eclipsed by sudden shock. If the CDC had been infiltrated, they don't know for sure. They're trying, but the security is good, and they've nearly been caught twice. Sean sighed. That was audible, and I elbowed him in the side for it. He shook his head. Sorry, I just wish Buffy were here. So do I. Palming a data stick, I slipped it into his pocket. To an observer, it would have looked like I was going for his wallet. Let them call security. It's not like there'd be anything for them to find. That's a copy of everything. There are six more. Steve doesn't know he has one. Got it, said Sean. Always back up your data and scatter it as far as you can. I can't count the number of journalists who have forgotten that basic rule, and some have never recovered from the stories they lost. If we lost this one, getting discredited was going to be the least of our worries. Offsite? Multiple places. I don't know them all. The guys did their own backups. Good. Rick had been observing our semi-audible conversation without comment. He raised his eyebrows as it stopped, and I shook my head. He took the refusal with good grace, sipping from his glass of champagne and continuing to scan the crowd. There were a few people who seemed to be holding the bulk of his interest. Some were politicians, while others were people I recognized from the campaign. I glanced to Rick, who nodded toward Tate. Got it. These were people whose loyalties he thought he knew, and thought belonged to our resident governor. Who just happened to be the man most likely to have caused the deaths of an awful lot of innocent people, as well as being responsible for the corruption and death of one of our own. None of those people was standing close enough to hear our conversation unless one of them had listening devices planted on or around the senator. If I was going to risk anything, I needed to do it now. I'm going in, I murmured to Sean, and began working my way through the crowd surrounding Senator Ryman. I'll give the flesh pressers this. They didn't give ground easy, not even as I was none too gently elbowing my way into their midst. A lady old enough to have been my grandmother drove the heel of her left shoe down on the top of my foot with a degree of force that would have been impressive in a younger woman. Fortunately, even my dress shoes are made of reinforced polymer. Even so, I bit my tongue to keep myself from swearing out loud. Casual assault might be A-OK -okay with security, but I was reasonably sure shouting, cocksucking bitch, wouldn't be. After a lot of shoving and several painful kicks to my shins and ankles, I found myself to the right of the senator, who was busy having his hand pumped up and down by a barrel-chested octogenarian whose eyes burned with the revolutionary fervor one only ever seems to see in those who discovered either religion or politics at a very young age. Neither man seemed to have registered the fact that I was there. I was neither the assaulting nor the assaulted, which left me on the outside of their present closed equation. The handshaker showed no signs of stopping. If anything, his pumps were increasing in vigor as he started hitting his stride. I weighed the potential danger of octogenarian assault against waiting for him to tire and settled on action as the better part of valor. Smoothly as I could, I moved to place my hand on Senator Ryman's free arm and said, in a sugar-sweetened tone, 
Senator, if I could have a moment of your time, I'd be most appreciative. The senator jumped. His assailant looked daggers at me, which moved up the scale to full-size swords as the senator turned and flashed his best magazine cover smile my way. Of course, Miss Mason, he said. He deftly twitched his fingers free of the handshaker, saying, If you wouldn't mind excusing me, Councilman Plant, I need to confer with a member of my press pool. Everyone, I'll be right back with you. Fighting into the throng had taken almost five minutes. Getting out of it required nothing but the senator's hand at the small of my back, propelling me along as we made our way to the clear space to the left of the dais. Not that I mind the save, Georgia, since I was starting to worry about the structural integrity of my wrist, but what are you doing here? asked Senator Ryman, his voice pitched low. Last I checked, you'd stayed at the center, which is why your brother's been here annoying the staff and eating all the shrimp canopies all evening. I did stay at the center, I said. Senator, I don't know if you are aware of this, but someone shouted congratulations to the senator, who answered it with a grin and a broad thumbs up. It was a perfect photo op moment, and I snapped the shot with my watch's built-in camera before I even thought about what I was doing. Instincts. Clearing my throat, I tried again. Buffy was working for someone who wanted to keep tabs on your campaign. You've told me this before, he said more briskly. I recognized the impatience in his eyes from dozens of media briefings. It's all some big shadow conspiracy looking to bring me down. What I don't understand is why this is suddenly so pressing that you need to rush over here and risk making a scene on what might be one of the most important political evenings of my life. There are a great many movers and shakers here tonight, Georgia. A great many. These are the men who could hand me California. As you'd know if you'd bothered to read the briefing papers and attend my speech. If you'd bothered to do your job, said his subtext, so clearly that it might as well have been spoken aloud. I'd let him down. My reporting, which he'd come to depend on as one of the tools of his campaign, the objective reporter won over by his politics and his rhetoric, was supposed to have been there, and it wasn't. The senator had heard my excuses with increasing frequency in the time since Buffy's death, and it was clear that he was getting tired of them. More than tired, he was getting frustrated with them, and by extension, with me. Talking faster now, in an effort to keep him from shutting me out before I could finish, I said, Senator, I've had two of my people running traces for weeks now on every bit of data we could find. They've been following the money. That's what it always comes back to, the money. And they've managed to find... We'll talk about this later, Georgia. But, Senator Ryman, we... I said we'd talk about this later. He was frowning now, his stiff political smile, the one he used during debates or when chastising recalcitrant interns. This is neither the time nor the place for this discussion. Senator, we have proof Tate was involved in what happened to Buffy. The senator froze. Finally, sensing that he might listen, I pressed my case. We've had audio for a while, but my team found the payments. We found the contacts. Buffy wasn't the start. Eakley was the start. Eakley? And the ranch? No. The word was soft but implacable. I stopped dead, run up against the side of that refusal like I'd just slammed into a wall. After a frozen moment, I tried again, saying, Senator Ryman, please, if you'd just... Georgia, this is not the time and it's not the place especially if those are the accusations you've come here to make. His face was cold. I'd never seen him look that cold toward anyone who wasn't a political rival. David Tate and I may not have always seen eye to eye on this campaign trail, and God knows I've always known there was no love lost between the two of you, 
but I'm not going to stand here and listen to you say these things about a man who spoke at my daughter's funeral. I can't have that. Senator, that man was just as responsible for your daughter's death as if he'd infected her himself. Senator Ryman's shoulders tensed, and his hand actually rose several inches before he forced it down. He wanted to hit me. That truth was written so clear across his face that even Sean could have seen it. He wanted to, but he wouldn't. Not here. Not in front of all these witnesses. It's time for you to go, Georgia. Senator, if the three of you aren't off the premises in the next 15 minutes, you'll be spending tonight in the Sacramento County Jailhouse, as I'll have had your press clearance pulled. His tone was calm, even reasonable, but there was no kindness in it, and kindness was the thing I was most accustomed to hearing from him. When I get back to the center, I'll come by your trailer, and you'll show me every scrap of proof you think you have. And then, I asked, despite my own better judgment. I needed to know how seriously he was willing to take this. And then, if I believe you, I'll back you up when we call for the federal authorities. Because what you're saying, Georgia, what you're accusing is terrorism. And if that accusation gets made without absolute proof behind it, well, there's more than one man's career it could destroy. He was right. If it got out that the Ryman campaign had been harboring a man who'd used Kellis Amberley as a weapon, hell, that a man who'd used Kellis Amberley as a weapon was actually on the ticket, it would ruin him. His political enemies would never let the scandal die. Some of them would probably say he'd supported Tate's actions, even to the point of killing Rebecca for the votes it bought him. If you don't believe me, I asked, shaping the words with lips that had gone numb. If I don't believe you, you're all on the next bus to Berkeley, and we're parting ways before the sun comes up, the senator said and turned his back on me, all smiles as he shifted his attention to the crowd. Congresswoman, he said, joviality coming back into his voice as if he'd flipped a switch. You're looking lovely tonight. Is that your wife? Well, Mrs. Lancer, it surely is a pleasure to finally have the opportunity to meet you in the flesh after seeing you in so many of those Christmas card photos. And then he was moving away leaving me standing alone in the middle of the crowd, the important people of this little modern Babylon pressing all around me as they struggled for a moment of his attention, my colleagues standing not ten feet away, waiting to hear what I'd accomplished. The truth had never felt like it was further away, or harder to make sense of, and I had never in my life felt like I was more lost, or more alone. We were eleven when I first understood that we weren't immortal. I always knew the Masons had a biological son named Philip. Our folks didn't talk about him much, but he came up every time someone mentioned Mason's Law. It's funny, but I sort of hero-worshipped him when I was a kid because people remembered him. I never really considered the fact that they remembered him for dying. George and I were hunting for our Christmas presents when she found the box. It was in the closet in Mom's office, and we'd probably overlooked it a thousand times before, but it caught George's eye that day for some reason, and she hauled it out, and we looked inside. That was the day I met my brother. The box was full of photographs we'd never seen, pictures of a laughing little boy in a world where he'd never been forced to worry about the things we lived with every day. Philip riding a pony at the state fair, Philip playing in the sand on a beach with no fences in sight. Philip with his long-haired, short-sleeved, laughing mother, who didn't look anything like our mother, who wore her hair short 
and her sleeves long enough to hide the body armor, whose holster dug into my side when she kissed me goodnight. He had a smile that said he'd never been afraid of anything, and I hated him a little because his parents were so much happier than mine. We never talked about that day. We put the pictures back in the closet, and we never found our Christmas presents either. But that was the day I realized, if Philip, this happy, innocent kid, could die, so could we. Someday, we'd be cardboard boxes at the back of somebody's closet, and there wasn't a thing we could do about it. George knew it too. Maybe she even knew it before I did. We were all we had, and we could die. It's hard to live knowing something like that. We've done the best we could. No one gets to ask us for anything more. Not now, not ever. When history looks our way, stupid, blind history that judges everything and never gives a shit what we paid to get it, it better remember that no one had a right to ask us for this. No one. From Hail to the King, the blog of Sean Mason, June 19th, 2040. Chapter 25 Georgia, what just happened? George, you okay? Both of them sounded so concerned it left me wanting to scream. I settled for grabbing a flute of champagne from a passing server, draining it in one convulsive gulp and snapping, We have to go. Now. That just redoubled their concern. Rick's eyes went wide, while Sean's narrowed, accompanied by a sudden frown. How pissed is he? he asked. He's pulling our press passes in 15 minutes. Sean whistled. Nice. Even for you, that's impressive. What'd you do, suggest that his wife was having an affair with the librarian? It was the tutor. That was the mayor of Oakland's wife, and I was right, I said, starting for the exit. True to form, they followed. I didn't say anything about Emily. Excuse me, but does one of you mind telling me what's going on? Interjected Rick, putting on a burst of speed to get in front of me. Georgia just got us kicked out of a major political event. Senator Ryman's clearly pissed and Tate's glaring. I'm missing something. I don't like that. I went cold. Tate's glaring at us? If looks could kill, we'd be joining Rebecca Ryman. I'll fill you in once we're in the car. Rick hesitated, licking his lower lip as he registered the anxiety in my tone. Georgia? I'm serious, I said, and sped up going as fast as I could manage without starting to a run. Sean took the cue from me, linking one arm through mine and using his longer legs to give me a little extra speed. Rick hurried along behind us, holding his questions until we got outside. Bless him for that much, anyway. It took only one blood test to get back to the car. Since everyone on the banquet level was assumed clean after the checks they'd endured to get there, the elevator came at the press of a button, no needles involved until we wanted to exit like a roach motel. The infected could check in, but they couldn't check out. My earlier curiosity about what would happen if more than one person took the elevator at the same time was answered as the interior sensors refused to let the doors open until the system detected three different, non-infected blood samples. Someone who unwittingly boarded the elevator with a person undergoing viral amplification would just die in there. Nice. Steve was still next to the car arms folded across his chest. He straightened when he saw the three of us come marching out of the elevator, but he restrained his curiosity better than Rick had, waiting until we were reaching for the doors before he asked, Well? Threatened to yank our press passes, I said. Nice, 
said Steve, raising his eyebrows. He pressing charges? No, that'll probably come after tonight's episode of Meet the Press. I climbed into the back seat. Sean did the same on the opposite side of the car, commenting, She means beat the press, don't you, George? Possibly, I said. Now will you tell me what's going on? asked Rick, getting into the front passenger seat and twisting around to face us. It's simple, really, I said, sagging into the seat. Sean already had his arm in place to support me, offering as much comfort as he could. Dave and Alric followed the money and proved that Governor Tate was behind the attacks on Eakley and the ranch. Also, P.S., the CDC is potentially involved, which isn't going to make me sleep any easier tonight, thanks. The senator wasn't thrilled with the idea that his running mate might be the goddamn devil, so he's asked us to go back to the center to prepare our notes while he decides whether or not to fire our asses. There was a long silence as the other three people in the car attempted to absorb what I'd just said. Surprisingly, it was Steve who spoke first, in a low rumble, closer to a growl than a normal conversational tone. Are you sure? he asked. We have proof, I said, closing my eyes and leaning into Sean's arm. People have been funneling him money, and he's been funneling it on to the sort of folks who think weaponizing Kellis Amberley is a good thing. Some of that money's been coming from Atlanta. Some of it's been coming from the big tobacco companies. And a lot of people have died, presumably so that nice old Governor Tate can be vice president of the United States of America. At least until the president-elect has some sort of tragic accident and he has to step into the position. Georgia. Rick sounded almost awed, overwhelmed with the possibilities. If we know this for sure, Georgia, this is a really big deal. This is... Are we allowed to know this and not just report it to the FBI or the CDC or somebody? This is terrorism. I don't know, Rick. You're the one who worked in print media. Why don't you try telling me for a change? Even in cases of suspected terrorism, a journalist can protect his or her sources as long as they aren't actually sheltering the suspect. Rick hesitated. We're not, are we? Sheltering him? Pardon me for breaking in, Mr. Cousins, but if Miss Mason's proof is as good as she seems to think, it doesn't matter whether she plans on sheltering him or not. My partner died in Eakley. Steve's tone was normal now, almost casual. Somehow that was even more disturbing. Tyrone was a good man. He deserved better. Man who started that outbreak? Well, that man doesn't deserve better. Don't worry about it, I said. I have no intention of sheltering him. I'll talk it over with the senator, and if he wants to throw us off the campaign, he's welcome to. I'll mail our files to every open-source blog, newspaper, and politician in the country while we're on the road for home. This is crap, Sean said, withdrawing his arm. Right, I agreed. Absolute fucking crap. No argument. I want to punch somebody right about now. Not it, Rick said. I punch back. Steve said. A note of amusement crept into his voice, making him sound a little less likely to explode. That was good. Not that I'd object to seeing Tate get the crap kicked out of him. I just didn't want to see Steve go to federal prison over it when the FBI would be just as happy to do the honors. Hell, after they had Tate in custody, and considering what had happened in Eakley, they might be willing to let Steve have his licks. Just as long as they got theirs first. Just have patience. This is all going to be over soon, I said. One way or another, I guess we're finishing things tonight. Let's pick one way, okay? Said Sean. I don't like another. That's okay, I said. Neither do I.
We finished the drive in silence, pulling through the center gates and enduring the barrage of blood tests that followed with as much grace as we could muster. Three of us were exhausted, scared, and angry. Steve was just angry, and I almost envied him. Anger's easier to run on than exhaustion. It doesn't strip your gears as badly. Less than two hours after convincing him to abandon his post for my fool's errand, Steve drove back into the motor pool, his car heavier by two journalists and a whole lot of free-floating worry. Don't say anything, please, I said, as we climbed out of the car. I'm meeting with the senator tonight, when he gets back from his dinner. After that, after that, I guess what needs doing is going to be clear one way or the other, said Steve. Don't worry. I wouldn't have gone into security if I didn't know how to keep my mouth shut. Thanks. Don't mention it. Steve smiled briefly. I smiled back. George, come on! Sean called, already a good four or five yards from the car. I want to get out of this damn monkey suit. Coming! I shouted, muttering, Jesus, before I turned to follow him back to the trailers. Rick walked with us as far as the van. Then he turned left toward his trailer, while we turned right toward ours. He's a good guy, said Sean, pressing his thumb against the lock on the trailer door. It clicked open, confirming Sean's right to enter. A little old-fashioned, but still a good guy. I'm glad we got the chance to work with him. You think he'll stay on after we all get home? I started rummaging through the mass of clothing on the beds and floor, looking for the cotton shirt and jeans I'd been wearing earlier. He can write his own ticket after this campaign. But yeah, I think he may stick around. Sean was already halfway out of his formal wear, shedding it with the ease of long practice. He knows he can work with us. Good. I was doing up the last of the buttons on my shirt when I heard the shouting. Sean and I exchanged a wide-eyed, shocked look before we both went running for the trailer door. I made it out half a beat ahead of him, just in time to see a shell-shocked-looking Rick come staggering up the path with Lois cradled against his chest. I didn't have to be a veterinarian to know that something was horribly wrong with his cat. No living animal has a neck that bends that way or hangs that limply in its owner's arms. Rick? He stopped in his tracks, staring at me, the body of his cat still clutched against his chest. I ran the last fifteen feet between us, and Sean ran close behind me. That was probably the part they didn't figure on. Those fifteen feet. Those fifteen stupid little feet saved our lives. What happened? I asked, putting out a hand as if there were a damn thing I could do. Seen this close, it was even more obvious that the cat had been dead for a while. Her eyes were open and glazed, staring blankly off at nothing. She was just... I got back to the trailer and I almost tripped on her. For the first time, I realized Rick was still wearing his formal clothes. He hadn't even had time to change. She was just inside the doorway. I think, even after they hurt her, I think she tried to get away tears running down his cheeks. I'm not sure he was even aware of them. I think she was trying to come and find me. She was just a little cat, Georgia. Why would anyone do this to such a little cat? Sean stiffened. She was inside? Are you sure this wasn't natural causes? Since when do natural causes break your neck? Asked Rick, in a tone that would have been reasonable if he hadn't been crying so hard. We should go to the van. I frowned. Sean? I'm serious. We can talk about this in the van, but we should go there right now. Just let me get my gun, I said, and started to turn toward the trailer. Sean grabbed my elbow, yanking me back. 
I stumbled. The trailer exploded with a concussive bang, like an engine misfiring. The first bang was followed by a second and larger bang, echoed in the distance as another trailer, probably Rick's, went up in a ball of blue and orange flame. Not that there was much time to make estimates about where the blast was coming from. Sean still had my arm and he was running, dragging me in his wake as he rushed toward the van. Rick ran after us, clutching Lois's body to his chest, all of us bathed in the angry orange glare of the blast. Someone was trying to kill us. At this point, I didn't even have to wonder who. Tate knew we knew. There was no reason for him to play nice anymore. Once he was sure I'd keep running, Sean let go of me, dropping back as he tried to cover our retreat toward the van. I quashed the urge to worry about him, keeping my focus on the running. Sean could take care of himself. I had to believe that or I'd never be able to believe anything else. Rick was running like a man in a dream, Lois bouncing limply in his arms with every step. And I just ran. Something pricked my left biceps when we were about halfway to the van. I ignored it and kept going, more focused on getting to cover than on swatting at some mosquito with shit for timing. No one's ever been able to tell the insects of the world that they shouldn't interrupt the big dramatic moments, and so they keep on doing it. That's probably a good thing. If drama kept the bugs away, most people would never emotionally mature past the age of 17. Rick, get the doors, shouted Sean. He was hanging about five yards back, still moving fast. He had his forty-five drawn, covering the area as we retreated. The sight of him was enough to make my heart beat faster and my throat get tight. I knew he was wearing Kevlar under his clothes, but Kevlar wouldn't save him from a headshot. Whoever blew up the trailers might be out there watching, and once they saw us scattering into the open, there was every chance they'd decide to finish what they'd started. And none of that mattered, because someone had to watch the rear, and someone had to open the van, and if we clustered together to make me feel better, neither of those things would happen, and we'd all die. Knowing the realities of the situation didn't do a damn thing to make me feel better about leaving Sean to twist in the wind. It just meant I understood that we didn't have a choice. Rick put on a burst of speed, reaching the van a good twenty feet ahead of me. He finally seemed to realize he was carrying Lois because he dropped her body, reaching out to grab the handles of the rear doors and press his forefingers against the reader pads. There was a click as the onboard testing system ran his blood in prints, confirming he was both uninfected and an authorized driver before the locks released. Got it, he yelled, and wrenched the doors open, motioning for us to get inside. You didn't need to tell me twice. I sped up, breath aching in my chest as I raced to get out of the open. Sean continued moving at the same pace, swinging his gun unhurriedly from side to side as he covered our retreat. Sean, you idiot! I yelled. Get your ass in here! There's no one out there to save! He glanced over his shoulder, eyebrows rising in apparent surprise. Something in my expression must have told him that it wasn't worth arguing because he nodded and turned to run the rest of the way. I didn't really start breathing again until he and Rick were both inside with the doors closed behind them. Sean flipped the deadbolts on the rear doors, while Rick moved to do the same on the movable wall that shut the driver's cabin off from the rest of the vehicle. With those latches thrown, we were effectively cut off from the rest of the world. Nothing could get in, and unless we opened the locks, nothing could get out. Barring heavy explosives, we were as safe as it was possible to be. I took a seat at the main console and brought up the security recordings for the last day. 
The scanner came up clean, showing no attempted break-ins or unauthorized contact with the van's exterior during that time. Sean, when was the last security sweep? I ran one remotely while I was waiting for the senator's speech to finish. Good. That means we're clean. I leaned over to turn on the exterior cameras. Without them, we were flying blind and would have no way of knowing when help arrived, and froze. George? It was Sean's voice, sounding distant and surprised. He'd seen me reach for the switches and seen me stop. He just hadn't seen why. I didn't answer him. I was too busy staring. George, what's wrong? I... I began and stopped, swallowing in an effort to clear the sudden dryness from my mouth. Forcing myself to start again, I said, I think we may have a problem. Raising my right hand, I wrapped numb fingers around the hollow plastic dart projecting from my left biceps and pulled it free, turning to face the other two. Rick paled, seeing the red stain spreading through the fabric of my shirt. Sean just stared at the dart, looking like he was seeing the end of the world. In a very real and concrete way, there was an excellent chance that he was. If you want an easy job, if you want the sort of job where you never have to bury somebody who you care about, I recommend you pursue a career in whatever strikes your fancy, just so long as it isn't the news. From Another Point of True, the blog of Richard Cousins, June 20th, 2040. Chapter 26 Sean broke the silence. Please tell me that didn't break the skin, he said, almost pleading. The blood came from something else, right, George? Right? We're going to need a biohazard bag. There was no fear in my voice. Really, there was nothing there at all. I sounded empty, disconnected from everything around me. It was like my body and my voice existed in different universes tethered by only the thinnest of threads. Get one from the medical kit. Put it on the counter and step away. I don't want either of you touching this. Or me. I didn't want them touching me when there was a risk that I could infect them. I just couldn't say that. If I tried, I'd break down, and any chance of containing this would go right out the window. George, we need a testing kit. Rick's voice was surprisingly strong, considering the circumstances. Sean and I turned to face him. He was white-faced and shaking, but his voice was firm. Sean, I know you don't want to hear this, and if you want to hit me later, that's fine. But right now, we need a testing kit. Storm clouds were gathering in Sean's expression. He knew Rick was right. I could see it in his eyes and in the way he wasn't quite willing to look at me. If he hadn't known, he wouldn't have cared that Rick was calling for a blood test. But because he did... It was the last thing in the world he wanted. Well, maybe not the last thing. Then again, it was starting to look like the last thing had already happened. He's right, Sean. I placed the dart on the counter next to my keyboard. It was so small. How could something so small be the end of the world? I barely noticed when it hit me. I never thought it was possible to overlook your own death, but apparently it is. Don't just grab a field box, get the real kit. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. The XH-237 has never had a false result. It's 100% accurate, as far as anyone can tell. Sean would never believe anything else. He was staring at me in open disbelief. 
He was denying this as hard as he could. So why wasn't I? Georgia, he began. If I'm overreacting, I'll buy a new one with my birthday money, I said, sagging backward in my chair. Rick? I'll get it, Georgia, he said, starting for the medical supplies. I closed my eyes. I'm not overreacting. Almost too quiet for me to hear, Sean whispered. I know. I brought the bag, said Rick. I opened my eyes, turning toward his voice. He held up a Kevlar-reinforced biohazard bag. I nodded and he put the bag on the counter before stepping away. We knew proper protocols. They'd been drilled into us for our entire lives. Until we knew I was clean, no one touched me. And I knew I wasn't clean. Moving with exaggerated care, so both Sean and Rick could see me every inch along the way, I reached for the bag and thumbed it open before picking up the dart. Dropping it into the bag, I activated the seal. It was a matter for the CDC now. Its people would break the seal after it was turned over to them, and what happened after that wasn't my concern. I wouldn't be around to see it. I looked up once the bag was sealed and set aside. Where's the test kit? It felt like the muscles in my eyes were relaxing. It could be psychosomatic, but I didn't think so. The viral bodies responsible for the perpetual dilation of my pupils were moving on to greener pastures, like the rest of my body. Here, said Sean, holding it up. He stepped closer and knelt in front of me. He was only inches outside the federally defined danger zone for dealing with someone who might be amplifying. I shot him a sharp look, and he shook his head. Don't start. I won't. I extended my left hand. If he wanted to administer the test himself, he had the right. Maybe it would make him believe the results. You could be wrong. You've been wrong before, Sean said, sliding the testing kit over my hand. I flattened my palm until I felt the tendon stretch and gave him the nod to clamp down the lid. He did, pinning my fingers in their wide, starfished position. I'm not wrong, I said. Dull pain lanced my hand as the needles, one for each finger, and five more set in a circle at the center of the palm, darted out, taking blood samples. The lights on top of the unit began to flash, cycling from green to yellow, where they remained blinking on and off, until one by one, they started settling on their final color. Red. Every one of them. Red. Tears prickled against my eyelids. It took me a moment to realize what they were, and then I had to resist the urge to blink them back. Kellis Amberly never let me cry before. It was damn well going to let me cry now. Told you I was right, I said, trying to sound lighthearted. All I managed to sound was lost. Bet you're sorry, Sean replied. I raised my head and met his shocked, staring eyes with my own. We sat that way for several moments, looking at each other waiting for an answer that wasn't going to come. It was Rick who spoke, voicing the one question we all wanted to ask and that none of us was quite prepared to answer. What do we do now? Do? Sean frowned at him, looking utterly and honestly perplexed. That expression was enough to terrify me, because he looked like someone who didn't understand the idea that before too much longer, I was going to be making a concerted effort to eat him alive. What do you mean, what do we do? I mean exactly what I said, Rick said. He shook his head, gesturing to me. We can't just leave her like this. We have to... No! The vehemence of Sean's reply startled me. I turned toward him. No? I repeated. 
Sean, what the hell do you mean? No, there isn't room for no. No is over. You don't know what you're saying. I know exactly what I'm saying. Rick was pale and shaking, beads of sweat standing out on his forehead. Poor guy. He didn't sign up for political assassinations when he decided to join the so-called winning team. Despite that, he met my eyes without flinching and didn't try to avoid looking at me. He'd seen the virus before. It held no surprises for him. You're the closest thing we've got to a virologist, Rick. How long do I have? How much do you weigh? 135 tops. I'd say 45 minutes under normal circumstances, he said, after a moment's consideration. But these aren't normal circumstances. The run, I said. He nodded. The run. Viral amplification depends on a lot of factors. Age, physical condition, body weight, how fast your blood is moving when you come into contact with the live virus. If someone gets bitten in their sleep without waking up, they may take the rest of the night to fully amplify because they'll be calm enough that their body won't be helping the infection along. I, on the other hand, got hit with a viral payload a lot bigger than you'd find in a bite, and it happened while I was running for my life, heart pounding, adrenaline pushing my blood pressure through the roof. I'd cut my time in half, maybe worse. It was already getting harder to think, harder to focus, harder to breathe. I knew, intellectually, that my lungs weren't shutting down. It was just the virus enclosing the soft tissues of my brain and starting to disrupt normal neurological functions, making normal autonomic actions start intruding on the conscious mind. I've read the papers and the clinical studies. I knew what to expect. First comes the lack of focus, the lack of interest, the lack of capability to draw unrelated conclusions. Then comes hyperactivity as the circulatory system is pushed to overdrive. Then... When the virus reaches full saturation, the coup de grace, the death of the conscious mind. My body would continue to walk around, driven by raw instinct and the desires of the virus, but Georgia Carolyn Mason would be gone. Forever. I was dead before the lights flashed red. I was dead the second the hypodermic hit my arm, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. But there was something I could do before I went. Turning to Sean, I nodded. There was a long pause, almost too long, before his expression calmed and he returned the gesture, looking more sure of himself, more like himself, despite the tears running down his cheeks. Rick, he said. Rick turned to him, shaking his head. You can't beat this. There's no beating this. She's gone. You need to realize that. She's gone, and I'm sorry, but we have to... Get me the medical kit from under the server rack. Sean said. I had to envy him the calmness in his voice. I couldn't have stayed that calm if he were the one undergoing explosive viral amplification. The red one. What do you... Do it! The words were barely out of his mouth before Rick was rushing to the front of the van, digging under the seat for the med kit. Mom packed it for us a million years ago for use in absolute emergency. When she put it in my hands, she said she prayed we'd never have to use it. Sorry, Mom. Guess we let you down good this time. But hey, at least the ratings will be high. I let out a long, shuddering sigh that somehow transformed into hysterical giggling. I bit my tongue before the giggles could turn to sobs. There wasn't time for that. There wasn't time for anything except the red box and the things it held, and maybe, 
Maybe if I was lucky. One last article. Rick came back to Sean's side, holding the box at arm's length. His expression was cold. He didn't think Sean would be able to do it. He didn't know him as well as he thought he did. I closed my eyes and leaned my head against the seat, suddenly tired. You can go now, Rick, I said. Take my bike in the gray backup drive. Get as far away as you can, then hit a data station and upload everything to the site. Free space. No subscription required. Creative Commons licensing. What is it? He asked, curiosity briefly overriding his determination to see me dead. Bless you, Rick. A journalist after my own heart, right up to the end. Everything I died for, I said. My eyes were starting to itch. I took my sunglasses off and threw them aside as I rubbed my eyes. Files, bank records, everything. It's just everything. Now get out of here. You've done everything you can. Are you? We're sure, said Sean. I heard the box pop open and the distinctive snap of polyvinyl Teflon gloves. They're nearly impossible to tear, and so expensive that even the military only uses them under special circumstances. Sean always insisted we carry a pair. Just one. Just in case. Take my extra body armor. There's always a chance they're still shooting out there. Do you think they are? Does it matter? No, I guess it doesn't. I listened as Rick moved around the van. He pulled Sean's body armor out of the closet where it was stored and yanked it on over his clothes, snaps and zippers fastening with their quiet, distinctive sounds. It kept me distracted from the sounds that were coming from Sean's direction, the sloshing, snapping sounds as he got the injector cartridges ready. Thanks, Rick, I said. It's been one hell of a ride. I... right. I heard Rick's footsteps approach, the scrape of metal as he lifted the drive from beside my computer, then his retreat, until the door creaked open and he stopped, hesitating. I... Georgia? Yes, Rick. I'm sorry. I cracked my eyes open, allowing him a small, mirthless smile. For the first time that I could remember, the light didn't hurt. I was going into conversion. My body was losing the capacity to understand pain. It's all right. So am I. For a moment, he looked like he might say something else. Then his lips tightened and he nodded, before undoing the latches on the door. That was the last exit. When the van was locked again, it would detect infection and refuse to open for anyone inside. Sean? Train's leaving, I said quietly. You want to jab and go? And let you finish this without me? He shook his head. No way. Rick, you be careful out there. Rick's shoulders tightened and he was gone, stepping out into the evening air. The door banged shut behind him. Sean sat down on the floor in front of me, the injector in his hands. It was a two-barrel array, ready to deliver a mixed payload of sedatives and my own hyperactivated white blood cells. Together, the mixture could slow conversion, for a while. Not for long, but if we were lucky, for long enough. Expression staying neutral, he said. Give me your right arm. I held it out. Sean pressed the twin needles to the thin skin at the bend of my elbow, and a wash of coolness flowed into me as he pressed the plunger home. Thanks, I said, shivering. That's all we've got. He opened a biohazard bag and dropped the used injector into it before sealing the top. You've got half an hour, Tops. After that, 
There's no guarantee I'll be lucid. I know. He rose, walking stiff-legged across to the biohazard bin and dropped the bag inside. I wanted to run after him, wrap my arms around him, and cry until there weren't any tears left in me. But I couldn't. I didn't dare. Even my tears would be infectious, and the sedatives he'd shot into my arm weren't going to work any miracles. Time was short. I still had work to do. I swung back to my monitor, trying to swallow away the dryness as I heard Sean moving behind me, taking one of the spare revolvers out of the locker by the door and loading it, one careful cartridge at a time. What was it the report said? The dryness of the mouth was one of the early signs of viral amplification, resulting from the crystal blocks of virus drying away moisture and bringing on that lovely, desiccated state that all the living dead seemed to share? That seemed about right. It was getting harder to think about that sort of thing. Suddenly, it was all just a little too immediate. My hands were still hovering above the keyboard while my mind struggled to find a beginning, when I felt the barrel of the gun press against the base of my skull, cold and somehow soothing. Sean wouldn't let me hurt anyone else. No matter what happened, he wouldn't let me hurt anyone else. Not even him. Not more than I already had. Sean, I'm here. I love you. I know, George. I love you, too. You and me. Always. I'm scared. His lips brushed the top of my head as he bent forward and pressed them to my hair. I wanted to yell at him to get away from me, but I didn't. The barrel of the gun remained a cool, constant pressure on the back of my neck. When I turned, when I stopped being me, he would end it. He loved me enough to end it. Has any girl ever been luckier than I am? Sean. Shh, Georgia, he said. It's okay. Just write. And so I began. One last chance to roll the dice, tell the truth, and shame the devil. One last chance to make it all clear. What we fought for. What we died for. What we felt we had to do. I never asked to be a hero. No one ever gave me the option to say I didn't want to, that I was sorry, but that they had the wrong girl. All I wanted to do was tell the truth and let people draw their own conclusions from there. I wanted people to think and to know and to understand. I just wanted to tell the truth. In the van that had carried us across a country and through the last months of my life, with my brother standing ready to pull the trigger, my hands came down and I wrote. Was it worth it? God, I hope so. Red flag distribution. Red flag distribution. Red flag distribution. Creative Commons license alert level alpha. Spread to all news sites immediately. Repost freely. Repost freely. Repost freely. Feed is live. My name is Georgia Mason. For the past several years, I've been providing one of the world's many windows into the news, chronicling current events and attempting, in my own small way, to offer context and perspective. I have always pursued the truth above all other things, even when the truth came at the cost of my own comfort and well-being. It seems, now, that I pursued the truth even when it would mean my life, although I was unaware of it at the time. My name is Georgia Mason. According to the timestamp on the field test unit, model XH-237, 
known for reliability and, God help me, accuracy. I legally died 11 minutes ago. But for now, at this moment, my name is still Georgia Mason, and this is... I guess you can call this my last postcard from the wall. There are some things you need to know, and we don't have much time. As I write this, my brother is standing behind me with a barrel of a gun pressed against the back of my neck, where a blast will sever the spinal cord with the smallest possible spray radius. In my bloodstream, a large dose of sedatives mixed with a serum based on my own immune system is running a race against the virus that is in the process of taking over my cells. My nose isn't clogged and I can swallow, but I feel lethargic and it's hard to breathe. I tell you this so that you'll understand that this isn't a hoax. This isn't some sophomoric attempt to increase ratings or sight traffic. This is real. Everything I am about to tell you is the truth. Believe me. Understand and act before it is too late. If you're viewing this from the main page of After the End Times, you'll see a download link labeled campaign underscore notes dot zip on the left-hand side of your screen. Possession of the documents behind that link may be considered treason by the government of the United States of America. Please, click, download, read, repost to any forum you can, any message board or photo sharing site or blog that you can reach. The data contained in those files is as essential to our freedom and survival as the report of Dr. Matross proved to be during the Rising. I am not overstating the data's importance. There isn't enough time for that. Neither is there enough time for me to repeat the facts that are already codified and ready for you to download. Let this suffice for all the things I cannot say, do not have the time to say, will never say, and wish I could. They are lying to us. They are willfully channeling research away from the pursuit of a cure for this disease, and they are doing it under the auspices of our own government. I don't know who they are. I didn't live long enough to find out. Governor Tate served their interests. So, I regret to say, did Georgette Maisonnier, previously a part of this reporting site. They want us to stay afraid. They want us to stay controlled. They want us to stay sick. Please. Don't let them do this to our world. I am begging you from the wall, because it's all that's left for me to do. It's all I can do. Don't let them keep us frightened and hiding in our homes. Let us be what we were intended to be, human and free and able to make our own choices. Read what I have written. Understand what they intend for us, for all of us, and decide to live. They made a mistake in killing me because, alive or dead, the truth won't rest. My name is Georgia Mason, and I am begging you, rise up while you can. Mahir, I'm so sorry. Buffy, I'm so sorry. Rick, I'm so sorry. Sean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I would take it all back if I could, but I can't. I can't. I, 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 I. All fading words. Going. Can't do this. Can't. Sean, please. Sean, please. I love you. I love you. I always, you know, I, Sean, please. Can't. Hold on. Everything. Can't. Do this. 
have to. My name, my name is Sean. I love you, Sean. Please, please shoot me, Sean. Shoot me. Terminate live feed. Red flag distribution. Red flag distribution. Red flag distribution. Repost freely. Book five, burial rites. I've spent my whole life imagining worlds other than the one that I was born in. Everybody does. The one world I never imagined was a world without a Georgia. So how come that's the world I have to live with? Sean Mason. I'm sorry, Georgia Mason. It is the sad duty of the management. Of after the end times, to announce the death of Georgia Carolyn Mason, the head of our factual news division, most commonly called the Newsies, and one of the original founders of this site. I've been trying to find the words for this announcement since I was asked to make it some three hours ago. The request came with a promotion to which I never aspired, and a position made bitter by the knowledge of what it cost. I would sooner have my friend than all the promotions in the world, but that option is not open to me or to any of those who will mourn for her. Georgia Mason was my friend, and I will always regret that we never met in the flesh. She once told me she lived each day hoping and praying she would find the truth, that she was able to keep going through all life's petty disappointments, because she knew that some day the truth would set her free. Goodbye, Georgia. May the truth be enough to bring you peace. From Fish and Clips, the blog of Mahir Gauda, June twentieth, twenty forty. Chapter twenty-seven. George's blood didn't all dry at the same rate. Some of the smaller streaks dried almost immediately, staining the wall behind her ruined monitor. The gunshot collapsed the screen inward. Safety-tempered glass holding its form as well as it could, even when the plastic casing shattered. It was like looking at some modern artist's reinterpretation of an old-school disco ball. The party's in here, and we're just getting started. As long as you didn't mind the blood on the glass, that was. I minded the blood on the glass. I minded the blood on the glass a lot. I just didn't see a way to put it back where it belonged. The bigger splashes were drying slow and sticky, the color maturing from bright red to a sober burgundy, where they seemed content to stay. That bothered me. I wanted the blood to dry, wanted it to settle in funeral colors and stop taunting me. I'm a good shot. I've been on firing ranges since I was seven years old, in the field, legally, since I was sixteen. Even if the virus still allowed her to feel pain, George didn't have time for pain. It was just the roar of the gun, and then she was slumping forward, face first on her keyboard. That was the only real mercy. She landed face first, so I didn't have to see what I'd. So I didn't have to see. She didn't have time to suffer. I just have to keep telling myself that now, and tomorrow, and the next day, for as long as I can stay alive. The sound of the gun fired inside the van would have been the loudest thing I'd ever heard. If it hadn't been followed by the sound of George falling, that's the loudest thing I've ever heard. That's always 
going to be the loudest thing, no matter what else I hear. The sound of George falling. But I'm a good shot, and there was no shrapnel unless you wanted to count the aerosolized blood released when the bullet hit my... When I shot. Not unless you counted the blood. I had to count the blood because it was enough to turn the entire damn van into a hot zone. If I was infected, I was infected. Too late to worry about that kind of shit now. But that didn't mean I needed to make my chances worse. I moved as far away as I could and sat down with my back against the wall, the gun dangling loose against my left knee, to watch the blood dry and to wait. George turned the security cameras on before things got too. Before it was too late to worry about that sort of stuff. I watched the center's security forces rush around with the senator's men and some dudes I didn't recognize. Ryman wasn't the only candidate working Sacramento. There was no sign of Rick. Either he got dead or he got out of the quarantine zone before things went to hell. And things had gone to hell. I could spot at least three of the infected on every monitor, about half of them being gunned down by frantic guards who'd never dealt with a for-real and true zombie before. They were shooting stupid. They would have known they were shooting stupid if they'd paused to think for five seconds. You're not a sharpshooter. You don't go for the head. You go for the knees. A zombie that's been hobbled can't come at you as fast, and that leaves more time to aim. You're out of ammo. You leave the field. You don't reload where you stand unless there isn't any choice. When you're fighting a disease, you have to fight smarter than it does, or you may as well put down your weapons and surrender. Sometimes they just bite enough to infect if you don't put up a fight and if the pack's too small. You can avoid being eaten if you're willing to defect to the enemy's side. Part of me wanted to get out there and help them, because it was clear they were pretty fucked without some sort of backup. Most of me wanted to stay where I was, watching the blood dry, watching the last signs of George slipping away forever. My pocket buzzed. I slapped at it like it was a fly, fumbling out my phone and clicking it on. Sean? Sean, it's Rick. Are you okay? It took me a moment to recognize the high, wavering sound in the van as my own distorted laughter. I clamped it down, clearing my throat before I said, I don't think that word applies at this point. I'm alive, for now. If you're asking whether I'm infected, I don't know. I'm waiting until someone shows up to get me before I run a blood test. Seems a little pointless before that. Did you get out before the quarantine came down? Barely. They were still reacting to the explosions when I got to George's bike. They hadn't had time to do anything. I think they closed the gates right behind me. I... Do me a favor. Don't tell me where you are. I let my head tilt back to touch the van's wall and discovered more blood I'd need to keep an eye on. This was on the ceiling. I have no idea how tapped our phones are or who might be listening. I'm still in the van. Doors are probably locked anyway, since we confirmed an infection in here. The van's security system wasn't going to trust any attempt to open it from the inside, even if I registered uninfected. It would need an outside agent to free me. That, or a rocket launcher, and even I don't pack that heavy for a little political rally. Rick's reply was subdued. I won't. I... I'm sorry, Sean. Aren't we all? I laughed again. This time, the high strangled sound seemed almost natural. 
Tell me her last transmission got out. Tell me it's circulating now. That's why I called. Sean, this is... It's insane. We're getting so many hits that it swamped two of the servers. Everyone is downloading this. Everyone is propagating it. Some folks started the usual it's a hoax rumors, and Sean, the CDC put out a press statement. The CDC. He sounded odd. He damn well should. The CDC never puts out a statement with less than a week to prepare it. They confirmed receipt of her test results with a timestamp and everything. This story doesn't just have legs, it has wings, and it's flying around the world. The name on the press release, it wasn't Wynn, was it? Dr. Joseph Wynn. Guess our trip to Memphis did some good after all. The blood on the ceiling was more satisfying than the blood on the walls. It was thinner up there. It was drying so much faster. She didn't die for nothing. Her story, our story, it got out. Suddenly, I was tired. So goddamn tired. Sorry, Rick, but no. She died for nothing. No one should have died for this. You get away from here, far as you can. Dump your phones, dump your transmitters, dump anything that could be used to bounce a signal. Stick George's bike in a garage and don't call again until this is over. Sean! Don't argue. A bitter smile touched my lips. I'm your boss now. Try not to die. I'll think about it. I hung up and chucked my phone across the van, where it shattered against the wall with a satisfying crunch. Rick was out of the quarantine, and he was still running. Good. He was wrong. George damn well died for nothing. But he was also right. She would have thought this justified things. She would have said this was enough to pay for my being forced to put a bullet through her spine, because she put the truth ahead of absolutely everything we ever had, and this had been the biggest truth of all. Happy now, George? I asked the air. The silence supplied her answer. Ecstatic. The sound of beeping intruded on my contemplation of the bloody ceiling some ten minutes later. The fight outside was winding down. Bemused? I looked toward my shattered phone, still broken. There were countless things in the van that could be beeping like that, about half of them on George's side. Hoping whatever it was happened to be voice-activated, I said, Answer. One of the wall-mounted monitors rolled, the body of a dead security guard and the two infected feasting on his torso being replaced by the worried face of Mahir, my sister's longtime second and our secret weapon against government shutdown. Guess that cat didn't need to stay in the bag any longer. His eyes were wide and terrified, the white showing all the way around, and his hair was disheveled, like he'd just gotten out of bed. Huh, I said, distantly pleased. Guess it was voice-activated after all. Hey, Mahir. His focus shifted down, settling on where I sat against the wall. It wasn't possible for his eyes to get any wider, but they tried when he saw the gun in my hand. Still, his voice struggled to stay level as he said, with great and anxious seriousness, Tell me this is a joke, Sean. Please tell me this is the most tasteless joke in a long history of tasteless jokes, and I will forgive you, happily, for having pulled it on me. Sorry, no can do, I said closing my eyes rather than continuing to look at his worry-stricken face. 
Was this how it felt to be George? To have people looking at you, expecting you to have the answers about things that didn't involve shooting the thing that was about to chew your face off? Jesus, no wonder she was tired all the time. The exact time and cause of death for Georgia Carolyn Mason has been registered with the Centers for Disease Control. You can access it in the public database. I understand there's been a statement confirming it. I'm going to have to get that framed. Oh, dear God. Pretty sure God's not here just now. Leave a message. Maybe he'll get back to you. It was nice, looking at the inside of my eyelids. Dark. Comfortable. Like all those hotel rooms I fixed up for her, because her eyes got hurt so easy. Sean, where are you? Horror was overwhelming the anxiety in his tone. He'd seen the van wall. He'd seen the gun. Mahir wasn't an idiot. He could never have worked for George if he'd been stupid, and he knew what my surroundings meant. I'm in the van, I nodded, still letting myself take comfort in the dark. I couldn't see his face. I couldn't see the blood drying on the walls. The dark was my friend. George is here, too, but you can't really say hi just now. She's indisposed. Also, I blew her brains out all over the wall. The giggle escaped before I could bite it back, high and shrill in the confined air. Oh, my God! Now there was nothing but horror in his tone, wiping everything else away. Have you activated your emergency beacon? Have you tested yourself? Sean, not yet. I found myself beginning to get interested against my better judgment. Do you think I should? Don't you want to live, man? That's an interesting question. I opened my eyes and stood, testing my legs and finding them good. There was a moment of dizziness, but it passed. Mahir was watching me from the screen, his dark complexion gone pale with panic. Do you think I should? I wasn't supposed to. George was supposed to. There's been a clerical error. Turn on your beacon, Sean. His voice was firm now. She wouldn't want it this way. Pretty sure she wouldn't want any of this. Especially not the part where she's dead. That would be the part she liked the least. My head was starting to clear as the shock faded, replaced by something cleaner and a lot more familiar. Anger. I was furiously angry because it wasn't supposed to be this way. It was never supposed to be this way. Georgia would attend my funeral, give my eulogy, and I would never live in a world she wasn't a part of. We agreed on that when we were kids, and this, this was just plain wrong. Regardless, now that she's gone and you're not, she'd want you to make at least a small effort to stay that way. You newsies, always bringing the facts into things. I crossed the van, keeping my eyes away from the mess at my sister's terminal and the surrounding walls. The beacon a button that would trigger a broadcast loop to let any local CDC or law enforcement agents know that someone in the van had been infected and that someone else was alive. It was a switch on the wall next to what had been Buffy's primary terminal before she went and died on us. First Buffy, now George. Two down, one to go. And the more I forced myself out of the comfort of my shock, the more I realized that the story wasn't over. It didn't have an ending. George would have hated that. It is, as you might say, 
Our job, Mahir said. Yeah, about that. I flipped the switch. A distant, steady beeping began, the beacon signal being picked up and relayed by the illegal police scanner in the sealed-off front seat. Who are you working for right now? Ah, no one. I suppose I'm a free agent. Good, because I want to hire you. Mahir's surprise was entirely unfeigned as he demanded, What? This day can't be good for your blood pressure, I said, crossing to the weapons locker. The revolver wasn't going to cut it. For one thing, it was probably contaminated, and they'd take it away when they let me out of the van. For another, it lacked class. You can't go hunting United States governors with a generic revolver. It simply isn't done. After the end times has found itself with a sudden opening for a new head of our factual reporting department. I mean, I could hire Rick, but I don't think he's going to have the guts for the job. He's one of nature's seconds. Besides, Georgia would have wanted me to give it to you. We never discussed it. The topic of her dying was so ludicrous that it never came up. But I was sure of what I was saying. She would have hired him if she had any say in the matter. She would have hired him and she would have trusted him to take over the site if my death followed hers. So, that was all right. I... I'm not sure what you... Just say yes, Mahir. We have so many recorders running right now that you know a verbal contract will stand up in court, as long as I don't test positive when they come to let me out of here. Mahir sighed. The sound seemingly summoned up from the very core of him. I glanced up from the process of loading bullets into George's favorite forty and saw him nod. All right, Sean. I accept. Good. Welcome back on board. I've done my own hiring and firing from the start, and I know what it takes to activate a new account or reactivate an old one. Leaning over the nearest blood-free keyboard, I called up an administrative panel and tapped in his user ID, followed by my own, my password, and my administrative override. It'll take about ten minutes for your login to turn all the way back live. Just about as long as it had taken George's typing to degrade. Once you can get in, get in. I want you monitoring every inch of the site. Draft any damn body you can get your hands on. I don't care what department they belong to. You get them working the forums, watching the feeds, and making the goddamn news go. You need to hire people, you hire people. Until I come back, you're in charge. Your word is law. What's the goal here, Sean? I looked toward the screen, teeth bared in a grin, and he recoiled. We're not letting them kill my sister's story the way they killed her. She gets buried, it doesn't. For a moment, it looked as if he might protest, but only for a moment. It passed as quickly as it had come, and he nodded. I'll get on that. Are you about to do something foolish? You could say that, I agreed. Good night, Mahir. Good luck, he said, and the screen went black. I had just finished loading George's gun when the intercom buzzed. Answer, I said, pulling down my Kevlar vest and slamming the weapons locker shut before starting to fasten the buckles around my chest. There? I repeat, Sean, are you in there? Steve, my man!
I didn't have to feign my delight at the sound of his voice. Dude, you're like a cat. How many lives you got anyway? Not as many as you, Steve replied, the rumble of his voice not quite hiding his concern. George, you're in there with you, Sean? She is, I said, sliding a taser into my pocket. It wouldn't stop someone who'd amplified all the way, but it would slow them down. The virus doesn't like to have the electrical current of its host messed with. She's not really interested in talking, though, Steve-O, on account of the bullets I put through her spinal column. If you're not infected, and you'd be good enough to open the doors, I'd be greatly obliged. Did she bite, scratch, or come into contact with you in any way after exposure? They were routine questions. They'd never made me so angry in my life. No, Steve, I'm afraid she didn't. No bites, no scratches, no hugs, not even a kiss goodnight before that Bible-thumping bastard's assassins sent my sister off to the great newsroom in the sky. If you've got a blood test unit and you'll open the doors, I'll prove it. You armed, Sean? You gonna leave me in here if I say yes? Cause I can lie. The pause that followed was almost enough to make me think Steve had decided safe was better than sorry and was leaving me in the van to rot. That was a goal, sure, but not yet. The story wasn't done until the last of the loose ends were tied off and one of those loose ends was slated to be George's honor guard. Finally, voice low, Steve said, I haven't read her last entry all the way. I read enough. Stand back from the door and keep your hands where I can see them until you test it out clean. Yes, sir, I said, and stepped backward. The air that rushed in when the door opened was so fresh, it almost hurt my lungs. The scents of blood and gunpowder were heavy, but not as heavy as they'd been inside the van. I took an involuntary step forward toward the light and stopped as a large, dark blur raised what I could only assume was an arm and said, Don't come any closer until I've moved away. You got it, Steve-O, I said. You guys dealt with the little outbreak you had going out here? Sorry I didn't come to join your party. I was preoccupied. It's been contained, if not resolved. And I understand, said Steve, coming into focus as my eyes adjusted. He knelt, placed something on the ground, and retreated, allowing me to approach the object. As expected, it was a blood-testing unit. Not the top of the line, but not the bottom, either. Solidly middle of the road, enough to confirm or deny infection within an acceptable margin of error. Acceptable. That's always seemed like such a funny word to use when you're talking about whether somebody lives or dies. It weighed less than a pound. I broke the seal with my thumb, looking toward Steve as I did. He doesn't walk away from this, I said. I promise, Steve replied. Good enough for me. Count of three, I said. One. Inside my head, Georgia said, two. I slid my hand into the unit and pressed the relays down, watching as the lights started cycling through the available colors. Red, yellow, green. Yellow, red, green. Every damn one of those lights danced between red and gold for a few seconds, long enough to make me sweat before settling on a calm and steady green. You're fine, son, 
just fine. Now go and be merry. Merry wasn't exactly in my plans. I held up the testing unit, letting Steve get a good, long look. This good enough? It is, he said, and tossed me a biohazard bag. What the hell happened, Sean? Just what George said. Some sick fucker killed Rick's cat and rigged our trailers to blow. When the blast didn't kill us, they hit George with one of those hypodermic darts like the one that triggered the outbreak at the Ryman place. Shit, I wish we'd been looking for the things back at Eakley. I bet we would have found one. I bet we would have too, said Steve, watching as I dropped the testing unit into a biohazard bag. He was holding his sunglasses loosely in one hand, and his eyes were the eyes of a man who's looked into hell and found he couldn't cope with what he was seeing. I wouldn't have been willing to bet that my eyes were any better. You got a plan from here? Oh, the usual. Get a vehicle, head for whatever site they have the candidates under lockdown at, right where you left them, Steve interjected. Well, that's convenient. I know the security layout there. Anyway, head back to the candidates and have a chat with Governor Tate. I shrugged. Maybe blow his brains out. I don't know. The plan is still on the formative stage. Need a ride? I grinned, the expression feeling foreign on my face. I'd love one. Good, because my boys and I, what's left of my boys, wouldn't like to see you get hurt just because you felt like being stupid and going it alone. The ludicrousness of it all was enough to make me laugh. Wait, you mean this was all I had to do to get myself a bigger security detail? Guess so. Get your boys. The laughter faded as I looked at him. It's time we got on the road. Sometimes we leave the connecting door between our rooms open all night. We'd still share a room if they'd let us, turn the other room into an office and have done with it. Because both of us hate to be alone, and both of us hate to have other people, people outside the country we've made together, around when we're defenseless. We're always defenseless when we're asleep. We leave the connecting door open and I wake up in the night to the sound of him snoring, and I wonder how the hell I'm going to stay alive after he finally slips up. He'll die first. We both know it, but I don't know. I really don't know how long I'll stay alive without him. That's the part Sean doesn't know. I don't intend to be an only child for long. From Postcards from the Wall, The Unpublished Files of Georgia Mason, June 19th, 2040. Chapter 28 The outbreak was still going strong. The infected weren't actually everywhere. It just seemed that way, as they lurched and ran out of the shadows, following whatever weird radar signals the virus uses to tell the active hosts from the ones where the potential for infection is still just that, potential, sleeping and waiting for a wake-up. The scientists have been trying to figure out that little trick for 20 years. And as far as I know, they're no closer than they were the day Romero movies stopped being trashy horror and started being guides to staying alive. I should have been thrilled. It's not every day I get to walk through the center of an actual outbreak, but I was too busy being angry to really give a damn. Zombies didn't kill George. People did. Living, breathing, uninfected people. 
I recognized a lot of faces among the infected. Interns from the campaign, a few security staffers, one long-faced man with thinning red hair who'd been traveling with us for about six weeks writing speeches for the senator. No more speeches for you, buddy, I thought, and put a bullet through the center of his forehead. He fell soundlessly, robbed of menace, and I turned away, nauseated. If I get out of this alive, I may need to look for another line of work. What's that? asked Steve, between breathless radio calls to his surviving men. He was pulling them back to the motor pool. Several were moving slowly due to the need to herd less well-armed survivors, going against the recommended survival strategies for an outbreak as they responded like human beings. You want to stay alive in a zombie swarm? You go alone or in a small group where everyone is of similar physical condition and weapons training. You never stop, you never hesitate, and you never show any mercy for the people that would slow you down. That's what the military says we should do, and if I ever meet anybody who listens to that particular set of commands, I may shoot them myself just to improve the gene pool. When you can help people stay alive, you help them. We're all we've got. Nothing, I said, with a shake of my head. How are we looking for support? His mouth drew down in something between a wince and a scowl before he said, Our last call from Andres came while I was on my way to get you. He was backed against the wall with half a dozen of the aides. I don't think we'll be seeing him again. Carlos and Heidi are at the motor pool. That zone's relatively clear. Mike... I haven't heard from Mike. Not Susan or Paolo either. Everyone else is either on the way to meet with us or holding fast in a safe zone. Andres. Crap, man. I'm sorry. Steve shook his head. I never was very good at partners. He turned and fired into the shadows at the side of a portable office. Something gurgled and fell. I gave him a sidelong look, and he actually smiled. You thought we wore these sunglasses for our health? I have got to get a pair of those. We kept walking. What started as a pleasant, well-configured camp for visiting politicians had become a killing ground, full of cul-de-sacs and blind alleys that could hold almost anything. Complacency had long since destroyed the functionality of the layout. I couldn't blame them. There hadn't been an outbreak in Sacramento in years. I didn't appreciate it either. Luck was on our side. With the senator and most of his senior staff off the grounds for the keynote speech, we had fewer bodies to deal with than we might have otherwise. Our chances of survival had gotten better with every person who left the compound. Just wish we hadn't come back, I muttered. What's that? asked Steve. I started to answer, but was cut off as something hit me from behind the momentum forcing me to the ground as hands clawed at my shoulders. Steve shouted. I was too occupied with trying to shake the zombie off to understand what he was saying. It was tearing at my back, trying to bite through the Kevlar. It would move up before too much longer, and my scalp was unprotected. The idea of having my brain literally eaten was really failing to appeal. Sean! Busy now! I rolled to the left ignoring the growls behind me as I struggled to get the taser out of my belt. Can you shoot it? It's too close! 
So get it off me before it figures out where to bite. The taser came free, almost falling into my hand. I twisted my arm as far behind me as I could, praying the thing wouldn't catch the unprotected flesh of my lower arm before the electricity could do its job. Damn it, Steve! Grab the fucking thing! Electricity spat and arced as the taser made contact with the zombie's side. Luckily for me, it had been an intern, not a security guard. It wasn't wearing protective clothing. The thing screamed, sounding almost human as the viral bodies powering its actions became disoriented in the face of an electric current greater than their own. I hit it again, and Steve finally moved, grabbing the zombie and yanking it off. I rolled onto my back, reaching for George's forty, and starting to fire almost as soon as I had it drawn. My first shot hit the zombie high in the shoulder, rocking it back. The second hit it in the forehead, and it went down. My heart was pounding hard enough to echo in my ears, but my legs were steady as I scrambled back to my feet. Steve looked a lot more shaken. Sweat stood out on his forehead, and his complexion was several shades paler than it had been before I fell. I glanced around. Seeing that nothing else was about to rush me, I bent, picked up the taser, and replaced both it and the gun in my belt. You okay over there, Steve-o? Did you get bit? He demanded. There was a predictable response. Nope, I said, raising my hands to show the unbroken skin. You can test me again when we hit the motor pool, okay? Right now, I think we should stop being out here, like, as soon as possible. That wasn't my favorite thing ever. I paused and added, almost guiltily, Besides, I didn't have a camera running. George would have kicked my ass for that, after she finished kicking my ass for getting that close to a live infection. You don't need the ratings, said Steve, and grabbed my arm, hauling me after him as he resumed moving, double speed, toward the motor pool. Maybe it was because Carlos and Heidi had access to an entire ammo shed, and maybe it was because the motor pool wasn't a popular hangout for the living, but the infected tapered off as we moved toward it and we crossed the last ten feet to the fence without incident. Good thing. I was almost out of bullets, and I didn't feel like trusting myself to the taser. The gate in the fence was closed, the electric locks engaged. Steve released my arm, reaching for the keypad, and a shot rang out over our heads, clearly aimed to warn, not wound. Small favors. Stop where you are, shouted Carlos. I looked toward his voice and watched as he and Heidi stepped out from behind the shed, both bristling with weapons. I clucked my tongue disapprovingly. Sure, it looked good, but you can't intimidate a zombie, and they had so many things piled overlapping that they'd have trouble drawing much of anything when their primary guns ran out of bullets. Overkill, I muttered. Amateurs. Stand down, barked Steve. It's me and the mason kid. He tested clean when I picked him up. Beg your pardon, sir, but how do we know you test clean now? Heidi asked. Smart girl. Maybe she could live. You don't, I said. But if you let us through the fence and keep us backed against it while you run blood tests, you'll have the opportunity to shoot before either of us can reach you. She and Carlos exchanged a look. Carlos nodded. All right he said. Step back from the gate. We did as we were told, 
Steve giving me a thoughtful look as the gate slid open. You're good at this. Top of my field, I said, and followed him into the motor pool. Carlos chucked us both testing units while Heidi reported on the status of the other units, still remaining at a safe distance. Susan was confirmed as infected. She'd been tagged by a political analyst as she was helping Mike evacuate a group of survivors to a rooftop. She stayed on the ground after she was bitten, shooting everything in sight before taking out the ladder and shooting herself. About the best ending you could hope for if you got infected in a combat zone. Mike was fine. So, surprisingly, was Paolo. There was still no word from Andres, and three more groups of security agents and survivors were expected to reach the motor pool at any time. Steve absorbed the news without changing his expression. He didn't even flinch when the needles on his testing unit bit into his hand. I flinched. After the number of blood tests I'd had recently, I was getting seriously tired of being punctured. Heidi and Carlos relaxed when our tests flashed clean. Sorry, sir, said Carlos, walking over with the biohazard bags. We needed to be sure. Standard outbreak protocol, Steve said, dismissing the apology with a wave of his hand. Keep holding this ground while we break quarantine, I said, almost cheerfully. George snorted amusement in the back of my head. All for you, George. All for you. Steve-O and I need to take a little trip. Loan us a car, give us some ammo, and open the gates. Sir? Heidi sounded uncertain. The idea of leaving a quarantine zone without military or CDC clearance is pretty much anathema to most people. It's just not done. Ever. What is he talking about? One of the armored SUVs should do, said Steve. Find the fastest one that's still on the grounds. Carlos and Heidi stared at him like he'd just gone into spontaneous amplification. Move! He barked, and they moved, scattering for the guard station where the keys to the parked vehicles were stored. Steve ignored their burst of activity, leading me to the weapons locker and keying open the lock. Candy store is open. So all you have to do to break quarantine is shout, Move? I asked, beginning to load my pockets with ammunition. I considered grabbing a new gun, but dismissed the idea. Nothing but George's forty was going to feel right in my hand. Wow, normally I'd need a pair of wire cutters and some night vision goggles. Gonna pretend you never said that. Probably for the best. Carlos emerged from the guard station and tossed a set of keys to Steve, who caught them in an easy underhand. We can unlock the rear gate, but once the central computer realizes the seal's been broken, how long can we have? Thirty seconds. That's long enough. You two hold your ground. Keep anyone who makes it here safe. Mason, you with me. Yes, sir, I said with a mocking salute. Steve shook his head and pressed the signal button on the key fob. One of the SUVs turned its lights on. Showtime. Once we were inside, belts fastened and weapons secured, Steve started the engine and drove us to the gate. Carlos was already waiting, ready to hit the manual override. The manual exits exist in case of accidental or ineffective lockdown to give the uninfected a chance to escape. They require a blood test and a retinal scan, 
and breaking quarantine without a damn good reason is a quick way to get yourself sent to prison for a long time. Carlos was risking a lot on Steve's order. That's what I call a chain of command, I said to myself as the gate slid open. What's that? asked Steve. Nothing, just go. We went. The roads outside the center were clear. That's standard for the time immediately following a confirmed outbreak in a non-congested area. The people inside the quarantine zone will survive or not without interference. It's all up to them the minute the fences come down. So the big health orgs and military intervention teams wait until the worst of it's had time to burn itself out before they head in. Let the infection peak. Ironically, that makes it safer because it's trying to save the survivors that gets people killed. Once you know everyone around you is already dead, it gets easier to shoot without asking questions. How long since the quarantine went down? I asked. Thirty-seven minutes. Standard CDC response time says you leave a quarantine to cook for 45 minutes before you go in. Given our proximity to the city, they wouldn't just be responding by air, they'd be sending in ground support to make sure nobody broke quarantine before they declared it safe. Shit! With eight minutes between us and the end of the cooking time, we needed to get out of sight. How good's the balance on this thing? Pretty good. Why? Quarantine. It's going to be 45 minutes since the bell real soon here, and that means we're going to have company. Now, I've got a way out, but only if you trust me. If you don't, we're probably going to get the chance to tell some nice men why we're out here, assuming they don't just shoot first. Kid, I'm already committed. Just tell me where to go. Take the next left turn. Being a good Irwin is partially dependent on knowing as many ways to access an area as possible. That includes the location of handy things like, say, railroad trestle bridges across the American River. See, they used to run trains through Sacramento, back when people traveled that way. The system's abandoned now, except for the automated cargo trains, but they run on a fixed schedule. I've had it memorized for years. Steve started swearing once he realized where we were going, and he kept swearing as he pulled the SUV onto the tracks and floored the gas, trusting momentum and the structure of the trestle to keep us from plunging into the river. I grabbed the oh-shit handle with one hand and whooped, bracing the other hand on the dashboard. I couldn't help myself. Everything was going to hell. George was dead, and I was on my way to commit either treason or suicide, but who the hell cared? I was off-roading across a river in a government SUV. Sometimes, you just gotta kick back and enjoy what's going on around you. We were halfway across the river when the first CDC copters passed overhead, zooming toward the center. Three more followed close behind, in closed arrow formation. Fascinated, I leaned over and clicked on the radio, tuning it to the emergency band. Repeat, this is not a drill. Remain in your homes. If you are on the road, remain in your vehicle until you have reached a safe location. If you have seen or had direct contact with infected individuals, contact local authorities immediately. Repeat, this is not a drill. Remain in... Steve turned the radio off. Breaking quarantine's a federal offense, isn't it? Only if they catch us. I settled back in my seat. Doesn't bother me much. 
and they're not looking down. All right, then. He hit the gas again. The SUV rolled faster, hitting the end of the trestle and blazing onward toward the city. He glanced at me as we drove, saying, I'm sorry about your sister. She was a good woman. She'll be missed. That's appreciated, Steve. The idea of looking at his face, it would be so earnest, if his words were anything to judge by, so anxious for understanding, made me tired all over again. There was nothing I could do now, nothing I could do until we got to the hall and to the man who had killed my sister. So I looked at my hands as I cleaned and reloaded George's gun, and I was silent, and we drove on. But they were us, our children, ourselves, these shades who walk the cloistered dark, with empty eyes and clasping hands, and wander, isolate, alone, the space between forgiveness and the penitent's grave. From Eakley, Oklahoma, originally published in By the Sounding Sea, the blog of Buffy Maisonnier, February 11th, 2040. Chapter 29 Quarantine procedures hit different social and economic classes in different ways, just like outbreaks. When Kellis Amberley breaks out in an urban area, it hits the inner cities and the business districts the hardest. That's where you have the largest number of people coming and going, experiencing the closest thing we have these days to casual contact. Interestingly, you tend to have more fatalities in the business districts, the slums may not have the same security features and weaponry, but they're mostly self-policing and fewer people try to conceal injuries when they know amplification isn't just going to cost them their co-workers, it's going to cost them their families. Inner cities and business districts turn into ghost towns when the quarantines come down. If you pass through while they're under quarantine, you can feel the inhabitants watching you, waiting for you to make a move. Middle-class zones also tend to seal themselves off, but they're less blatantly aggressive about it. Windows too small or too high for a person to get in through can be left open, and not every glass door has a steel shield in front of it. You can enter those areas and still believe people live in them, even if those folks aren't exactly setting out the welcome mats. They'll kill you as quickly as anyone else will if you try to approach them. If you don't, they won't interfere. The hall where they held the keynote speech was far enough from the center that it wasn't technically in the quarantine zone. Street traffic was down to practically zero, but there were no retractable bars over the windows and no steel plating over the doors. Local businesses were open, even if there weren't any customers. I looked around as Steve pulled up to the first checkpoint, and I hated these people for being able to ignore what was going on outside their city. George was dead. Rick and Mahir said the whole world was mourning with me, but that didn't matter, because the man who did it, the man I intended to blame, wasn't even inconvenienced. If the guard thought there was something odd about us arriving in a dusty, dented SUV over an hour after the center went into lockdown, he didn't say anything. Our blood tests came back clean. That was what his job required him to give a damn about and so he just waved us inside. I clenched my jaw so hard I almost tasted blood. Calm down, counseled George. It's not his fault. 
He didn't write the news. Go for the writers, I muttered. Steve shot me a look. What's that? Nothing. We parked next to a press bus that had doubtless been loaded with reporters who were now thanking God for their timing, since being on assignment with a bunch of political bigwigs meant they weren't available to be sent out to report on the quarantine. Local Irwins would be flocking to the perimeter, getting footage of the CDC men as they locked and secured the site. I would have been with them not that long ago and been happy about it. Now, I'd be just as happy if I never saw another outbreak. Somewhere between Eakley and George, I lost the heart for it. Steve and I got into the elevator together. I glanced at him as he keyed in our floor, saying, You don't have a press pass. Don't need one, he said. The scent is under quarantine. By contract, I'm actually obligated to circumnavigate any security barricade between myself and the senator. Sneaky, I said approvingly. Precisely. The elevator opened on a sickeningly normal-looking party. Servers in starched uniforms circulated with trays of drinks and canopies. Politicians, their spouses, reporters, and members of the California elite milled around, chattering about shit that didn't mean a goddamn thing compared to George's blood drying on the wall. The only real difference was in their eyes. They knew about the quarantine. Half of these people were staying at the center, or work there, or had a stake in its continued success, and they were terrified. But appearances have to be maintained, especially when you're looking at millions of dollars in lost city revenue because of an outbreak. So the party continued. Poe was right, I muttered. The man with the blood tests was waiting for us to check in. I slid my increasingly sore hand into the unit he held, watching lights run their cycle from red to yellow and finally to green. I wasn't infected. If being shut in a van with George's body didn't get me, nothing was going to. Infection would have been too easy a way out. I yanked my hand free as soon as the lights went green, held up my press pass, and ducked into the crowd. Steve was right behind me. I dodged staff and guests, arrowing toward the room where I had last seen Senator Ryman. They wouldn't allow him to leave after the center went into lockdown, and if he couldn't leave, he wouldn't have left the room where he had his surviving staff and supporters gathered. It just made sense. People recoiled as I passed them, eyes going wide and suppressed fear surging to the front of their expressions. I paused, looking down at myself. Mud, powder burns, visible weapons, everything but blood. Somehow, I'd managed to avoid getting George's blood on me. That was a good thing, since she died infected and her blood would have made me a traveling hot zone. But still, it was almost a pity. At least then she would have seen the story find an ending. Sean? Senator Ryman sounded astonished. I turned toward his voice and found him half-standing. Emily was beside him, eyes wide, hands clapped over her mouth. Tate was on his other side. Unlike the Rymans, the governor looked anything but relieved to see me. I could read the hatred in his eyes. Senator Ryman, I said, and finished my turn, walking to the table that looked like it held all the survivors of the Ryman campaign. Less than a dozen of us had been at this stupid speech. 
less than a dozen, from a caravan that had swelled to include more than sixty people. What kind of survival rate were we looking at? Fifty percent? Less? Almost certainly less. That's the nature of an outbreak, to kill what it doesn't conquer. Mrs. Ryman! I smiled narrowly, the sort of expression that's always been more George's purview than my own. Governor! Oh, God, Sean! Emily Ryman stood so fast, she sent her chair toppling over as she threw her arms around me. We heard the news. I'm so sorry. I shot her, I said conversationally, looking over Emily's shoulder to Senator Ryman and Governor Tate. Pulled the trigger after she started to amplify. She was lucid until then. You can increase the duration of post-infection lucidity with sedatives and white blood cell boosters, and first aid classes teach you to do that in the field. So you can get any messages they may have for their family or other loved ones. Sean? Emily pulled away, looking uncertain. She glanced over her shoulder at Governor Tate before looking back to me. What's going on here? How did you get out of the quarantine zone? asked Tate. His voice was flat, verging on emotionless. He knew the score. He'd known it since I walked through the door. The bastard. A little luck, a little skill, a little applied journalism. Emily Ryman let me go entirely, taking a step backward toward her husband. I kept my eyes on Tate. Turns out most of the security staff like my sister more than they ever liked you, probably because George tried to help them instead of using them to further her political ambitions. Once they knew what happened, they were happy to help. Sean, what are you talking about? The confusion in Senator Ryman's voice was enough to distract me from Tate. I turned to blink at the man responsible for us being here in the first place, asking, Haven't you seen George's last report? No, son, I haven't. His expression was drawn tight with concern. Things have been a bit hectic. Haven't had a sight feed since the outbreak bell rang. Then how did you... The CDC puts out a statement that tends to go around in a hurry. Senator Ryman closed his eyes, looking pained. She was so damn young. Georgia was assassinated, Senator. Plastic dart full of live state Kellis Amberley. Shot straight into her arm. She never had a prayer. All because we figured out what was really going on. I swung my attention back to Tate and asked, more quietly, Why Eakley, Governor? Why the ranch? And why, you fucker? Why Buffy? I can actually understand trying to kill me and my sister after everything else, but why? Dave, said Senator Ryman, This country needed someone to take real action for a change. Someone who was willing to do what needed to be done. Not just another politician preaching changes and keeping up the status quo. Tate met my eyes without flinching, looking almost calm. We took some good steps toward God and safety after the rising, but they've slowed in recent years. People are afraid to do the right thing. That's the key. Real fear's what motivates them to get past the fears that aren't important enough to matter. They needed to be reminded. They needed to remember what America stands for. Not sure I'd call terrorist use of Kellis Amberley a reminder. Personally, I'd call it, you know, terrorism. 
Maybe a crime against humanity. Possibly both. I guess that's for the courts to decide. I drew George's forty and aimed it at Tate. The crowd went still, honed political instincts reacting to what had to look like an assassination attempt in the making. Secure channel voice activation. Sean Philip Mason, ABF 17894, password, crikey. Mahir, you there? My ear cuffed beeped once. Here, Sean, said Mahir's voice, distorted by the encryption algorithms protecting the transmission. Secure channels are only good once, but, oh, how good they are. What's the situation? On Tate now. Start uploading everything you receive and download George's last report directly to Senator Ryman. He needs to give it a glance. Governor Tate was glaring. I flashed him a smile. I've been recording this whole time, but you knew that, didn't you? Smart guy like you. Smart enough to get around our security. To get around our friends. Miss Mason Ye was a realist and a patriot who understood the trials facing this country, said Tate, tone as stiff as his shoulders. She was proud to have the opportunity to serve. Miss Mason Ye was a 24-year-old journalist who wrote poetry for a living, I snapped. Miss Mason Ye was our partner, and you had her killed because she wasn't useful anymore. David, is this true? asked Emily, horror leeching the inflection from her voice. Senator Ryman had taken out his PDA and seemed to be growing older by the second as he stared at its screen. Did you? Eakley? The ranch? Fury twisted her features, and before either I or her husband could react, she was out of her chair, launching herself at Governor Tate. My daughter! That was my daughter, you bastard! Those were my parents! Burn in hell, you! Tate grabbed her wrists, twisting her to the side and locking his arms around her neck. His left hand, which had been under the table since I arrived, came into view, holding another of those plastic syringes. Unaware, Emily Ryman continued to struggle. The senator went pale. Now, David, let's not do anything rash here. I tried to send them home, Peter, said Tate. I tried to get them off the campaign, out of harm's way, out of my way. Now look where they brought us. Me, holding your pretty little wife, with just one outbreak left between us and a happy ending. I would have given you the election. I would have made you the greatest American president of the past hundred years because together we would have remade this nation. No election is worth this, Ryman said. Emily, be still now, baby. Looking confused and betrayed, Emily stopped struggling. Ryman lifted his hands into view, palms upward. What'll it take for you to release her? My wife's not a part of this. I'm afraid you're all a part of this now, Tate said with a small shake of his head. No one's walking away. It's gone too far for that. Maybe if you disposed of the journalists. The word was almost spat. It could have gone differently. But there's no use crying over spilled milk now, is there? Put down the syringe, Governor, I said, keeping the gun level. Let her go. Sean, the CDC is piggybacking off feed, said Mahir. They're not stopping the transmission, but they're definitely listening in. Dave and Alaric are maintaining the integrity, but I don't know that we can stop it if they want to cut us off. 
Oh, they won't cut us off, will you, Dr. Wynn? I asked. I was starting to feel a little lightheaded. This was all moving so damn fast. Keep it together, dummy, hissed George. You think I want to be an only child? I've got it, George, I muttered. What's that? asked Mahir. Nothing. Dr. Wynn, you there? If it was him, the CDC was with us. If it was anybody else... There was a crackle as the CDC broke into our channel. Hey, you're Sean, said the familiar southern drawn of Dr. Joseph Wynn. Mahir was swearing in the background. Are you in any danger? Well, Governor Tate's holding a syringe on Senator Ryman's wife, and since the last two syringes we've seen have been full of Kellis Amberley, I'm not betting this one's any different, I said. I've got a gun on him, but I don't think I could shoot him before he sticks her. We're on our way. Can you stall him? Doing my best. I forced my attention back to Governor Tate, who was watching me impassively. Come on, Governor. You know this is over. Why not put that thing down and go out like a man instead of like a murderer? More of one than you already are, I mean. Not exactly diplomatic there, Sean, said Dr. Wynn in my ear. Doing the best I can, I said. Sean, who are you talking to? asked Senator Ryman. He looked edgy. Having a crazy dude holding a syringe of live virus on his wife probably had something to do with that. Dr. Joseph Wynn from the CDC, I said. They're on the way. Thank God, breathed the senator. Want to put it down now, Governor? I asked. You know this is over. Governor Tate hesitated, looking from me to the senator and finally to the horrified receding crowd. Suddenly weary, he shook his head and said, You're fools, all of you. You could have saved this country. You could have brought moral fiber back to America. His grip on Emily slackened. She pulled herself free, diving into her husband's embrace. Senator Ryman closed his arms around her and rose, backing away. Governor Tate ignored them. Your sister was a hack and a whore who would have fucked Kellis himself if she thought it would get her a story. She'll be forgotten in a week when your fickle little audience of bottom feeders moves on to something more recent. But they're gonna remember me, Mason. They always remember the martyrs. We'll see. I said. No, he said. We won't. In one fluid motion, he drove the syringe into his thigh and pressed the plunger home. Emily Ryman screamed. Senator Ryman was shouting at the top of his lungs, ordering people to get back, to get to the elevators, behind secure doors, anything that would get them away from the man who just turned himself into a living outbreak. Still looking at me, Governor Tate started to laugh. Hey, George, I said, taking a few seconds to adjust my aim. There was no wind inside. That was a nice change. Less to compensate for. Check this out. The sound of her forty going off was almost drowned out by the screams of the crowd. Governor Tate stopped laughing and looked, for an instant, almost comically surprised before he slumped onto the table, revealing the ruined mess that had replaced the back of his head. I kept the gun trained on him, waiting for signs of further movement. After several moments had passed without any, I shot him three more times anyway, just to be sure. It never hurts to be sure. People were still screaming, pushing past each other as they rushed for the doors. 
Mahir and Dr. Wynn were trying to shout over each other on our open channel, both demanding status reports, demanding to know whether I was all right, whether the outbreak had been contained. They were giving me a headache. I reached up and removed my ear cuff, putting it on the table. Let them shout. I was done listening. I didn't need to listen anymore. See, George, I whispered. When did I start crying? It didn't matter. Tate's blood looked just like George's. It was red and bright now, but it would start to dry soon, turning brown, turning old, turning into something the world could just forget. I got him. I got him for you. Good, she said. Senator Ryman was shouting my name, but he was too far away to matter. Steve and Emily would never let him this close to a hot corpse. Until the CDC showed up, I could be alone. I liked that idea. Alone. Taking two steps backward, I pulled out a chair and sat down at a table that would let me keep an eye on Tate. Just in case. There was a basket of breadsticks at the center, abandoned by fickle diners when the trouble started. I picked one up with my free hand and munched idly as I kept George's gun trained on Tate. He didn't move. Neither did I. When the CDC arrived to take command of the site fifteen minutes later, we were still waiting. Tate, with his pool of slowly drying blood, me with my basket of breadsticks. They seized the site, sealed it, and ushered us all away to quarantine and testing. I kept my eye on him as long as I could, watching for some sign that it wasn't over, that the story wasn't done. He never moved, and George didn't say a word leaving me alone in the echoing darkness of my mind. Was it worth it, George? Well, was it? Tell me, if you can, because I swear to God, I just don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Coda Dying for you The next person who says, I'm sorry, is going to get punched in the nose. Because, I'm sorry? doesn't do a damn thing except remind me that this can't be fixed. This is my world now, and I don't want it. Sean Mason I love my brother. I love my job. I love the truth. So here's hoping no one ever makes me choose between them. Georgia Mason Somebody once asked me if I believed in God. It was probably the wind-up to some major proselytizing, but it's a good question. Do I believe in God? That somebody made all this happen for a reason? That there's something waiting for us after we die? That there's a purpose to all this crap? I don't know. I'd like to be able to say, yes, of course, almost as much as I'd like to be able to say, absolutely not. But there's evidence on both sides of the fence. Good people die for nothing. Little kids go hungry. Corrupt men hold positions of power and horrible diseases go uncured. And I got Sean, maybe the only person who could make it seem worthwhile to me. I got Sean. So, is there a God? Sorry to dodge the question, but I just don't know. From Postcards from the Wall, The Unpublished Files of Georgia Mason, April 17th, 2040. Chapter 30 it took three months for the CDC to release George's ashes. 
It would normally have taken longer, given the way she died. Lucky me, my sister died an international celebrity. That sort of thing gets you friends in high places, even inside the CDC itself, which has been preoccupied with internal reviews as it tries to find the source of Tate's anonymous donors. When Dr. Wynn went to his superiors and petitioned them for the right to let us have George's ashes, they listened. Guess they didn't want to risk being our story of the week. No one does these days. That'll fade with time. Mahir says we're losing percentages daily as people move on to newer things. But we're always going to have a certain cachet after everything that went down. After the end times. So dedicated to telling you what you need to hear that they'll die to do it. I'd probably be a lot more disgusted by the whole thing if it weren't for the part where it let us bring George home. Dr. Wynn brought the box containing her ashes to me himself, accompanied by a fresh-faced, yellow-haired doctor I remembered from Memphis, Kelly Connolly. She's the one who gave me the pile of cards, handwritten by CDC employees from all over the country, and said they had three more as large from the WHO WHO and USAMRIID. Her eyes were red, like she'd been crying. Buffy died, and we got accused of trying to hoax the world. George died, and that same world mourned with me. Maybe that should have been a comfort, but it wasn't. I didn't want the world to mourn. I just wanted George to come home. She would have needed a forwarding address to find me. I came back from the campaign trail battered, exhausted, and ready to collapse, and discovered that home wasn't home anymore. My room was connected to George's room, and George wasn't there. I kept finding myself standing in her room, not sure how I got there, waiting for her to start yelling at me and tell me to knock first. She never did, and so I started packing my things. I wanted to get away from the ghosts, and I wanted to get away from the Masons. George died, and the world mourned with me, sure. All the world but them. Oh, they did the right things in public, said the right things, made the right gestures. Dad did a series of articles on personal versus public responsibility and kept invoking the heroic sacrifice of his beloved adopted daughter, like that somehow made his platitudes more relevant. Guess it did, because it got him the highest ratings he'd had in years. George died a celebrity. Can't blame a man for capitalizing on that, except for the part where I can. Oh, believe me, I can. George and I have had our last wills and testaments filed since before we were required to, and even though we both always assumed I'd go first, we both still filed with pre-decesement clauses. If I went first, she got everything I had, including intellectual property, published and unpublished. If she went first, I got the same. We both had to die before anyone else had a shot at our estates, and even then, we didn't leave them to the Masons. We left them to Buffy, and, in the event that she hadn't survived whatever event managed to kill us both, since we always figured the only way we'd die together was something like the van breaking down in the middle of an outbreak, it all rolled to Mahir. Keep the site going, keep the news in the right hands. The Masons haven't been in the chain of inheritance since we were sixteen. Only they didn't seem to have realized that because I hadn't been home for three days before they started harassing me 
to sign over George's unpublished files to them. It's what she would have wanted, Dad said, doing his best to look solemn and wise. We can take care of things and leave you free to build a career of your own. She wouldn't have wanted you to put your life on hold to take care of what she left behind. You're one of the top Irwins in the world right now, Mom added. You can write your own ticket. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. I bet you could even get a pass to visit Yosemite. I know what she wanted, I said, and I left them sitting there at the kitchen table, not quite certain how they'd failed. I moved out the next morning. Two weeks couch surfing with local bloggers who knew the score, and then I was in my own apartment. One bedroom, security controls so far out of date that the place would have been condemned if it hadn't been in such a well-certified hazard zone, and no ghosts or opportunistic parents waiting to ambush me in the halls. George followed me, of course, in the form of all her things, tucked into neat cardboard boxes by the movers that I'd hired but she'd never been there while she was alive, and so sometimes I was able to forget she wasn't there anymore. For minutes at a time, even, it seemed like the world was the way it was supposed to be. Doctors Wynne and Connolly cut the delivery of George's ashes pretty close. They didn't bring them until the day before the funeral. I wouldn't have scheduled it at all, not until I had her back in hand and maybe had a little time to come to terms with things again but circumstances didn't leave me much of a choice. It was the only day Senator Ryman could make it, and he'd asked that we'd hold the service when he could attend. I might still have put it off, except for the part where our team couldn't come out of the field if the senator, who was fighting, and apparently winning, an increasingly vicious battle for his political position, was still out there. Magdalene, Bex, and Alric deserved their chance to say goodbye to George, too especially since they'd taken over where she and I, and Buffy, had to leave off. Bex runs the Irwins now. I meant it when I said I didn't have the stomach for it anymore. Site administration is enough excitement for me, at least for right now. Mahir and Magdalene are doing fine with their departments. Ratings have actually gone up for the fictionals. Magdalene is better at staying focused than Buffy ever was, even if she doesn't have a flair for technical things or espionage. And maybe that's good, too. We've been down that road before. Mahir's flight from London landed at eleven the day of the funeral. I drove to the passenger collection zone at the edge of the airport's quarantine border, hoping I'd be able to pick him out of the crowd. I didn't really need to worry. His plane had been almost empty, and I would have known him anywhere, even if I hadn't been seeing him on video screens for years. He had the same empty confusion in his eyes, that I saw in my mirror every morning, that odd sort of denial that only seems to come when the world decides to jump the rails without warning you first. Sean, he said, and took my hand. I'm so glad to finally meet you. I just wish it could have been under better circumstances. This is from George, I said, and pulled him into a hug. He didn't hesitate. He just hugged me back, and we stood there, crying on each other's shoulders until airport security told us to clear out or be held in contempt of quarantine regulations. We left. What news? Mahir asked, as we pulled onto the freeway. I've been incommunicado for hours. Blasted flight. Mail from Rick. Senator Ryman's plane touched down about the same time yours did. They'll be meeting us at the funeral home. 
Emily couldn't make it, sends her regrets. I shook my head. She sent a pie last week. An actual pie. That woman is so weird. How's Rick handling the transition? He's taking it pretty well. I mean, he quit when the senator asked him to be the new VP candidate, and it doesn't seem to be driving him crazy. Who knows? Maybe they'll win. They're definitely bread and circuses enough for the general populace. American politics. Mahir shook his head. Bloody bizarre. We work with what we've got. I suppose that's the way of the world. He hesitated, looking at me as I turned off the freeway and onto the surface streets. I'm so sorry, Sean. I just... There's nothing I can say that says how sorry I am. You know that, don't you? I know you cared about her a lot, I said, shrugging. She was your friend. You were hers. One of the best ones she ever had. She said that, he asked wonderingly. Actually, yeah, all the time. Mahir wiped the back of his hand across his eyes. I never even got to meet her, Sean. It's just... it's so damned unfair. I know. I didn't bother wiping my own tears away. I stopped bothering weeks ago. Maybe if I let them fall, they'd get around to stopping on their own. It is what it is. Isn't that how these things always go? They are what they are. We just get to cope. I suppose that's true. At least she got her story. The parking lot of the funeral home was choked with cars. Packing the staff of multiple blog sites in a presidential campaign, as well as friends and family into a single building, will do that sort of thing. Their security must have been freaking out. The thought was enough to bring a ghost of a smile to my face, and the ghost of a chuckle from George in the back of my head. Mahir glanced at me as I pulled into the last parking slot reserved in the family section of the lot. I'm sorry. Did I miss something? You're smiling. No, I said, unlocking the door. There'd be men with blood tests at the funeral home doors, and mourners waiting to tell me how sorry they were, to share their tears like I could understand them when I could barely understand my own. You didn't miss anything at all, I guess. You got as much as I did. I climbed out of the car, Mahir still looking at me strangely, and then I stood there, waiting, until he followed me. Come on, there's a whole bunch of people waiting for us. Sean? Yeah? Was it worth it? No, whispered George, and no, I said. But then again, when you get to the end, what really is? She told the truth as she saw it, and she died for it. I came along for the ride, and I lived. It wasn't worth it, but it was the truth, and it was what had to happen. I tried to hold on to that as we walked into the funeral home to say as many of our goodbyes as we could. It wouldn't be all of them. It never could be. But it was going to have to be enough, for me, and for George, and for everyone. Because there wasn't going to be anything more. Hey. George, I whispered. What? Check this out. We stepped inside. Acknowledgements This is a book that truly could not have been written without the help of a dedicated and industrious team of editors, continuity checkers, and subject matter experts. 
from doctors and epidemiologists to people willing to attempt riding luggage carts over railroad trestles for the sake of research, there was as much fieldwork as sit-down study. It was a group effort in many ways, and I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to all the people, named and unnamed, who helped me bring the world of feed to life. Ray Hansen and Sunil Patel were two of the first to join the proofing pool, providing valuable advice about technology, politics, the media, and the way the entertainment world would change after the zombies rose. Ray also carved a jack-o'-lantern with Sean and Georgia riding the bike over a crowd of zombies. I have excellent friends. Amanda and Steve Perry were my point people for everything having to do with wireless and cellular technology and taught me a great deal about the miniaturization going on in the real world. Between them and Mike Whitaker, who did the majority of the technical design on Sean and George's van, I have much more accurate tech than I have any right to. Matt Branstad was responsible for verifying the accuracy of my firearms design and was invaluable when it came to finding new, exciting ways to kill zombies. Michelle and David McNeil Coronado provided regional details on Sacramento. David actually suggested the railroad trestle, as well as providing active, engaging sounding boards for the political climate of the book. Medical assistance was provided by Brooke Lunderville and Melissa Glasser, who rebuilt my medical technology from the ground up several times, while Debbie J. Gates helped out with the animal action. Allison Riley Duncan, Rebecca Newman, Allison Hewitt, Janet Mogan, Penelope Skrzynski, Phil Ames, Amanda Sanders, and Martha Hage were on tap for general proofreading and plot consultation. I couldn't have done this without them. Finally, acknowledgement for forbearance must go to Kate Sakor and Michelle Dockery, who received the bulk of my talking it out during the writing process. To my agent, Diana Fox, who is never anything short of heroic. To my editor, Dong Wan Song, who understood the story from the first. And to Tara O'Shea and Chris Mangum, the incredible technical team behind www.miragrant.com. This book might have been written without them. It would not have been the same. Rise up while you can. Introducing. If you enjoyed Feed, look out for Blackout. Book Two of the News Flesh Trilogy by Mira Grant. Sometimes you need the lies to stay alive. Sean Mason. Our story opens where countless stories have ended in the last 27 years with an idiot. In this case, Rebecca Atherton, the head of the After the End Times Irwins, three times winner of the Golden Stevo Award for Valor in the Face of the Undead deciding it would be a good idea to go out and poke a zombie with a stick to see what happens. Because, hey, there's always the chance that this time, maybe things will go differently. I know, I always thought it would be different for me. George told me I was an idiot, but I had faith. At least Bex was being smart about her stupidity and was using a crowbar to poke the zombie, which greatly improved her chances of survival. She'd managed to sink the clawed end under the zombie's collarbone, which made it a pretty effective defensive measure. It would eventually figure out that it couldn't move forward. When that happened, it would pull away, 
either yanking the crowbar out of her hands or dislocating its own collarbone, and then it would try coming at her from another angle. Given the intelligence of your average zombie, I figured she had about an hour before she really needed to be concerned. Plenty of time. It was a thrilling scene. Woman versus zombie. Locked in a visceral conflict that's basically ground into our cultural DNA by this point. And I didn't give a damn. The guy standing next to her looked a whole lot less sanguine about the situation. Maybe because he'd never been that close to a zombie in his life. The latest literature says we're supposed to call them post-Kellis Amberley Amplification Manifestation Syndrome humans. But fuck that. If they really wanted some fancy new term for zombie to catch on, they should have made it easy to shout at the top of your lungs, or at least made sure it formed a catchy acronym. They're zombies. They're brainless meat puppets controlled by a virus and driven by the endless need to spread their infection. All the fancy names in the world won't change that. Anyway, Alric had never been a field situation kind of guy. He was a natural newsie, one of those people who was most comfortable when sitting somewhere far away from the action, talking about cause and motivation. Unfortunately for him, he finally decided that he wanted to go after some bigger stories, and that meant he needed to test for his Class A journalism license. To get your Class A, you have to prove that you can handle life in the field. Bex had been trying to help him for almost a week, and I was rapidly coming to believe that the kid was hopeless. He was destined for a life of sitting around the office, compiling reports from people who had the balls to pass their exams. You're being hard on him, Georgia chided. Don't really care, I replied under my breath. Sean? Dave looked up from his screen, squinting, as he turned in my direction. Did you say something? Not a thing. I shook my head, reaching for my half-empty Coke. Five gets you ten, he fails his practicals again. No bet, said Dave. He's gonna pass this time. I raised an eyebrow. Why are you so sure? Bex is out there with him. He wants to impress her. Does he now? I returned my attention to the screen, more interested now. Think she likes him back? It explained why she keeps wearing skirts to the office. Maybe, said Dave, judiciously. On the screen, Bex was trying to get Alric to take the crowbar and have his own shot at holding off the zombie. No big deal, especially for someone as seasoned as Bex. At least it wouldn't have been a big deal if there hadn't been six more infected lurching into view on the left-hand monitor. I flipped a switch to turn on the sound. Not a thing. They weren't moaning. The fuck? I murmured. Flipping another switch to turn on the two-way intercom, I said, Bex, check your perimeter. What are you talking about? She turned to scan her surroundings, raising one hand to shield her eyes. Our perimeter is... Catching sight of the infected lurching closer by the second, she froze, eyes going wide. Oh, fuck me. Maybe later, I said standing. Keep Alric alive. I'm heading out to assist Evac. Empty promises, she muttered, barely audible. Alric, behind me, now! I heard him swearing in surprise 
followed by the sharp report of Becks shooting their captive. Every infected within range would add to the intelligence of the pack. That meant that Becks and Alric needed to cut the numbers by as much as possible. I didn't see her shoot. I was already heading for the door, grabbing my shotgun off the rack along the way. Dave half stood, asking, Should I? Negative. Stay here, get ready to drive like hell. Check, he said, scrambling from his seat toward the front of the van. I didn't really pay attention to that either. I was busy kicking open the doors and stepping out into the blazing light of the afternoon. When you're going to play with dead things, do it during the daylight if you possibly can. They don't see as well in bright light as humans do, and they don't hide as well when they don't have the shadows helping them. More important, the footage will be better. If you're going to die, make sure you do it on camera. The tracker on my wrist indicated that Bex and Alric were two miles away. That's the federally mandated minimum distance between an international zombie encounter and a licensed traveling safe zone, such as our van. Not that the infected would avoid coming within two miles out of some sort of respect for the law. We just weren't allowed to lure them any closer than that. I did some quick mental math. If they'd already attracted a group of six, and the infected weren't moaning yet, that implied that there were enough zombies in the immediate vicinity to form a thinking pack. Not good. Right, I said, and swung myself into the driver's seat of Dave's Jeep. The keys were already in the ignition. Unlike most field vehicles, Dave's Jeep has no armor to speak of unless you count the run-flat tires in the titanium-reinforced frame. What it has is speed, and lots of it. The thing has been stripped down to the bare minimum, rebuilt, and stripped down again so many times now that I don't think there's a single piece that still conforms to factory standards. It offers about as much protection during an attack of the infected as a wet paper bag. A very fast wet paper bag. It's evac only when we're in hostile territory. We haven't lost a man yet while we were using it. Dropping my shotgun onto the passenger seat, I hit the gas. After the rising, large swaths of California were effectively abandoned for one reason or another. Difficult to secure was one. Hostile terrain giving the advantage to the enemy was another. My personal favorite applied to the small, unincorporated community of Bird's Landing in Solano County. Nobody cared enough to bother. They had a population of less than 200 pre-rising, and there were no survivors. When the federal government needed to appoint funds for cleanup and security, there was nobody to argue in favor of cleaning the place out. They still get the standard patrols, just because letting the zombies mob is in nobody's best interests, but for the most part, Bird's Landing has been left to the dead. It was the perfect place to run Alric's last field trial, or should have been anyway. Abandoned, isolated, close enough to Fairfield to allow for pretty easy evac if the need arose, but far enough away that we could still get some pretty decent footage. Not as dangerous as Santa Cruz, not as candy-ass as Bodega Bay. The ideal infected fishing hole. Only it seemed that the zombies thought so, too. The roads were crap. Swearing softly but steadily to myself, I pressed the gas pedal farther down, getting the jeep up to the highest speed that I was confident I could handle. 
The frame was shaking and jerking, like it might fly apart at any second. And, almost unwillingly, I started to grin. I pushed the speed up a little farther. The shaking increased, and my grin widened. Careful, cautioned George. I don't want to be an only child. My grin died. I already am, I said, and floored it. My dead sister, who only I can hear, and yes, I know I'm nuts, thanks for pointing out the obvious, isn't the only one who's been worried about me displaying suicidal tendencies since she passed away. Passed away is a polite, bloodless way of saying was murdered. But it's better than trying to explain the situation every time she comes up in conversation. Yeah, I had a sister, and yeah, she died. Also, yeah, I talk to her all the damn time, because as long as I'm only that crazy, I'll stay basically sane. I stopped talking to her for almost a week once, on the advice of a crappy psychologist who said he could help. By the fifth day, I wanted to eat a bullet for breakfast. That's one experiment that won't be repeated. I gave up the bulk of my active field work when George died. I figured that might calm people down, but all it did was get them more worked up. I was Sean Mason, Irwin to the president. I wasn't supposed to say, fuck this noise, and take over my George's desk job. Only that was exactly what I did. Something about shooting my own sister in the spine just left me with a bad taste in my mouth when it comes to field work. That didn't change the fact that I was licensed for support maneuvers. As long as I kept taking the yearly exams and passing my marksmanship tests, I could legally go out into the field any time I damn well wanted. I was close enough now that I could hear gunshots up ahead, accompanied by the sound of the zombies finally beginning to moan. The jeep was already rattling so hard that I probably shouldn't try to make it go any faster. I slammed my foot down as hard as I could. The jeep went faster. I came screeching around the final bend in the road to find Bex and Alric standing on top of someone's old abandoned tool shed, the two of them back to back at the center of the roof like the little figures on top of a wedding cake. The figures on wedding cakes aren't usually armed, however, and even when they are, it's amazing what you can order from a specialty bakery these days. They don't actually shoot. They also aren't customarily surrounded by a sea of zombies. The six I'd seen on the monitors had been quiet because they didn't need to call for reinforcements. The reinforcements were already there. And now, a good thirty infected bodies stood between my people and the jeep. Bex had a pistol in each hand, making her look perversely like an illustration from some fucked-up pre-rising horror western. Showdown at the DK Corral, or something. Her expression was one of intense and unflagging concentration, and every time she fired, a zombie went down. Automatically, I glanced at the dashboard, where the wireless tracker confirmed that all her cameras were still transmitting. Then I swore at myself, looking back toward the action. George and I grew up with parents who wanted ratings more than they wanted children. It was a form of grief for them. Their first son died, and so they stopped giving a damn about people. Lose people, they're gone forever. Lose your slot on the top ten, and you could win it back. Numbers were safer. 
I was starting to understand why they had made that decision. Because I woke up every day in a world that didn't have George in it anymore. And I looked in my mirror, expecting to see my mom's eyes looking back at me. That won't happen, you idiot, because I won't let it, said George. Now get them out of there. On it, I muttered, and reached for the shotgun. Alric was a lot less calm about a situation than Bex was. He had his rifle out and was taking shots at the teeming mass around them, but he wasn't having anything like her luck with his shots. He was firing three or four times just to take down a single zombie, and I saw a couple of his targets stagger back to their feet after he'd hit them. He wasn't aiming for the head properly, and I had no idea how much ammo he was carrying. Judging by the size of the mob around them, it was nowhere near enough. Neither of them was wearing a face shield. That put grenades out, since aerosolized zombie will kill you just as sure as the clawing, biting kind. The jeep wasn't equipped with any real defense weapons of its own. They would have weighed it down. That left me with the shotgun, George's favorite 40, and the latest useful addition to my zombie hunting arsenal, the extendable shock baton. The virus that controls their bodies doesn't appreciate electrical shocks. It won't kill a zombie, but it'll disorient the shit out of it, and sometimes that's enough. The mob still hadn't noticed my arrival, being somewhat distracted by the presence of known meat. Attempting to lure them off wouldn't have done any good. Zombies aren't like sharks. They won't follow in a flock. Maybe a few would have followed me, but there was no way to guarantee I'd be able to handle them, and Bex and Alric would still have been stranded. Recipe for disaster. Not that what I was about to do was likely to be any better in the long run. Moving to a position about ten feet behind the mob, I pulled George's gun from its holster and fired until the cartridge was exhausted, barely pausing to aim between targets. My aim might still be good enough for the exams, but it was getting rusty in field situations. Seventeen bullets and only twelve zombies went down. Bex and Alaric looked up at the sound of gunshots, Alaric's eyes widening before he started to do a fascinating variant on the victory shuffle. Bex was more subdued in her delight over my brainless cavalry charge. She just looked relieved. There was no time to pay attention to my team members. My shots had alerted the zombies to the presence of fresh, less elevated meat, and several outlying members of the mob were turning in my direction, starting to lurch, shuffle, or run toward me, depending on how long they'd been in the grips of full infection. Snapping another cartridge into the forty, I holstered it and raised the shotgun, aiming for the point of greatest density. Fact about zombies that everyone knows. You have to aim for the head since the virus that drives their bodies can repair or route around almost every other form of damage. This is very true. Fact about zombies that almost no one knows, because you'd have to be a damn fool to take advantage of it, an injured zombie does slow down a bit, since you've just forced a relatively single-minded virus that controls the body to try its hand at double-tasking. What's more, the right kind of injury can make the difference between having time to reload and getting mowed down. Bracing the shotgun against my shoulder, I emptied all three shots into the points of deepest concentration. 
A standard shotgun shell can blow a zombie's head clean off, if that's where you're going for. I wasn't firing standard shells. Using live grenades when you have people on the ground is antisocial at best and grounds for a murder charge at worst. Shotgun grenade rounds, on the other hand, can be calibrated to have a much more focused charge, one that doesn't throw the resulting spray as high into the air. The wind still has to be with you, but as long as your people are more than eight feet away, you should be fine. The shotgun went off with the usual sharp report, followed by several loud wet bangs as the projectiles found their targets, fragmented into multiple slammer pieces, and exploded. Several zombies went down as shrapnel caught them in the head or spinal column. Others fell as their legs were blown out from under them. Those last didn't stay down. They started dragging themselves forward, the entire mob now moaning in earnest. Say something witty now, moron, prompted George. I reddened. I never used to need coaching from my sister on what it took to do my job. I dropped the now useless shotgun and hit the general channel key on my watch, asking, You guys mind if I join your party? Bex responded immediately, relief more evident in her voice than it had been in her face. Maybe she just wasn't as good at hiding it there. What took you so long? Oh, traffic. You know how it goes. The entire mob was moving toward me now apparently deciding that meat on the hoof was more interesting than meat that wouldn't come out of its tree. I snapped the electric baton into its extended position, redrawing George's forty, and offered the oncoming infected a merry smile. Hi, you want a party? Sean, said George. Yeah, yeah, I know, I muttered, adding more loudly. You guys get down from there and try to circle to the jeep. Hit the horn once you're in. There's more ammo under the passenger seat. And you're going to do what exactly? Asked Bex. She sounded sensibly wary. At least one of us was being sensible for a change. I'm going to earn my ratings, I said. Then the zombies were on top of me, and there was no more time for discussion. Quietly, I was glad. There's a sort of art to fighting the infected. It was almost a good thing that this mob had started off so large. We were cutting down the numbers rapidly, since we had the ability to think tactically, but the survivors were still behaving like members of a pack. They wanted to eat, not infect. They wanted to kill me may not sound like much of an advantage. Just trust me on this one. A zombie that's out to infect will spit at you if it can. It'll try to smear you with fluids. That gives it a lot more weapons. A zombie that wants to eat you is just going to come at you with its mouth, and that means it only has one viable avenue of attack. That evens the odds. Just a little. Just a little can be more than enough. Using my baton, I swept a constant perimeter around myself, shocking any zombie that came into range and trusting the Kevlar in my jacket to keep my arm from getting tagged before I could pull it back. The electricity slowed them down enough for me to keep firing, and more important, it kept them from getting positions established behind me. I could track Bex and Alric by the sound of gunshots, which came almost as regularly as my own. I was taking out two zombies for every three shots. Not the best odds in the world, 
not the worst odds either. I was grinning as I backed toward the jeep, letting the zombies think that they were hurting me while I kept thinning out their ranks. I couldn't help it. Maybe facing possible death isn't supposed to make me happy, but years of training can't be shrugged off overnight, and I was an Irwin for a long time before I retired. Aim, fire. Swing, zap. Aim, fire. It was almost like dancing, a series of utterly soothing, utterly predictable movements. I couldn't hear gunshots anymore. Either Bex and Alric had made it to the jeep, or my brain had started filtering out the sounds of their combat as inconsequential. I had my own zombies to play with. They could deal with their own. Even George had fallen quiet for once, leaving me to move in a small bubble of almost perfect contentment. It didn't matter that my sister was dead, or that the assholes who'd ordered her killed were still out there somewhere, doing God knows what to God knows whom. I had zombies. I had bullets. Everything else was essentially just details. Sean! The shout came from behind me, rather than from inside my head or over the intercom. I barely squashed the urge to turn toward it, which could have been fatal in the field. I put two bullets into the zombie that was lunging at me and shouted back, What? We've made the jeep! Can you retreat? Could I retreat? Well, that's an interesting question, Bex, I shouted. Aim, fire. Aim again. Is there anything behind me? Don't move! I can do that! I fired again. Another zombie went down, and hell opened up behind me. Not literally, but the sound of a belt-fed automatic shotgun can be very similar. Bex, it seemed, had found more than just ammo under the seat. Dave and I were going to need to have a long talk about making sure I knew what my assets were before we let me head into the field. Clear! Great! My throat was starting to ache from all the shouting. I surveyed the zombies remaining in front of me. None of them looked fresh enough to put up a real chase, and so I did exactly what you're not supposed to do in a field situation if you have any choice in the matter. I took a chance. Turning my back on the mob, I ran for the jeep, whacking anything that looked likely to move with my electric baton. Bex was in the back, covering the area, while Alric sat in the passenger seat, looking shell-shocked. Nothing grabbed me, and in just a few seconds, I was using the stripped-down frame to swing myself into the driver's seat. Not bothering with the seatbelt, I hit the gas, and we went roaring out of there leaving the moaning remains of the bird's landing zombie mob behind. This has been an Ashet Audio production of Feed. Written by Mira Grant. Read by Paula Christensen and Jesse Bernstein. Produced and directed by Bob Dion. Recording and post-production by Dion Audio Services. Production supervised by John Clem. Feed is also available in print from Orbit, a division of Ashet Book Group. Text copyright 2010 by Seanan McGuire. Audio production copyright and published 2010 by Ashet Audio. All rights reserved. Except as permitted under the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. 
No part of this production may be reproduced, distributed, or transmitted in any form or by any means, or stored in a database or a retrieval system without the prior written permission of the publisher. This audiobook is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are either the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously, and any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, events or locales, is entirely coincidental. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.